You're not an asshole, Bill. You're just trying so hard to be. <laughs> yeah, so uh, resident asshole Bill Scurry <laughs> is here. Here's to Bill. <laughs> I think I identify more as a jerk off than an asshole, but I think they both apply. I think it's in your X slash Twitter profile, though, Bill. That is it true. Says you're at, an asshole. At one point, some guy, <laughs> some guy said, he's, he, I forget exactly what I wrote, but he says, yeah, like, it goes, you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> I, I think you're a very effete and polite asshole, I'll say that, <laughs> if you are I, one. Yeah, I, I'd like to yeah. be a, throw, a throwback gentleman, a sort of dandy, a Beau Brummel, if you will, and an asshole yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when was the last time, Bill, you wore, like, a T-shirt and shorts? I'm just wondering. Like, when was uh, Out of when doors? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Uh, that's a good question, man. Yeah, maybe, it, uh, maybe, you know what? I go scuba diving a couple of times a year because I'm a, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jacques Cousteau. And, you know, I don't go on oh, those nice. boats. I don't go on those boats on a bow tie and a cravat. But um, mm. at, that point, at that point, it is definitely trunks and a T-shirt just to, to do water sports and stuff like that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's fair. Uh, but yeah, yeah there, there's no photographic evidence of this anywhere online. It's been scrubbed. Yeah. The only photos yeah. of you are in a suit. And, yeah. Well, uh, I, I ascribe to, I've had to tell people this, especially in Holland here where I live. I've had to tell people, it's like, it's like I know you don't know uh, who, who Fran Leibowitz is, but Fran Leibowitz says that Oh, no. Shorts... Of course I know her. No, no, no. Yeah. You do. You do oh, but oh my, yeah. Oh, sorry. My, your friends. Of, yeah. yeah. My Dutch friends. Yeah, exactly. You oh, know gotcha. Shorts, yeah. Friendly Woods yeah. has gone on record by saying that shorts make all men look like little boys. And it's like the last thing I want to do <laughs> is be in a withering contest with Friendly Woods. I don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Especially if you're white, man. Those legs are oh, blinding. It is bad. It is bad. <laughs> I, I remember, too, there was that kind of like public online shaming of dudes who would wear sh- white dudes who wear shorts like in the <laughs> winter, like fucking negative 25. Yeah. degree weather <laughs> <They're> I, <somewhere. laughs> I, you know what i'm yeah. i'm from long island originally and that is like a mm-hmm. birthright the shorts guy in the snow that is a birthright of suffolk county long island <laughs> believe it well yeah i mean i partially grew up in england and that was a thing too of like your transition from boyhood to manhood was when you can wear long pants because it's yes. like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. All, all throughout school you know you're wearing short shorts you know even if it is like freezing outside it's just like that's what you wear man yeah um but yeah, I don't know if you've seen John Wick four. Not uh, a the minute, last one. Any, not a minute of a single John Wick movie have I seen. Whoa. Okay. I, All right. I, t- I take a stand on Keanu Reeves doing line reading, so I exclude anything <laughs> that he is acting in right now. I'm not playing that game. Okay. All right. That's fair. Um, yeah. I, I mean, these are are kind of slightly overrated. I wouldn't say like very overrated, but yeah, they are overrated action films, especially the last one. Like, uh, you know, there were all this like. Um, you know, uh, exaggerations of uh, uh, that it's like the greatest action movie ever made, yeah. that kind of yeah. stuff. And it's like, come on, we gotta chill. Like, so, just... what, what was your what was your point about? Um, like well, that? there's a quote from a guy who actually you could never fault for line readings, uh, uh, Sir Lawrence Fishburne, <laughs> Larry. Yes, Larry, yeah, Larry. Fishburne. Uh, there's a part where he basically uh, presents uh, John Wick with a, a new suit. And it made me think of you because he, he does this kind of rhyme where it's like, uh, hold on, I, I got to get this right. So it's like, so he presents a suit and this is the line. And I'm, I'm going to do a terrible version of it because uh, I can't do Larry Fishburne, except for this line, though, which is one of my favorite lines in the John Wick tetralogy. Can somebody please get this man a gun? <laughs> 
Oh, I, I hear the booming baritone. I can tell yeah, you the yeah. I mean, he does it the best, but I, I love that line so much. But um, the line he says is like basically, a man has to look his best when it's time to get married or buried. And then he presents the oh. suit. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So yeah, I thought of Bill Scurry at that yeah. point <laughs> in the in the movie. Like it's a over three hour runtime. Oh my god. god. I, yeah, I can't even believe that that was earlier this year. Like yeah, three hour movies really were in abundance this year. Yeah. Like that was the first. Uh, I think that was the first big uh, linchpin of the year, wasn't it? John Wick Four. I think it was the first hit of the year. Yeah, March. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, I, it feels like so long ago. Like it's uh, certain movies that came out earlier this year. I I feel like came out last year for some reason i don't know mm-hmm. why that is but uh but yeah anyway um shit man how the shit are you <laughs> uh i'm good i'm good uh we, we you know it's I'm, I'm chilling out here i did my podcast a little earlier tonight i had it this was a good day i was able to watch two movies uh i watched junior bonner uh which okay. i never i never seen that before Steve and, McQueen, right? Yeah, yeah. Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. Joe, Joe Don Baker. Uh, oh, I love Joe Don Baker, Joe man. Don, I become a big Joe Don fan. The older yeah. I get, I realize I, I see much. Fantastic. I see much of myself in Joe Don. The older I, I get, it's actually I can see that too. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he's he's a little he's a little taller than me, about fifty years older, but still, it works. Yeah, I mean, and also you don't smoke, Bill. Like that's so much part of the Joe Don Baker, I think, uh, aura is the yeah. smoking. <laughs> you know, the la- I think I saw the last movie Joe Don was in. Actually, there's some weird mm. Joe Don trivia. First of all, the last movie he was in was the McConaughey movie by Jeff Nichols, Mud. Remember that oh. movie? Uh, yeah. yeah, but I never saw it. <laughs> okay, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's great. I really, I'm a big fan of Jeff Nichols, and that was Joe mm. Don's last. And Joe, Don, he looked like he was definitely slowing down, but he has a lot of menace, and he was, I sure. think, he was about 77 years old. But Joe wow. Don Baker is the last surviving cast member of Cool Hand Luke, uh, and you know Damn. he's like the he's. I mean, if if that sort of thing matters to you, which I believe it does in a venue like this, I think that's a pretty mm-hmm. good standard to hold over your head right now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean that's another blind spot for me. I've never seen Cool Hand Luke. Like my my Paul Newman like kind of filmography is just mm-hmm. riddled with gaps. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like well, I, I get that. Uh, mm-hmm. it, the, the, my post-pandemic viewing habits have consisted of a lot of uh, group showings. Me and my man Matthias Van der Roost here. We we had the benefit of like close to five to seven nights a week for a good number of years. We make an appointment to uh, watch a movie simultaneously over um, over Skype. We press play at the same time, and we oh, watch nice. it. Nice. Yeah, and so the thing is, each of us is informing the other's viewing habits. Like we're bringing a completely different. I mean, there's a lot of overlap. It's a Venn diagram, but he brings sure. a lot of stuff. It's it's so weird because he's a Dutch dude, you know, grew up in like <laughs> yeah, and like Gouda outside of Gouda here. But he's been showing me a lot of American classics. Like we've gone deep on um, on Newman, which I would not have done otherwise. And it's like, oh, I'm wow. I'm so glad I know this in you know this intrinsic piece of Americana. Paul Newman is like as American as as oh yeah, you know, Ronald McDonald for God's sake. Yeah, I mean, I I still buy Newman's own products, you know? Like, uh, actually, this is a bit of a New York uh, thing. You know how hard it is to find, like, the Gorilla Grape, um, like, Newman's own juice? Wow, no, I have no idea. Yeah, it's really difficult. And, you know, the the logo is basically the Newman's own logo, but he's, like, with a gorilla. Like, I wish I kept the box, you know, (laughs) because it's just, like, it's such (laughs) unique packaging. Um, But, yeah, I, I only knew of one place in New York City where I could get it. And it was, uh, I can't even remember the name of the, because you know how there, 
they're all interchangeable. It's like trade fair, fair trade, whatever it may be. Yeah, like yeah. it was one of those generic ones, like a knockoff of Trader Joe's or whatever. Sea town, um, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's in Queens, and it's in Astoria, and it's actually like uh, close to where my grandma lives. Um, and so it's the grocery, her local grocery, and I was like, damn, they have it here, and I can't find it anywhere. So every time I went to visit my grandmother, I would always buy <laughs> the the Gorilla Grape Newman's Own. <laughs> like it was just. And yeah, even just that type of grape juice you can't find. Like you know, you get like white grape juice, but like the purple grape juice, yeah, like in a box, like in a carton, is like rare. And you're you're helping sick kids when you when you buy exactly. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love that too. Yeah, that it all goes to a good cause now. You know, because it's nonprofit and everything. You know, yeah. his his popcorn is better than um, Orville Redenbacher's popcorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's awesome. Uh, yeah, but yeah, stra- strange dude. It's like I mean, all this stuff. Yeah. He played so many drunks. Supposedly, I guess he wasn't that drunk. And I mean, he, he apparently, you know, him and him and um, uh, I forget his wife's name off the top of my head. But it's like they had this long stint. She's still alive too. This weird uh-huh. thing. She's up there in Connecticut. She's like ninety-two years old. Whoa. But he he was like people used to think of him like, oh, they have this wonderful storybook marriage. But it's like apparently Newman stepped into every single hole you put in front of him uh, along the way. He, he was not. He was not very good as a, a faithful husband, but you know that's the sure. contradiction. The contradiction of a great man story, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I think one of my favorite like later Newman roles where it, you kind of get that is um, Color Money. You yeah. know, it's oh, just the God, it's so yeah, good. yeah, yeah. Just the way he kind of flirts with Mary Elizabeth Messer Antonio is one of my all-time movie crushes. By the way. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just masterful. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. p- no pun intended. But, uh, man, I mean, just that scene where... And I, I actually commented on this lately. And I guess this is a good way to, to enter appetizers with you, Bill. It's time for movie food appetizers, appetizers, appetizers. It's movie food appetizers. So <laughs> the first segment I want to do with our appetizers, because, you know, Bill, we change it up for the guests. Like, we don't just ask you, like, I realize it's such a boring question. And what have you been watching lately? You've already mentioned quite quite a few, actually, before we it's even true. got here. Yeah. I got more. So, I do got more. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sure. Yeah, you do. And, you know, we're we're basically going to be covering our, our favorite uh, winter movies uh, uh, before we even get to the main course, which uh, has a very apt, uh, well, one of the movies has a very apt title, Chilly Scenes of Winter. Yes. So uh, we're going to be covering three Joan Mc... Micklin Silver is that Correct. how you pronounce her yeah, name? That works, um, yeah. yeah, Joan. Yeah, Joan Mil- Micklin Silver films. Uh, uh, you've seen all three. I've only seen two out of three for mm-hmm. because of time constraints. I was only able to see, and I have to space these movies out. Like I can't just watch them back to back to back. It's it's a little too much for me. But um, yeah, if I had more time, probably I would have, have seen I think between you, the lines. I think you picked the right two. I think you, you chose wisely. Yeah, yeah, and I mean because you were so. I mean, okay, so this is the thing, Bill. As much as I love listening to you on I Don't Get It being baffled over modern culture, <laughs> yes. it's so much better to hear you listen to, uh, to listen to you talk about like what you're passionate about. And I could get that from our email exchanges preparing for this episode. I was like, okay. man, like you were really fired up about uh, Crossing Delancey. And I was like, okay, I got to watch this movie. Like, you know, if, if Bill is getting that fired up about it, you know, it, it's worth checking out. Um so yeah, we we change it up uh, for the appetizers with guests. Like I prepare like kind of custom questions, but this is kind of a a new feature we're going to be testing out with you, Bill. So you're going to be the first uh, to try this, and uh, I'm going to call it for now because you know eventually we tie in our segments to food. Um, 
Uh, I'm just going to call it the rapid fire round. Okay. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to name uh, like certain movies. Some of Most of them are kind of recent-ish releases. And then I just want like your pithy take on it. So don't give me like a whole review. Just yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, just the, the, this is like a Mark Kerr mode, like top box office top 10. You know how he does that um, yeah, on their yeah, show. Yeah. yeah. So this is what we're going to do with you. Um, the first one isn't a new release, but it's a movie that I actually watched over Thanksgiving, like rewatched. Cause when I, I think when I originally saw it, I didn't get it, but it's related to color of money and Mark Scorsese. Uh, I just watched his segment of New York Stories, uh, mm-hmm. Life Lessons. So, yeah, Bill, take it away. What's your take on Life Lessons? Uh, life Lessons is a confession because I am, I've am i been holding on to that like a bottle of champagne until it ages. Wow. I know, this is the thing. Because I ran through everything else he did in the 80s except for that one short. And I made an, I made an exception, a loophole, because that's a piece. It's a tr- piece of a three-part it's a three a three part short. It's him and Woody and and Coppola did it, hmm. and so I was like holding back from that life lessons until I felt like I was ready to crack it open like a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild. Just because oh, that's once incredible, I, dude. Once I get rid of that, that's it. I'm done with the '80s. I can't get back in there. I've, I mean, I've even seen New York. Well, New York, New York. I guess was what eighty seventies. It was seventies. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was before uh, Raging Bull. Right. I mean, I've, I've ran through the rest of it. I say the only movie I haven't seen is are the docs, but I'm holding on to uh, that one. And it's, it's like it's got everything. I'm going long now. It's a, between Roe Arquette and Nick Nolte. It's got these little bits and pieces that I love exactly the moment I love them. I just mm. don't want to I don't want to burn it off. I, I want to keep it until I can save no, it. No, I appreciate that. That's very valid because, yeah, it is one of those, especially because I feel like the first time I saw it, I wasn't ready for it. Yeah. And the second time around, it just hit so much differently. And then, like, yeah. I realized, like, I just wish that uh, Scorsese and Nolte, like, collaborated more. Because, um, man, like, I think that's my favorite Scorsese partnership more than De Niro or Leo. Like, I think the Nolte thing, he tapped into something, you know? Yeah. It's like, uh, I, I don't know. It's also because I think Nolte's, like, just bigger than those other two guys. Yeah, and then he's got like this brute force to him that like the other two don't, you know. Um, yeah, he's well, he's a big, you know. He always he gives you this thing where it's like he's a big guy. He's got the mm-hmm. presence of a football player. He's a Texan, and he oh. frequently he frequently played like Oklahoma, something like that. He's from that yeah, area. Yeah, yeah, good old boy. <laughs> and he Kansas. plays he plays outside the box a lot, and that's the thing. The very first movie I saw Nolte in was a movie called Electric Guy in Blue with Robert Blake. Oh shit, he was in that. Who yeah, he, he plays. He, he he walks in front of the camera a few times. It's unspeaking. As um, oh dude, yeah, I saw yeah. that movie. Yeah, yeah and, and and Blake was like there to shake down a party of hippies, and it's like uh-huh. a, ba- a baby face looking Nick Nolte, and I was like, oh, oh it's yeah, coming. now I remember. Yeah, 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 that is him. Oh shit, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, but yeah. everything else between the football, like North Dallas Forty, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, like there's just so much. And he worked, you know, he worked with, um, he did Lumet, he did what is it, uh, uh, Q and A, Q and A, yeah, dude. Oh I'm man, he's, he's got all these bits and pieces where every yeah, single freaking. step. Of, yeah, Freaking. with uh, blue blue chips. Yeah, we did a whole episode on it. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. It's like each each era of Nolte's career as he got older, he sort of picked the precise role. I mean, Jesus, we mm-hmm. watched Teachers with Joe Beth Williams. Uh, mm-hmm. I think earlier this year, it was that screwball comedy with nudity in it about where he plays the one <laughs> last teacher at like a failing high school, and you know he's like the 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 holdover from the '60s who's holding on to the mission of um, you know getting the students right, even though the rest of the teachers don't give a shit. The place is falling mm-hmm. into disrepair, and he's like the one true believer left over. 
that you know, and it's like every he just made these correct calls uh, along the way. Oh, dude, I think we we got to do a Nolte episode with you, Bill, like oh, somewhere yeah. down the line. Uh, but yeah, we 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 might have to crack open that champagne. But you know what? <laughs> what my mind goes to is like. Uh, because I, I really do think like life lessons is one of his peaks like it really is and it's just like such uh like uh i don't know what to call it like a bravado move to just like mm-hmm. cast him as like a sensitive artist yeah. you know but yeah. who's also a brute at the same time it's just like that's why i guess i had to get over that hump the first time i saw it it's kind of like in black hat where i was just like why is chris hemsworth uh yeah. a hacker yeah. <laughs> you know kind of thing it's like why is this brute like a painter like i don't get it and plus i think they commissioned like an actual new york artist to do his paintings right yeah uh yeah. in the movie and then you know it's got the richard price uh script and yeah, like i i yeah. I'm, I'm not that familiar with richard price but you know i had i had kind of a bit of a text thread with our our friend uh rob cotto about it because you know he's he's the authority with all things marty yeah, he goes deep yeah 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 and he he considers that to be top tier uh marty as well yeah, he's he's got he's got Marty taste that's contrary in some ways to what the popular opinion is. So I, yeah, and yeah. he leans towards the docs as well. Um, you know, I, I there was like kind of an obscure uh, New York Review of Books uh, Marty doc that people have forgotten about. I don't know if you know this one or I do not know. It. No, yeah, yeah, it was like with a, with an author, and then I think yeah, I mean this is right up your uh, your wife's alley. I feel, but yeah, I think it's done in the same way. As you previously mentioned, friend Leibowitz, like kind of like uh, public speaking or pretend it's a city. Yeah, yeah, pretend it's a city is fantastic. You've seen it, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Anyway, we, we're getting past the pithy. <laughs> we yeah, already just did a whole hang on. Spiel, wait, but wait, so long as we're going maximal, I, I okay. can do I can do a Nolte impression in the thin red line. How about that? Oh, go ahead, do okay. it. <laughs> All right, ready. We got the momentum. We can take the hill. <laughs> Dude, that is really good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, he was definitely in his in his ten pack a day habit. He had the well, the, the growliest, most choked, nolty voice of all time. Was that was the same the... year as, or maybe it was a year before U Turn? Because U Turn uh, was like ninety seven, I think. And yeah, Thin Red was in was ninety eight. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. around the same time. Oh man, yeah, U Turn is another one I, I think I want to revisit, uh, especially because it's just like that's talking about maximal. That's maximal yeah. stone right there. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, for sure. All right. Okay, so these ones are more kind of recent um, releases, and we'll see how it goes. All right. Okay. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. Oh, no, I set that one out. That was... Oh, um, come on, Bill. <laughs> no, that's the thing. I, I can just keep on going, like, why I didn't see Spider-Verse and why I didn't oh, see Teenage right. Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I don't know. I wasn't a huge turtle person, and uh, I hear okay. this one I hear this one was good, but there's a certain animation style that you're using now, the mixture of, like, 2D-looking and 3D, right. which puts me off a little bit. Like, if I'm, I'm in for seeing the new Miyazaki and stuff like that, but, like, this... Right. Well, like Disney Wish almost looks like it has the same kind of fusion style. It's it's leaving me in the cold yeah. a little bit. I mean, not sure. that I won't give it a shot if people say it's really good, but I haven't seen it. Nah, yeah, I think that's fair because, uh, you know, that's one of the few things that's also preventing me from, like, watching a show like BoJack Horseman. It's just the yeah. animation style doesn't appeal to me. Or, like, yeah. reading... No, um, that's true. What's the Neil Gaiman series? Uh, Sandman? Sandman? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I, I just can't appreciate the art. And it's like, you know, it, it's it's kind of, you know, it's my own, like, hang-up. I can't, uh, but that's really it. Like, that's preventing me from really getting into any of them. So, I, yeah. you know, I think that's valid. Uh, but, yeah, it was really surprisingly good. I'll just say that. Like, okay. I, 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 have, even, I have heard that, yeah. Yeah, it, it might end up uh, in my uh, in my end-of-the-year list. Ooh. Um, all right, how about The Marvels? 
The Marvels, <laughs> again, I just feel like Captain Marvel left me cold in, uh, was it 2018, mm. 2020? I forget when that when that came out. Um, yeah. yeah it was pre-pandemic, like, yeah. It was pre-pandemic, and mm-hmm. I, I was really rooting for Nia Costa. I really hated the fact that I was going to watch her get pinned with the blame for whatever happened with this. And right. It seemed like the, it, it was auguring for some sort of box office disaster. And there were so many people dancing in the grave of that movie. Now, having right. said that, I didn't want to watch it anyway. I wasn't a big fan of Brie Larson and that character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really know what fans there were. I, I was excited to see that as I am the next Aquaman movie, which I'm not going to wind up seeing in the theater either. I don't think. Right. Um, but it's too bad because those are, you know, those are three actors that look like they deserve a good shot. They deserve fairer uh, treatment than they've been getting from people. But I, sure. it's like, why do I have to? I like, I got to go see the movie as a bit of activism. I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually am a Brie Larson fan, but like, sure. I, yeah. I do think she needs a better publicist. She's she's been on a terrible. I mean, there's a couple of yeah. people who've been on terrible post Oscar rips, and yeah. she she really doesn't have much to boast about since she won for Room. I, that's too right. Bad. It's true, yeah, yeah. I mean, I still go back to the Scott Pilgrim role, you know, and I'm dreading that. Uh, I've been hearing bad things about the, the an- anime as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, people said that the the it, it's pretty evident that they rehearsed. They uh, all the voice characters were done over long distance Zoom, which uh, to me yeah, kills, which is a, kills a what project. They, yeah, that's what they did over the pandemic. They did a table read, and I was like, why do I want to watch this when I have the movie? I can just put on. Yeah, I don't need to yeah. see the actors like doing a table read over Zoom. Like, I have the movie. Like, sure. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, that's kind of disappointing. All right, this one was actually a movie we covered in our previous episode, but I'm curious what your take on it. How about The Killer? The Killer, I liked a lot, but I okay. think that I found uh, um, like some of you guys on that episode. I found myself a little puzzled as to why a Fincher movie was so lean and lacking the depth of texture. Mm that his other movies added uh, so easily. And um, I will keep this one brief. Somebody said it was a comment on gig economy because of right. all the references to Deliveroo and uh, Amazon lockers and things like yeah, that. Yeah, Lyft even. Yeah, Lyft, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. However, I felt like he was so easily able to weave in larger themes in other movies that weren't necessarily about killers or were about killers. And I don't think that this had much gloss beyond it. I, I could rewatch mm-hmm. Le Samurai if I wanted to see this story done kind of perfectly, the, the apex yeah. of the way I did it. However, mm-hmm. I mean, process-wise, this, this man is a technical master. You really have to sit right. back and marvel at his product. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's really it. It's like, he he's like the apple of movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you just know... designs, yeah, everything. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, a, there's like a high like standard of QA, you know, it's, it's uh, you just know you're, you're getting something that uh, at least like a value with the craft. Yeah. Um, yeah, for I mean, sure. Yeah, okay. and no one, even, even like Mank, no one's going to hit higher. I, I just, mm-hmm. I even love shit like that watching it. You just sit back and let a master do his work. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That was a good one. Um, all right. Next one. I'm, I'm really curious about this. What's your take on bottoms? Bottoms, my friend, is going to be in the top five for the year. I really, wow. I really like Bottoms. I'm a big mm. fan of Rachel Senat and yeah. um, um, uh, I forget the director uh, name off the top of my head. Uh, she, Emma Seligman. Emma Seligman, yeah. Her, yeah. her uh, Shiva Baby. I thought I was going to fucking hate Shiva Baby because it's about all the shit that it's like. I think 
oh, I want to smack these people. These are like Brooklyn assholes who who make these. And it's like, wow, I. It's like it was an incredibly tight product. It was really on target, mm-hmm. uh, and it had Fred Melamed in it too, on top of everything else. And it's like, oh yeah, then, I love him. Yeah, yeah. She, she <laughs> co- then she cooks out Bottoms, and Bottoms is exactly the kind of nihilistic, anarchic comedy that uh, is just filled with gags in almost every frame. It mm. really did not give a fuck. And I mean, I'll be damned if I saw a funnier performance this year than Marshawn Lynch. I mean, that <laughs> yeah. that man is electric, dynamic, star power, comedy gold. Yeah, <laughs> that's why they just let him go on his own, right? He basically improvised with them, like, you know, uh, sticking to the script. <laughs> I mean, that's I think the, his they st- this one scene starts off, he, he writes the Treaty of Versailles on the chalkboard. He says, the Holocaust happened. And the kid looks like he's about to say, he goes, yes, it did. And the Treaty of Versailles <laughs> was the origin for the Holocaust. And he goes, I goes I'm going to, what is it? I'm going to get back and, and get some reading done. You're all going to reenact the Treaty of Versailles. It's like, <laughs> I don't know where this shit comes from, but it's just it's genius. Yeah, for sure. All right, man. Yeah, this has been a good uh, first ever inaugural um, rapid fire <laughs> round, Bill. Thank yes. you. Yeah, uh, I just like did a grab bag of, of some movies. Uh, yeah, and we'd love to have you back and doing doing this again because you know it's like a, just a quick update. You know, you with you, and then also, I mean, you just mentioned before this episode you already watched two movies, so. You know, yeah. you, you got them takes, man. And then, yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's another thing, too, um, that I think Jacob was, like, uh, trying to ingrain in us was to kind of put our, like, you know, or where people can find us earlier in the episode. And then, oh, oh yeah, 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 we have a Patreon at Movie Food. So, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, support us. Um, yeah, we appreciate all the support. And you get a jingle if you opt for the higher tier of the of our Patreon. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bill, you, you're definitely deserving of a jingle as well. I, I believe you. Yeah, you're one of our best guests. So, yeah. For sure. By the way, let me let me throw one more. I'll, I'll throw one to you, which I know okay. you haven't. I know you haven't seen yet, but mm-hmm. it's a movie that was released. It was supposed to be theatrical this year. It was dumped at the end of last week on Peacock of all places. Whoa! It's the feature film debut of the uh, sketch comedy crew from SNL. The Please Don't Destroy Boys came out with a movie called The Treasure of Foggy Bottom. Oh, dude! And- yeah, go ahead. Now, this movie is destined to be forgotten because it's been buried <laughs> under the gigantic pile of right. bullshit that comes out. However, I would say this may be my favorite comedy of the year because it has that Zucker Abrams Zucker style to it. And these oh, guys, man, I love Zaz. Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing. It's like um, I was set up to hate these guys because they're all Nepo babies. They're, they were the, they're sure. the sons of SNL writers who were, got a job on SNL when they were like 25 <laughs> years old. Right. God, these, I'll be fucked if these guys didn't bring the goods. It's it's hilarious from start to finish. Uh, it's a, it is a great debut feature. Maybe I'm overselling it, but I was just really happy to get an actual funny comedy this year, even though you had to like, you know, take a pitchfork and, and, and throw away piles of, um, you know, farm detritus to get at it. It, it uh, is out there. Yeah. Take a look for that one. But yeah, yeah, for sure. I I actually had seen the trailer maybe a couple months ago, and I just remember like I clicked on it because like Conan O'Brien was in the thumbnail, yep. so I was like, oh okay, let me check this out. And then I was like, yeah, this this might have potential. Like I you know I, I laughed a little bit at the trailer, but you know I never use the trailers as measures of how funny a movie can be, you know, because it's you should it, not, you definitely, yeah, definitely not do that exactly because you know so much of it, as you know, Bill is like timing and editing so you know it's like they they bring in different people to cut those trailers from the person like why can't we bring that back right why can't we have like when directors used to edit their own trailers like i think uh pta still does that like he edits his own trailers um or like uh they they get like um like a guest (laughs) like uh you know uh i it brings to mind like the brisson 
uh like machete trailer that uh, godard edited you know it's like it's, sure. it's its own thing you know it's completely different from the movie but it's like no i love it i mean and i think i yeah this is this is gonna come up in our winter favorite winter movies i sent you a trailer for a movie which will come up and we'll discuss it then but like yeah that's another example for me of like that's a damn good trailer like you get something out of it and it gives you a sense of what the movie is without giving anything away yeah. You know, it's like that. That's really like it's that fine line. And, you know, I'm so fucking sick of the the detuned, like slowed down version of of some pop song. And then the whoom, you know, you always get that sound in trailers <laughs> and then yeah. the, the silence and then something explodes. And then it's like, oh, come on. Can we just like edit trailers differently? You know, um, but yeah, I think. The movie you mentioned, uh, yeah, it's a mouthful to mention the title. Um, Want to give it another shot, Bill? What is it? It's called Please Don't Destroy Colon, The Treasure of Foggy Mountain. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, so, yeah, even that, like, it, it's not completely immune to the, the trailer tropes. But, like, yeah, yeah I, you, you could kind of see it shine through even uh, despite the trailer. Like, uh, I also mentioned this in a previous episode. Like, a trailer I really enjoyed that's doing the rounds right now is um, the Argyle trailer. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I have. I have. And, you know, I like I like Matthew Vaughn. It's like the guy puts it together. He puts together slick films. Yeah. And then it's just like that's another like it has a pop song that's like been remixed. But I really like that version of uh, Suspicious Minds. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that's that to me says that's got his fingerprints on it because he right. is a decent salesman in addition to being a good storyteller. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I forgot what podcast I listened to where like he was a guest on it where it was actually like kind of um. It was more presented like a documentary, but it was just audio. Mm. So, you know, they were interviewing all these people and it was like about, I guess, the British industry. And it was so funny because they were interviewing him and you could just tell he's like one of those great financial minds because he started out as a producer. He was um, Guy Ritchie's producer, right? That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, yeah, he kind of went on his own, like he made Layer Cake. And then, um, but yeah, he, he was just talking about it of like how he packages his movies, you know? And it's like there's always like franchise potential, like with Kingsman, you know, kind of stuff. Like that's always how he presents it, or or Kick Ass, and yeah, they, they they pay off. It's always just like I think the first installment of his uh, his movies are the best, and then it kind of just it's diminishing returns with yeah. every sequel. Um, you know, case in point with Kingsman, but yeah, and then he he even like throws shade at Jonathan Glazer. <laughs> Wow. During that interview, yeah, because he was like, you know, like I make my movies very quickly with this type of budget. You know, he's talking about that in the interview, and he's like, there was no reason for Under the Skin to take that long and cost that much, like <laughs> to be made. Because I think it took them like I don't know six years to make Under the Skin or some shit like that. Uh-huh. Like, and you know, he was just very critical. But yeah, it's just very telling. You know, uh, actually, our our next episode. We're going to be covering uh, Jonathan Glazer's latest. Have you seen it? Uh, Zone oh, of Interest? God, I cannot wait. I mean, oh. if there's anybody I've been waiting for, just on the strength of birth, uh, sexy beast. And just, oh, yeah. And, yeah. Zone of Interest is going to be a banger. I have no doubt in my mind. Uh, I mean, yeah. Talk about like unconventional trailers. That's another one where it's yeah. like you're just getting like hints of things. It's just like no dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that weird score, probably from uh, um, what's her name, uh, Mika Levy. Mm-hmm. Um, her his his usual yeah. Since uh, Under the Skin, you know, he's been uh, well, I guess yeah. Under the Skin was his last movie, so he's yeah, only sure. worked with her twice. Um, but still, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're only gonna make four features, 
and that's the the four. It's a pretty strong core four. He's know? he's the John Casale of directors. Let's put it that way. <laughs> High hit rate. Yeah, nearly perfect hit rate. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, the weakest is definitely Sexy Beast, but um, but yeah, one Birth and Under the Skin are just yeah, they're on yeah. another level for me. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, how did we? Oh yeah, because of Matthew Vaughn. So yeah, yeah. There, there, there's certain trailers out there that are still like, uh, I, I think they they go beyond um, these standards. But yeah, I think that's a good wreck, Bill, and I'll definitely watch it. Um, uh, I don't know if you know this too. I think I announced it after our very like uh, comprehensive and exhausting, <laughs> exhaustive and exhausting um, year in review episode with Amanda. Uh, the start of this year, actually. So the start of the season, we started with a, a year in review. Well, actually, we did several episodes. We didn't do it until March because we were timing it to the Oscars. And then, you know, I used basically January, February, March to, like, catch up on movies. Um, so I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, <laughs> I, it's just, like, it, it's, it, it feels like homework. Like, uh, I want to just be enjoying these movies in my own time. Yeah. And um, basically, my uh, my end of the year list is going to be a mixture of some new releases and mainly discoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because, yeah, I mean, let me just ask you, Bill, since now we're entering December, how have you felt about this movie year, like, for all the new releases? Well, uh, this week and the last two weeks, I just crawled over the 11 movies mark in terms of what I would put on my 10. You know, like, I guess I start getting categorical with it mm-hmm. uh, in the summertime. And sure. so with this is not going to surprise anybody, but after having seen the holdovers, uh, the whole is definitely. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, oh. I have a question for you, Bill. Before you get into the holdovers. Okay. All right. All okay. right. Do you have a box full of Marcus Aurelius's meditations ready to go and to give as a gift to anyone you see fit? <laughs> I, I do seem like the kind of guy that would have <laughs> a box of the meditations. So yeah, that's a great fucking visual reference. Come on. <laughs> All right, because uh, I have this as a segment. Let's let's get into the holdovers. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what were you saying? Well, I mean, I'm an, I'm an easy mark. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Alexander Payne, even more than Marty. Marty's our greatest. He's our greatest American filmmaker. But my favorite working filmmaker is Alexander Payne. Gotcha. Um, Alexander Payne just scratches an itch. You know, so much so I did a video about him three years ago. I, I, a video about his, his every man casting process. One of the things that anchors his films, The Earth, is the fact that his, yeah. in addition to guys like Matthew Broderick, and Laura Dern, there are people who look like human beings, people populating his movies. And they really yeah. go to making his movies feel like they, they all could have taken place in the 70s. Uh, I'm an easy sell. And so knowing that The Holdovers, I think, was in fact conceived a little bit to be like a Hal Ashby pastiche. Yeah, that's which, what it feels like. Yeah, uh, and, and it's like, you, I'm so happy about that. I expected it. I got everything I wanted out of it. Um, and I'll, I'll even tell you, The Holdovers does not come out here until January I mm-hmm. found a way to see it. Wow. Yeah, and I did not see I did not see a version of the best quality, but I did not give a fuck. I, I could not right. wait. Um, yeah, and so The Holdovers was, was huge, looming large in my memory, and it, and it definitely didn't disappoint. And so mm. with The Holdovers, my top 10 list is currently at 11. I, I will p- pair that down to some also-rans. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's, so this year has been okay, but it hasn't been great. And that may be my viewing habits is that I've really had been watching archival stuff. Um, I yeah. also tra- I traveled a couple of weeks here and there, so I wasn't on the usual uh, rapid, uh, uh, avarice, rapacious viewing habits mm. uh, that I was in, year- in years previous. But I mean, I think I'm very happy with what I did see. You know, there was oh, the, su- sure. the summertime phenomenon. I got to say, uh, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer really 
sold. It was so interesting. It was yeah. wild to see both of those movies in packed houses in Amsterdam, of all places. Wow. Were, were people dressed up, too, over there? Uh, for the Barbie one, yeah, yeah. They, they they wore pink, and uh, Oppen- Oppenheimer <laughs> sold out the um, the IMAX. Uh, there's only one true IMAX in Amsterdam. Okay, and yeah, I'm sold- obsessed it- with that bill. Like the true IMAX, like I gotta see it in like the actual dimensions. Like I can't settle for LIMAX. Yeah, yeah. I- and I mean that that was sold out for weeks. I managed to get tickets. Wow. I, was in a- I was in a full house, and then some fucking dumb cocksucker, just when they're doing the nude scene with Flo Pugh, he takes mm-hmm. out his phone next to me and he starts like tapping his email. And it's like oh, right at the nude scene I was waiting come for. On. I had to tell him, it's like, bro, do you have to do that right now? Did you say it in English? Uh, yes, of course, because they all speak English. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just wondering if you had picked up like uh, how to say it in Dutch in like the rude way. Hey, yes. fuck nuts. Put the fucking phone away. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That sucks, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, that that's like a common thing that, you know, it, it's almost like a recurring segment on our show where I complain about my movie going experience. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, the, I, I think one recent one where it almost ruined my experience was there was a guy sitting on the same row as me, uh, it stopped making sense and he kept on checking his phone. And I was like, dude, what is so Douche, important that bag, you need? Yeah. yeah you, you need to check, but he kept on doing it so quickly that it was like kind of pointless to really just like reprimand him for it because he 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 would just like bring it out then put it back in his pocket again. He never really looked at it for a long time. Right. So it was just uh, I just let it go. I was just you know uh, I was like I'm enjoying myself right now. Do I really want to upset myself by you know getting to like a potential argument with this guy? Did you um, see um Did you see the thing? Were you at the uh, Alamo with uh, Jacob at the movie? Yeah. Did you guys go? Okay, so yeah, yeah. His- yeah. Yeah, his repair. I mean, I'm sorry if I'm relitigating the uh, the last episode. <laughs> it's all good. But his case about um, how he died, he did not actually like the Alamo experience at the downtown right. L- LA version. Mm-hmm. And I I get what he's talking about because I mean uh, the idea of being served a full meal kind of makes some um, you know real orthodox movie people aghast. Like that that yeah. you know I don't care how well you do it. And all the all the material about you know making sure that people keep their phones away and that they're quiet during you know like that stuff is great, yeah. but you're almost mitigating it by having right. someone serve um, you know kale salad in the middle of the, the, the <laughs> you know the scene. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, the food has strong smells. Like it's not just you know the the serving of it. It's like uh, your olfactory is getting affected during the screening as well because it's like oh. Yeah. It's like beefy nachos, like, you know, it's like, <laughs> like yeah, like William yeah. Castle smell of vision. Yeah, strange. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like during, you know, like I mean, they, they should have been serving egg McMuffins, you know, like uh, Alamo version of egg McMuffins during the killer. You know, that would have been a great time because you know how Alamo does that, right? Yeah, like, bunless, remember, bunless egg McMuffins. That would have yeah, been great. Yeah, exactly. Like just pure protein. Yeah, call it your protein muffin or something <laughs> no it's like uh, on the subway when the dude would open that plastic clamshell filled with like jerk fish and it's like god man this mm. is a closed environment you got to give us some more right. here. <laughs> christ more. man <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah let, let's talk a little bit more about the holdovers because i i you know i i kind of want to get into it and it, it's within our theme of our episode of of chilly scenes of winter it's yeah. it is a winter movie it's a winter yeah. break movie uh, which I like, and um, yeah, Bill, I, I'm sure it goes without saying you're probably gonna go see it when it gets released in January in the theater. Yeah, considering considering I technically did not pay for it yet, I'm gonna make sure Alexander <laughs> Payne gets gets my dollar yeah, because he, de- yeah. he deserves it. Yeah, uh, I believe Steve told me this that you he listened to you on a different podcast. Maybe it was Wrong Real, where you basically said that 
if you do watch it like at home, you still like purchase a ticket somewhere else. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Th- th- this is the peril of being in Holland. Is that I, we we got Dune. This was great when Dune one came out. We got Dune four weeks ahead of the states, so that's Whoa. a weird thing. I was able to write a review, and I mean, not that I care about about chasing cloud or anything like that, but but people at least I'm I'm known as the Dune guy in some quarters, and so people <laughs> they saw my thumbs up, and it's like it, it made some people excited to see it. But oh, a, okay. a lot of times I got to sit here with my dick in my hand waiting for stuff to. <laughs> To hit, you know, to hit here. Right. It's like this is a, this is a case in point uh, with the holdovers, which is not going to come out until January. It's like we're going to get fucked. And if there's uh-huh. anybody I was waiting for a movie from this year, Alexander Payne was the guy I was not going to sit here and wait for. Mm. So I used, you know, uh, quasi legal. No, not even they're, they're wholly illegal ways in which to see this movie. Okay. Yeah. So I will definitely pay him when I get a shot. And it's uh, like, yeah. you, you made me jump through the hoop in order to do this. So fuck that. I'm not. Doing that. <laughs> For sure, and I mean, you know, it is really worth seeing in the theater. Uh, it is this this weird thing now because it's clearly shot on film. I don't know if that came across in your uh, your. No, no, it was digital. Scene. It was shot on digital, and he edited a great. Uh, this, this, what this, he wrote? He yeah. Me. Well, do you know how Ryan Johnson? Yeah, has... you mentioned this on your previous uh, appearance, I believe. Yeah. I, this is the one fact I have to crack out about this. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not a video versus film guy. I really. I'm not. Right. I'm not. I'm not. I don't have an orthodoxy about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, you can definitely tell the look of this. Yeah, I think that they have an algorithm that they wrote to add grain back into it, and it, right. you know, every filmmaker does this piece by piece. And mm. so Ryan Johnson has his own. Uh, grain algorithm and this you know and ryan johnson's making a slick movie that takes place today this movie takes place in like 1976 or 77 before right. i forget mm-hmm. um so like you really need to muddy it up in a certain way that emulates film stock of the era and he right they did that they did that very well yeah because i remember the first time i even saw the trailer was um in imax i think it was before uh oh shit what was the last like because you know talking about like true imax uh, the one I have to go to because I'm, I'm beholden to AMC because I have a, you know, Card, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the A-list thing. So, uh, I can go to like a closer true IMAX screen near me, but like I drive all the way to Hollywood to, <laughs> to IMAX, Jesus, to, to, uh, Universal City because that's the only true IMAX screen that AMC has in our vicinity. Um, and that's, that's know, at least that's 45 minutes each way, right? Uh, I mean, that's conservatively speaking. It could be an hour or more. Like, I Jesus. actually, I think when we went to go see Oppenheimer, um, and yeah, that was the place to go see it because you know you had all these stories of like you know projection, uh, like you know breaking down and stuff. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah, it's just like there's nobody to project these things. There's not. They're not qualified. Like, we don't have. We fired projectionists. Like we ha- we have like you know you're saying an algorithm. There's a timer where. You know the lights fade, and then the you know that projector just projects on its own. Like it, yeah, it does the trailers, yeah. and then it switches. So uh, that that's the source because that's where Nolan was testing it. You know to to show it because you know it was clearly like the main problem is um, IMAX just wasn't equipped to handle as big a platter as that was. Like you yeah. know most IMAX movies are two and a half hours max, and that's pushing it. Um, so like to build a three hour platter for 70 millimeter is just insane. And the thing and weighs I, something like 200 pounds. It was yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And it's like 11 miles or some shit. Like I remember, um, uh, Jared Gilman, he was doing the Oppenheimer challenge. He was running 11 miles. So he's running the whole length <laughs> of the film. I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I would drive out there for s- specific like engagements uh, of IMAX because it's like that one in particular, it's like. 70 millimeter was an event. It took a month before I could actually get a seat. 
because it was just sold out for that long. Uh, and I mean, you know, it even got like an extended run. So, you know, it was easier to watch it the second time. But yeah, I think, um, yeah. So when we went to go um, see Oppenheimer, yeah, I think that was the first time I saw the Holdovers trailer. And I remember like um, my ex leaning over to me. She's not my ex, but <laughs> like I'm announcing it on the podcast. But she leaned yeah, over to me. We've all been waiting she, to hear that. Yeah, up. yeah. Yeah, she leaned over to me and she says, why does it look so old? <laughs> because <laughs> you know it's like we're, we're watching this premium format you know the countdown of IMAX 2 it's just like such a like a trip you know it's so yeah. loud it's got that countdown that first starts off as like kind of analog and then it becomes the digital shit and then it's just uh, but then yeah, you start with the, with the holdovers trailer and she's like what's going on here and I was like yeah because it was shot on film and now you're telling me it's not like you ruined the illusion Bill <laughs> I don't know. I like to think that I have anything. I just boot. I just gave clap to Alexander Payne. Yeah, because you know, he... yeah, I mean, he fooled me. Like you know, um, I and it's funny. I, I wrote this down in my notes too because I felt like the the film look had more of a purpose here than than like somebody like Tarantino, basically. Who I yeah. feel like he doesn't really use film for its actual intrinsic feel. It's really more like, well, you know, I, I'm an old school. I'm gonna be the last holdout. Blah blah blah. Like I feel it's more that like I even you know PTA I feel like there's there's more of a feel of like okay there's a reason why he shoots on film and there's a mm-hmm. real love for it, uh, whereas for for Tarantino I think it's more fetishistic. Yeah, whereas, but like, that's I mean that you know yeah. I I'm not I'm sorry to cut you off but I think that that is valid enough and he he stands mm-hmm. by his fetishes if it's going to be feet feet <laughs> or film film I'd rather I'd rather see film everything yeah everything on uh, that begins with F he has exactly. a fetish for. Yeah. But um, but yeah. No, what I was saying was that uh, like with with the holdovers, it really just feels like oh, there's there's a real purpose to this. Like you know, I I really felt like okay, it had to look like this. Like it wouldn't work as well if it looked digital, even if it was shot on digital. Like you know, the the grain he really got right because it's just even um, you know how people talk about this is getting really nerdy, but about like crushed blacks and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah you sure. know, so the grain really increases when you're in low light, and they even got that right in this movie, like yeah. during the night scenes. Well, that's the yeah. thing. It's like when they're going around Boston and they're in that mm-hmm. liquor shop, and he's buying a bottle of Jim Beam. <laughs> yeah, that's a I great mean, scene. It's a great scene, but it's yeah. like uh, Boston looks like fucking Boston in this movie, mm-hmm. and not only that, but Boston looks like the same Boston that Eddie Coyle is running around in, like. If you're going to go through the trouble of shooting in a city and then purposely obscuring the landmarks that would have updated it, you're going to right. shoot in like the shittiest parts of Boston. <laughs> then it's like, by all means, make make it look shitty. Make it look like it would have looked in 1974, 1973 when the movie took place. And the, mm-hmm. giving grain and, and not crushing blacks and adding noise in the dark really it, you know, brings you back. It really gets that right. point across. Okay, so I got a, a question for you, Bill, and I, I'm, I'm sure you might get a, a bit passionate or worked up about the response to this. So well, what is your response to people who criticize Alexander Payne for having, like, very bitter and cynical characters? You know, it's funny because in Alexander Payne interview uh, that I heard him give, he, he said he was sort of jumping on uh, uh, an interviewer's question to say, why is this movie the same as all my other movies, which is a middle-aged schlub, <laughs> engages a crisis of confidence, and then goes on a road trip to sort his life out? Because that was <laughs> yeah. the leitmotif for, for a lot of Alexander Payne right. movies. I think that Payne himself is a very cold, um, intellectual guy. He's got a professorial air to him. Mm. Um 
you know, I think that his characters in some ways, uh, whether it's the lead character or, or close to maybe a side character, synthesizes some bit of his own will. Um, the, right. the question is, it's like, you know, he's so closely associated with Giamatti now because this is the second project with Giamatti's a lead. And Giamatti is the shorthand for every curmudgeonly guy who, you know, flips his <laughs> lid over, you know, upsetting the apple cart uh, right. to, to, to mix metaphors. Um, you know, I think that there is a kind of like cranky Midwesternness. Again, the guy's from Omaha, and yet he right. brings some bit of Southern Dow, not Southern, Midwestern dourness with him everywhere mm. he goes. And he brought it to Hawaii for Descendants. You know, he brought it to, he, it was all over Nebraska. It was in About Schmidt. It was in all these places. Yeah. And, I mean, he brought it to Southern California. I think it's, it was, Miles lives in San Diego in Sideways. Oh, right, yeah. I've been meaning to rewatch that, by the way. Yeah, I haven't seen it since it came just, out. It's one of yeah. my favorites. If it's not number three, it's number four on my list of, of favorite films of all time. Whoa. So, I mean, I think that he is just, he's such like a poet laureate for that type of thing. If it didn't mm. work, if it was a knee-jerk reaction of somebody playing the same note over and over again, but, you know, each of his movies brings me to a place. It exalts a slightly different aspect of something about the human experience that I can bond with. And again, mm. I fully copped to, you know, this is his first movie, by the way, with an African-American lead. So you could have hit yeah. him before. Yeah, you could have hit him before on the fact that he was being very narrow in his casting because right. all his, all, it, it was just essentially essaying middle class, white comfort that becomes dyspeptic or, or something like that. If you wanted to make yeah. that claim, I get how you could do that. Um, I'm glad that he was able to weave in Divine Joy Randolph and make it meaty and make it substantive. And I mean, again, she's about as good an actor as you can get for that role. She's yeah. just stage trained out the ass. She's incredibly qualified for this sort of thing. And again, it's like this movie says something different while using some of the same raw materials as his other movies. You know, like when, when Clooney is at the graves, uh, he's at the bedside of his wife as they're about to turn off the, the machine and, and descend him. Oh, shit. Yeah. It's just one. crazy. It just, yeah. and, and when he's saying to, uh, uh, when, when Giamatti is saying to Virginia Madsen, I am not Jack, he's trying to delineate himself from his friend who he knows is a cad and a bounder. You know, <laughs> yeah. and it's like all these things hit home for me in different ways. Yes, they may in fact be sort of a curmudgeonly dour thing, but it's like uh -huh. they, they, you know, there's so there's some other aspect of humanity behind it each time. For sure. Uh, and I mean, you know, uh, you you do run a curmudgeonly podcast, so that's, yeah, that's totally true. in that's line true. with you. So. No, you're right. It's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, yeah, and I, I actually felt that this was the first time watching Alexander Payne. I mean, I haven't seen all of them like you have, but... Uh, for me, it was the first time where I actually felt like the bitterness was like palpable. Like the there was like a palpable justification for it. You yeah. know, it was yeah. like uh, okay, you know, uh, he when he meets his friend, uh, which I love too. Like there's there's all these like kind of um, I got those vibes from Killers of the Flower Moon too of like the cast from Billions yeah. showing up because <laughs> you know it was a Billions like uh, reunion between him and um, uh, Kelly O'Coin. Who yeah. plays like his uh was his roommate in in Harvard? Yeah, and he went on yeah. to become a professor at Harvard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then that's really like a very telling scene because it's like, okay, now I get it. Like he's he's teaching in a smaller school. He should have been a Harvard professor as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and then he has this kind of um obviously like a a very like uh uh exalted uh like uh, view of himself and yeah. you know with the reference that we were making at the beginning of the just giving meditations as a gift to everybody <laughs> is just like the ultimate irony because it's like he doesn't practice stoicism at all 
Like, mm. he, he's very bitter. He's vindictive. Like, he punishes people for, like, even making, you know, just, uh, like, a, a snarky comment. <laughs> And, and he's like, drunk all the time for Christ's Oh yeah, sake. that too, the drinking, you know. That's that's not very stoic. <laughs> no, and I mean uh, yeah. the, the great contradiction and what uh Giamatti could do at this age. I guess Giamatti's pushing his middle fifties. I think he's fifty five or so fifty six. And it's like he could do things now that he couldn't play as, as when he was playing Miles back in two thousand four. It's a different, uh less formed, more sort of protean version of this older character who just has, you know, sort of years of rigidity. And, mm. you know, what he's holding on to, I mean, not that we keep spoiling this film necessarily, but he's holding yeah. on to the fact that he's like, no one else at the school gives a fuck about what that guy in the oil painting told us. <laughs> he, This was his school, and I'm the last man standing who's trying right. to keep that vision alive, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. And that that's the, the strange thing of, like, I guess why this movie has affected me more than other pain movies is really that... It reminds me so much of my parents. Like somehow the Jamadi character is like a hybrid of my mom and my dad. <laughs> That's you know? interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because you know my mom is an academic. She um she also uh, taught at some point in her career, and all Jamadi's like complaints about the students is like my mom's complaints about students. That's, it's that, like, that is it's hardcore. I yeah, yeah. That. And then you know my dad, he he's a philosophy student, so he knows all about meditations and kind of presents this virtuous view of himself but obviously there's a contradiction because it's like you can view yourself as one thing but then other people see you completely differently or, or don't even take you seriously you mm -hmm. know and so yeah that that really like hit me with this movie that i don't think i've felt with any of the other alexander payne movies and you know it's like uh i guess more of a youthful thing that i really enjoyed election like i love that actually this is a weird tie-in of election and uh holdovers and rushmore there's that mm -hmm. song that plays, um, uh, I think, when they're ice skating in the mm -hmm. holdovers. And I was like, that's on the Rushmore soundtrack. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not, not surprised. Yeah. Yeah, but it was just like that year, I think, 99, right? Um, when mm -hmm. Election and Rushmore came out, I was like, damn, these are like teen movies that are made for me. You know, I was, yeah, I, yeah. I was like uh, 14 at that time. So it was just like a revolution for me. And also because... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill. Like the editing style of of Election, Payne hasn't really done that with any other movie, right? No, but I mean, Payne was making you know his only movie before that was the made for HBO Citizen Ruth, mm. which was you know definitely a smaller scale movie that was made for cable network. And so I think he was pulling at all the stops. Also, it was very heavily influenced by the end of the '90s. Uh, and so yeah. I think he, I mean he it was, was gonna... an MTV Films production. Too. That is true. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I always forget that logo in the beginning of the movie <laughs> yeah, with MTV the spaceman. Oh, yeah. so good. I mean, and Reese Witherspoon doing that was her taking her first dive into making material that wasn't uh i don't know freeway or or fear it, for her it was a great it was a great step and that she, right. she she actually crushed that role she was great casting she right. had great chemistry with matthew broderick she played all that yeah and and but as a sort of star of the um the mtv era kind of like a cursed and dunce people who were showing up on mtv a lot in the movie awards right. i understand if some of the visual language of that epoch crept its way into the product yeah, for sure. And like uh, yeah, it you're you're right. This really solidified her because I think the year before she was in Cruel Intentions. Yeah. So it was like, okay, this is it. This is her her shot to stardom. Is, well, don't is forget she she made that uh, Newman uh, Jim Garner movie uh, Twilight, which was uh, Oh, I think, right. Yeah, that yeah, was Robert, the year before too. 
it was like Robert Benton's last movie, and oh, yeah, she shit. did. A, she did the first topless scene in, in that movie. That oh she my really, god! She like walked that back and did not go anywhere near to that level of sexiness <laughs> for a good long years. That just was yeah. the direction she did not want. Yeah, just a weird tie into that too, because it's you know an L.A. like you know noirish movie. Old man um, noir. Yeah. yeah, yeah, old man noir. I mean, she's also in uh, Inherent Vice, so it's like that would those two I feel like would make for a good double feature. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, not just the Reese Witherspoon connection. But yeah, that's on my list. Like I, I think I tried watching a little bit of it, but I was just not in the mood. It's for not it. great, but it's yeah, interesting, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean old man Newman, sure. And then ninety eight is just a weird year and now we're like twenty five years removed from it. It's like people who were born yeah. that year are now twenty five years old. That's just like weird to me. The lead act <laughs> the lead actor was of, of Dominic Sessa, the lead actor of Holder, was even younger than that. I think he was born in two thousand one or two. Right. Yeah, yeah. So he, yeah. he's twenty, but like yeah, he's playing a teen, but he's still that young. He was like born in this millennium. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. yeah, that I guess if I'm nitpicking, that's the only thing that I, I say is like they could have improved the makeup a little bit on his face because he's got a quite a heavy five o'clock shadow. Yeah, the movie. <laughs> I didn't mind so much. You yeah, know, he, was, sure. he was the again. He was good casting. He was right on. Yeah, I, I liked actually like some of his awkward like line deliveries. Like it made it more realistic of like a guy who's not quite sure of himself. So mm-hmm. it's like okay, this is how he pronounced that word. You know, or he would phrase it that way. It comes out in a in a weird way because it's like you can imagine he kind of like practiced it in his head before saying it yeah. as the character, not the the actor. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then yeah, it comes out that way. <laughs> you know, it's well, really he's also he's also a super handsome guy uh, who has to play the insecurity of being a teenager in one of those private school suits. Like a prep school suit and tie. It's like everybody is essentially equally powerless and querulous about what the future holds. But in reality, I think the guy knows that he's jacked and swole and he's just, he's <laughs> he's going to be on a rocket ride from here on out. But he has to right. pretend like he doesn't really know that he's living in like LA beauty world with his face. Yeah, for sure. It's like, you know, the Stranger Things cast. Like, I just don't believe any of them now because it's just like, yeah, they're they're totally superstars at this point. Oh, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, you know, any more parting thoughts about the holdovers before we move on? Um, yeah, I just I hope it's not uh, another gigantic gap because it, um, mm. uh, downsizing was 2017. And I think Alexander Payne and we may come. This is actually a good theme to hit with, especially with Joan Micklin Silver, is that Joan Micklin Silver, the times between getting features off the ground took a long time because mm. even back in the day of making films like that, her films weren't seen as the uh, uh, an easy money you know, essentially mm-hmm. cough up a budget for it. And I think the same thing with Alexander Payne is that they don't really make the kind of movies that he makes. And so he has to fight. And you know, sometimes it takes eight years to get That's these budgets wild, together. Man. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I know that my favorite filmmakers had like John Sayles. They get these big gaps and eventually they go away entirely. And it just makes uh-huh. me weep that these people who are professionals can't oh, get their work man. together. So, I mean, I hope that, I think that uh, a holdovers is definitely going to be prime for an Oscar, which has been mm-hmm. a long time. Um, since he's had uh, Oscar on the same breath as Alexander Payne. And it's going to rejuvenate his career, but I hope he gets to the next feature a little smoother, a little quicker than this this last time. Yeah, and I feel like this one has legs in the sense that, you know, it it ties into our theme of the episode that it's Mm -hmm. a winter movie. It's set during the holidays. Like, you know, this is a movie that I can imagine playing on TV, like on repeat. Like it will just be on like TBS or something. You know, yeah, yeah, you can clearly play like that. And it's like the type of movie because of the way it's structured, like you can just tune in, tune out, you know, you won't really miss that much unless you're really obsessed with the details. 
and then be like, yeah, yeah, this is actually a fun movie, especially once they get to Boston. Like it kind of, the movie really opens up. I feel. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, hopefully, yeah, um, it doesn't relegate him to obscurity. I mean, I don't want to open up another can of worms, but it's just like there's also th- these discussions about like older filmmakers not making movies that are in- set in present day anymore because they just don't want to deal with like the phones and social media <laughs> and all that. And I think yeah. he's, he he might be going that direction too. But you know, the trade off of that, the the point I want to make with that is that. These movies will cost more because you're now you're making a period piece. Like you, you have to like you know, set dress and avoid shooting certain things that are out of period. Unless you know you're t- that type of filmmaker, which I would appreciate more. Actually, I would love to see more anachronistic period films where there mm-hmm. there's like deliberate like anachronisms, and I'm like, yeah, the, that's totally fine with me. You make the movie you want to make, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I, you know, I was gonna say, Payne though, this is his first period piece. He's never done that it before. Is? Oh wow. Yeah, no, okay. yeah. He's everything else has been done in the in the you know. The, I mean, even just the, the downsizing was in the future too. Yeah, a vague had, future. Yeah. I had a vague future. It's sort of yeah, un, unspecified ten years from now thereabouts. Um, yeah. So like, I don't think he's gonna. This is a lark. Just like making a black and white movie with uh, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. I think that he does an experiment with each of his films that's just slightly off the off the model, but he gives it a shot because he he is at his heart uh a cinephile uh, in addition to a right. director and he loves the art of films and so he does try to do something different with each of these movies yeah i mean uh, i have my uh criterion um uh like uh, la dolce vita to watch on my stack and i i believe he's one of the people on the commentary of it you know mm-hmm. so that's awesome yeah, yeah. All right, the holdovers. Yeah, check it out. And um, yeah, it's one. Of, is, is it safe to say, Bill, this is your favorite of the year? Yeah, I'd say, oh, I don't. Wow. I don't think it's going to get dethroned. Sure. All right. Yeah, he's your boy. You you know how Marcus does this thing where he separates the categories into like you know there's like his favorite filmmakers like they have their own category they don't count I in love, his like yeah, final ten yes. yeah because it's like it, they get a pass. You know, well, that I mean, it also makes sense. He, but he comes up with good, he's a great bundler. He, he comes up with great categories. It makes sense when he yeah, does. Yeah, I mean, I love how his brain works. It's like, yeah, it's the architecture. That's really it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, that's how he thinks. But yeah, I mean, uh, speaking personally too, for me, I was just talking about it too, because uh, you know, as we're wrapping up this year, um, you know, there's only there's only a few more new releases I have to look forward to. But it seems like I'm being spoiled in December because it's like every week there's going to be a new release that I'm I'm hyped for. Wonka, Wonka, Wonka. Yeah. It just goes yeah. on and on no, and on. Paul King, man, he he did the Paddington movies. Those are great. Yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm skeptical about that one, but it's been getting some good buzz, right? Um, I'm kind of out of the loop now, so I'm not sure. But... Yeah, no, the, the initial reports have been ironically, weirdly, bizarrely positive. It's true. Okay. All right. Well, maybe Paul King's working his magic again. I mean, because, yeah, why did he give up Paddington 3 to make this movie? That's, like, the big question in my in my head. It's fucking Chalamet. You're the biggest star in Hollywood. Of course is why you do it. <laughs> the hottest young star. The next Leo. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, there, there's, like, everything coming up. Like, uh, you know, and our next episode is actually going to cover two of them. We're going to do Poor Things and Zone of Interest, double feature mm-hmm. with Kay. I don't know, um, Bill, have you listened to an episode where we've had Kay on? Not yet. No, yeah, I she's not. been on two episodes, and they're 
they're two of our longest episodes. <laughs> so you mm-hmm. might be spending a couple of months listening to them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, we cover Over the Garden Wall, which is like just an exceptional animation. And it's like perfect for fall. I mean, now we're we're finally in winter, like even here in Southern California. I, you responded to our tweet about like when summer will end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you sort of live in the desert. Yes, um, that's true. Yeah, yeah, but dude, it's been bad. Like it's just like summer weather until like the end of November. Yeah. It only like when we finally turned into December, it's like ah, oh, finally like it, it, we're getting like below seventy degree. Weather. Yeah, but I, I would say it's like since you guys got your the shipping Eddie with all the water this year, it mm. corrects a lot of ills. Like whatever this sin you're paying for right now, at least mm. the Sierra Nevadas have snowpack, which is going to set you guys up right. for a good couple of years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, just talking about like hype and like directors who get a pass. I mean, I I don't even know if we'll be able to cover this movie f- for this season anymore. But I have a feeling. Ferrari's gonna be in my my top ten. <laughs> of I the hope year. so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm looking forward. I don't. I guess it's gonna drop on a Christmas Day. It's supposed to come out on the 24th or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I you know our friend uh, mutual friend James Hancock saw it already at a screening, mm-hmm. and I think you know how you're gonna feel about it before it came out. It's like the, <laughs> the I think the ingredients is really the guidepost of what the movie is, regardless of the outcome. Right. Uh, and so yeah, I mean, Michael Mann is just one of those guys where you if you love these things and you love him, him, you disregard this movie at your own peril, right? Right, yeah, because um, uh, who's that? Uh, I can't even remember what publication he writes for, but he he often also like at Q and A's, he's the one who's like moderating them with Michael Mann, uh, mm-hmm. Nuri. Uh, oh, Bill Gates. Uh, Bill. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you know who I'm talking about. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, like he he gives Michael Mann a pass every time. Like it's yeah. like it doesn't matter. Like every, every and I think I'm at that point now too. Where it's like, I, I know at least I'm going to get, like, something solidly entertaining with man. And then there's going to be, like, in other movies would be cringe. But because he's doing it, it's like, oh, yeah. man, it yeah. gets a pass, you know. I yeah. was writing about that with, um uh what was Schrader's latest? Uh, oh, the, the, the Gardner movie. Which, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm blanking on what it's called. I, I, I'm thinking Constant Gardener, but that's right. Yeah, Fine. I keep thinking of the Constant Gardener, yeah. too. But <laughs> there it's you not, go. Yeah. yeah, whatever it is, the Gardener. Um, like, you know, uh, Schrader is also prone to like cheesy stuff like that. But like, I don't know why, like I give Michael Mann a pass, but <laughs> Schrader, I don't. It's just like, I, I, it doesn't sit well with me when Schrader does it. Well, with Schrader, uh, it just seems so idiosyncratic and a little, a little bit like him, uh, like Danny in The Shining. He's like re-tripping, he's, he's like re-stepping into his own sh- footsteps in the snow maze, trying to, <laughs> trying to confuse you about where he's been. Gotcha. And I think I think I don't think that Schrader has many tricks up his sleeve as Man does, and so when Man relies on some of these thematic tropes, uh-huh. they feel so much, uh, uh, you know, they feel so much stronger and sturdier, right. yeah. than the, than the narrow little things that Schrader comes up with. Which really, I, I mean, it's like I I can't complain about this, but I feel yeah. like every product Schrader makes, every movie, feels mm. like he's telling on some small part of himself. Sure. And it, it doesn't seem so built up to, like, there's not enough insulation around that to mm-hmm. fill a gigantic movie idea with as much revelation as he's trying to give to us. And yeah. that's why, I, as much as, like, I love seeing Joel Edgerton, he's one of my favorite uh, favorite actors. I think the guy, he's one of the few passes I give, by the way, to a, an, an outsider to an American accent. Yeah, he's sure. pretty good at what he does. 
it's like oh that the, there's not there's really not much about this movie beyond his performance the plot is so strange it's so it's so circuitous and it's it's filled with like some kind of wish fulfillment or flights of fancy which don't yeah. really strike me as being i don't know i guess it's sturdy enough to carry a movie for nearly two hours yeah and that's why more and more i i just feel like what i consider to be schrader's best movie is just an anomaly in his his filmography which is mishima uh, life in four chapters like it just feels uh, like that's a good yeah. one that's a good yeah. one yeah I, I mean i'm a blue collar guy myself but I, I i get mishima yeah 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 i mean blue collar was kind of a weird like kind of alchemy thing that happened there you know yes. because of the three guys yes. you know it's like uh yeah it's like that moment in time right place right time kind of thing it's it's a pri- it's prior's best movie and so it's like i think you got to stop the clock and do you just drop whatever you're doing and watch that movie because of prior right know? Yeah, for sure. And shout out to Brandon, by the way, uh, um, uh, former guest and fan of the show. Uh, he sent me a Blu-ray of, of, of Blue Collar one Christmas. And uh, yeah, it was great. And yeah, so getting me start. Yeah, he's been sending me Schrader films. Actually. He also sent me a Blu-ray of uh, First Reformed because I had okay. never seen it. So <laughs> yeah, we've been we've been kind of uh, doing like a, a, mail, a mailing kind of back and forth with the <laughs> With movies, it's a nice, and, nice ritual. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's been fun. Um, yeah. Shout out to Brandon, man. Brandon Boozer likes The Sopranos and Morrissey. Brandon Boozer also sits in community. Brandon Boozer. Anyway, all right. So uh, we're we're gonna move on to our next segment of the appetizers. This is probably one of the most epic appetizers we've ever done, Bill. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, it's, it's I can't like believe... it's like Le Grand Bouffe. There's just yeah, like two days yeah. of appetizers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know how we do these like kind of grab bag episodes, and they're my favorite kind of thing because it's just uh, the thing about them is that I don't have to prepare as much. You know, like I can just go off the cuff. Yeah, and like um, you know, I can I don't have to really just give it as much thought, <laughs> which is what I like. Uh, so we're, we're gonna be covering our favorite winter movies in this next segment. But before that, uh, I forgot. So I got we got to do a Scott take because I okay. need to hear this from you. Um, this is just something I guess uh, I sh- I should mention that uh, this is going to be an interesting dynamic moving forward with the show with me and Steve because um, I've dropped out completely, Bill, from like online stuff. <laughs> well, not completely. I still post randomly, but like I don't check anything anymore. Right. Like, I don't do any more doom scrolling. Um, yeah, I just basically show up online if I have, like, kind of a, an inkling to post something, and then that's it. Like, I leave. I don't even check. I don't wait for any responses or, or likes. Uh, yeah, I just post and go, and then that's it. That's my day. And, like, uh, I think I'm just really limited just even my phone use. Uh, and I love how, you know, uh, Apple sends you, like, kind of your metrics of, like, your screen time every week. Yeah, if you ask for it, they will. Yeah, 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 I have that. So it's like I'm, I'm just really curious how it's been for the past two weeks. I haven't because even that, like, I'm barely on my devices. So it's like, yeah, I'm just out of the loop now, and it's it's been bliss. <laughs> like it really has because it's just like, man, I don't know what's going on in the world. I don't know like what people are fighting about on film Twitter, and uh, it's just the best. But before I kind of like went out of the loop and it was just by accident. It just happened so that I I like was working like over a weekend and then I, I realized I hadn't checked anything over the weekend. I was like, oh, let me just keep it up. You know, it's like and then it's been that way for like two, almost three weeks now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, 
uh, one of the last things I guess I saw, like I don't even watch YouTube anymore unless I'm like drawing up like uh, a clip that I want to see, which is also relevant to one of my winter movies. But uh, uh, there's a really popular YouTube reviewer named uh, Chris Stuckman. Are you familiar with him? I think I know the name. I may follow him, but I'm not. Yeah, really yeah. I mean, you know, he's part of that kind of top tier YouTuber who's like yeah. basically like, you know, sponsored by BetterHelp and uh, uh, Raycon and Mubi, you know, that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so they they basically may. I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of. I mean, you know, all due respect to our friend uh, Jamie Hancock, I'm not really a big fan of like YouTube reviews of movies. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's just not really my thing. Uh, I, I I like more of a podcast form and also just uh, written more than uh, I don't know. The videos just don't do it for me. Even if it they they spice it up with like clips from the movies and stuff or whatever it is they're talking about, it just I don't know what it is. But anyway, the point is he had a video about like basically cinema dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have some qualms about it, and I want to hear your thoughts as well. Okay. So, uh, basically, his his whole premise is that movies are dying because people were celebrating the demise of the Marvels. <laughs> like okay. that's the reason why movies are dying. They're like he's like saying basically that no, you shouldn't be cheering for nobody going to see the Marvels because that means like these movies don't make money, and then these studios won't make any more movies. So you know, do you want like cinema to die that way? That you know, like movie theaters will also die out because nobody's going to see movies that way. And I have like an issue with that premise. Uh, And the main issue is that, well, you're only thinking about Hollywood, like studio filmmaking (laughs) and that industry of like how it, it churns money and not really thinking about filmmaking as a whole. And even like, as like a creative practice or an art, you know, like, he's very much, like, part of the system. I mean, I guess being a YouTube reviewer, that's the thing. Like, he has to have the, you know, the turnover. He's got to have, like, a regular schedule of posting and all that shit. No, so he's, he's chasing clout, like you said. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, again, how many times have we had this, like, uh, proposal of, oh, cinema is dying? Like, yeah, <laughs> you can go back to, like, 96 or 92 and you'll see, like, essays talking about movies are dying you know i mean i think even i think the only one that i will give a pass that somebody wrote an article like that is um susan sontag like she Mm -hmm. did uh one about movies are dying but uh it was ironic because it was you know pre-internet clickbait for her because she's saying that movies are dying but she she actually means like hollywood movies are dying uh but cinema around the world is actually thriving you know, yeah. and she actually shares like some of her favorite movies. Like I think it was from '94, and obviously Satan Tango was there. You know, she was one of the earliest like champions of that movie, uh, the Seven Hour. You know, Bella Tar. Yeah, that, that makes <laughs> sense. That, yeah, what yeah. You say that, it, it claps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, she like gives her list, and her lists are amazing, by the way. I mean, she's she's, I I enjoy people who are like habitually list makers. You know, because I I read her diaries, and I'm like, damn, like she really likes making lists. You know, and uh, that's something that I actually do myself to, like, get myself going with writing is just to start with lists and then, you mm-hmm. know, go from there. Uh, but, yeah, uh, case in point with the uh, with this whole proposal of cinema is dying, uh, I just don't think that's ever going to happen. Like, it's it's not like maybe Hollywood will die. <laughs> and I'm not, I, I don't have an issue with that. Like, if, if we, we just stop making Marvel movies and stop making, like, 
uh, what's what are those other franchises? Star Wars movies? I'd be fine with that. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> fuck them. Fuck them in the ear. Fuck them in the fuck, other ear. Fuck them in the other ear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I refuse to pay the vigorous he demands. <laughs> so he's being an unconscionable ball breaker. <laughs> Henry. Henry. <laughs> Oh, Danny Henry boy. boy. <laughs> I hear the Henry bells boy. are calling. Yeah. Thought he'd never shut the fuck up. Oh, yeah. I just mentioned that in a previous episode, how funny his death was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the funniest deaths in that movie. Car- Carbone's like panicking to get the car. Yeah, yeah. Up. It's yeah, like, what, great. what the fuck you talking about warming up? <laughs> I better let him drive. <laughs> Do you remember when they get it, they go to kill Stax and yeah. uh, he goes, well, I got the coffee. Get that coffee to go. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, you're always fucking late. You'll be late for your own fucking funeral. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I quote that movie so much. Actually, during trivia night, too. It's like, you know, I, I, I yeah. made Rob, like, laugh like the loudest I've ever heard him laugh when I came in. And I was like, the Irishman is here to take all you guineas money. Yeah. And he just like laughed so loud, like it it what it reverberated like reverberated across the room. It I was just, yeah. I say I say to my wife all the time. She doesn't get. It. I say keep him here, keep him here, and she <laughs> doesn't she doesn't ever get it. You know yeah, she doesn't get yeah. any of my fucking references. I, yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen the Marty like uh, like bit where he says like you know I I don't really have imitations, but I have a pretty good one of, of Bobby. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, I didn't see. No, I didn't see. Oh, you that. haven't seen it? It's like a clip from. Uh, oh shit, he's being interviewed. I forgot what it was, but he was saying like, um, yeah, he, the the part that he imitates the most, <laughs> Bobby De Niro, is when um when it's the the key scene with um fuck Frank Vincent, yeah. you know Billy Bats, where he's like, nah, you insulted him a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, little <laughs> yeah, bit, a little bit, yeah. just a little bit, and then the okay, you know, <laughs> it's like no, I didn't insult him, and he's like okay. Yeah. Like Marty does a good impression of it. <laughs> one word, a one word impression of Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. But um, yeah, uh, I, I just don't don't feel like cinema is dying at all. Like, I think what's going to happen is, you know, it's going to evolve. It's going to adapt. You know, I mean, people were, were like dooms saying about like uh, the uh, the advent of these these streamers. And look what's happened. Like, you know, stream streaming has now like evolved into cable. You know? yeah. It's like you gotta pay extra now to not have ads. It's like what the fuck? Like well, I, th- I think that if you, if you look at what's happening, the the um, look Hollywood's not gonna die. Hollywood's just gonna change it. They're gonna they're not gonna make westerns anymore. Like they did not make westerns. They just musicals. Make yeah, like the MGM musicals. Yeah, all this shit. Right, black exploitation. They'll pivot mm-hmm. to some other. They'll right. pivot to a number of different modes that'll work. Mm-hmm. They, look, they got addicted to uh, as James Hancock said it at a video project that we made years ago. He said they got addicted to um, endless growth, quarter after quarter. Sure. It doesn't. It doesn't exist. You just can't. You can't grow endlessly into oblivion. Mm-hmm. It's a sign. It's an exponent sine curve. It just. It doesn't make any physical sense on Earth. But I think, if you look at the way, so many countries and so many people in every country on the globe, is now in communication. They're in a dialogue with art that they've watched from other places on the globe. It, you know, it used to be that in India, they exported Satyajit Ray, right? And then some people, if they wanted, they watched Bollywood movies. Mm-hmm. Or B- Bollywood movies being the metonym for all the... That's not the Italian... You know, the Italian entire 
Indian film market because it's like whatever five or seven different yeah Hollywood is another one <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah yeah and so but the thing is it's like we the last time I was on the show we talked about Timo Chahanto yep and you know it's like Timo Chahanto's words his movies are in dialogue with all these you know he's making movies for granted a world audience but he's satisfying the people in in Indonesia first it's like yeah. it's, he's he's a Jakarta based guy. But his work is polyglot with everything over the globe. He speaks perfect English, but he's making movies about Indonesia and about Jakarta. Right. And granted, you could take him and drop him in the middle of Sao Paulo, and I'm sure he could make a great movie about Brazil. But if For you sure. look, you know, like every one of these, you know, country in the world, no matter how poor or off they are, there's art coming out of places like Cameroon. There's art coming out of places like Angola. There's art coming out of places like Paraguay. Yeah. We just don't see it, but I don't think... I, don't, I, I think the level of cinema on planet Earth has never been higher, and it's only going to get higher than it yeah, is now. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, even, you know, means of distribution, like, I, I just think about it on, on my, like, uh, on my level, I guess, where I, I guess I'm at this point now where I'm just like, yeah, nobody really cares about what I make, but I'm still going to make it. And like, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, my ideal is like actually the vision that they had for Apocalypse Now. Do you remember what it was? Like what the exhibition was going to be? No, no, what was that? Uh, I just watched this this, uh, amazing documentary on Walter Murch. Um, And he said originally the plan for, um, for Apocalypse Now was to have it just play in one theater specially built for for that movie. Uh, and for it to just play for 20 years in the middle of a country and you had to like make a trek so it's like going to see like a, a work of art yeah, so Matthew you, Barney essentially yeah yeah, yeah exactly because you could only see it in that one place so it was going to be like maybe Kansas City you know somewhere in the middle and um, yeah and then I think the the way he even described it or maybe I'm just adding into it because I'm also reading um uh, the movie uh, movie goer yeah um, mm-hmm. Who wrote that? I'm blanking now. Walker Percy. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So he talks about like this movie theater he goes to in in New Orleans, like you know, suburban New Orleans, and it's like it's in the middle of like a grassy field, like there's nothing else like next to it or anything. Right. So I'm just thinking that that was the vision I had for the Apocalypse Now theater because I didn't even know that 5.1 surround sound was created because of Apocalypse Now. Did you know that, Bill? No, actually, I did not. But it, I mean, it all tracks, you know. Yeah, they developed that system purely for that movie. So it really is like a theater experience. Like if you watch it at home and you don't have a surround sound system, you're not getting the full movie. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. So, um, yeah. So he, he like Malta Wirtz, you know, fucking genius. Like one of the great geniuses of cinema, but yeah, doesn't yeah. get praised because he's not a filmmaker. Even though he did direct one movie. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, Return, Return to, to Oz. Oz. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I saw that at the IFC. IFC oh, in dope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've been meaning to rewatch it. It's I haven't seen it since it came out, and I was a kid, and it was oh, it's it's weird shit, shit out of me. for yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he's just like a Renaissance man, all all this kind of thing. But yeah, that idea though of the uh, originally of Apocalypse Now or a movie just playing in one theater, you know, for twenty years. I mean, you know, no movie has that legs now. I mean, you know, you could do a classic movie that's established, but imagine a new release. And I think the closest example that we can probably get, which I'll imagine, is, you know, because Tarantino owns a theater, the New Beverly, he can just keep playing his movies there, you know, every month. Oh, and he does. Yeah, Yeah, and he does. Yeah, exactly. It's like there's almost like a Tarantino midnight showing every month, you know, another one of his movies. And I'm sure, like, they're just like when they did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they're going to plaster, you know, four-wall, is it... 
titled the movie critic i don't know what is his, his last movie oh um, yeah for, well it's gonna be the critic i think just oh the critic. the critic oh man he's taking away from john lovitz's show come on oh well it stinks it stinks, it stinks. <laughs> <laughs> great show yeah it's really good yeah yeah uh, so so yeah like i i can imagine that happening like if 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 cinema was more decentralized what it's kind of is now like we are splitting into like local cinema but somehow it's like making its way because i think there's also like a hunger to like find like the obscure corners of the world of like oh wait they're making movies in bhutan yeah, yeah. let's uh let's uh let's screen this you know or you know how even pre-internet like how rich Iranian cinema has been, you know, and like yeah. how um, that was like such a discovery and just like the amount of talent. Like it makes me think of the beginning of Social Network where, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is talking about like how many there's like way more people in China with genius IQs than there are in America. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like what? But it's the same thing. Like you have these countries that are so rich in talent where it's like, I mean, Argentina went through that phase for a while, too, where it was just like every emerging Argentinian filmmaker was like a unique like you know one-of-a-kind type of filmmaker and yeah. it was just man and now we only have two that remain it's Lucrecia Martel and Elizandro Alonso a lot of them have like kind of moved on um mm -hmm. but yeah it was like so rich um just um how the the cinema around the world was emerging so that's still vital like I think that's not gonna stop regardless of like how the industry reshapes itself but you know i'm cheering for that too because like you know everybody's decrying all this they'll like, oh, bring back the mid mid budget you know 25 million dollar movie you know and goodfellas is case in point of that too you know goodfellas only cost 25 million to make which is you know well that, that, that would be of. that would be inflated to what probably like 75 or 80 million yeah now, yeah I think. yeah yeah but i think also um like uh de niro like took a pay cut to, to get yeah. it done like he actually not only did he take a pay cut for that movie he he was like yeah i'm i'm not gonna play the lead but use me to sell the movie like you know right. make me top billing just so you can get the money to to get this done you know and I, yeah. i'm like damn what a guy yeah. um yeah i mean you know marty's his boy so <laughs> uh he he did it for him uh but yeah so ultimately you're right bill like what what you just mentioned about like you, you know adapting and reshaping i think the, i i i fully agree that's what's gonna happen and i'm actually excited for it i'm there for it you know it's just like let's see how how cinema will evolve now that we realize we're spending way too much fucking money on it you know and you know you're right now you're looking down the crosshairs of a huge test uh, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors again mm. there's a test of metal coming up because we are just about to enter a big uh quagmire of no new movies and tv oh the, right the, yeah because the, of the strikes the, sin, the sins of the strike are about to hit and mm. so there's already been some pivoting some uh series i think um what the fuck was it one series was just picked up that was a streaming series is going to show on like abc some of these things are going to be bought out they're going to cross the, the they're going to cross the lines of, of networks because they just need something, and so they bought a few streaming series that they know people probably have not watched. But if you put it at eight thirty on ABC, mm. you'll get a whole audience that was completely new. Sure. But I think that, like for instance, Netflix, some ways has been um, was able to weather the strike because it's such an international company. Right. Netflix, a lot of people don't know this, but Netflix has infiltrated uh, so many gigantic countries on earth bigger nations with larger cultural bases mm. and established outposts in each of these countries to essentially um either 
uh, incorporate, influence, or outright buy the cultural products of those countries. Shit. So yeah. they're all over Europe. They're all over South America. They're all there's in parts of Africa. Yeah. definitely in Asia. They're in the Balkans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Man, and um, yeah, the idea is that they, you know, their their senior VPs in all these countries are trying to monetize what's the best of Hungarian TV that we can sell out of Hungary. <laughs> yeah, they, they're like, looking for the next Squid Game. Exactly. And, you know, the Squid Game was something that they made. They came on in the process. They helped mm. sculpt Squid Game. And, you know, the director had a vision, but essentially Netflix abetted him in his vision and consulted with him to create his vision with a heavy influence. And then Netflix essentially, inv- they created this project out of thin air. Mm. We haven't seen this guy beforehand. And it was like one of the biggest hits of last year. Yeah. And so sure. they want that. They want that out of Sweden. They want that out of... Um, Bosnia, they want Whoa. that out of Portugal. Wherever they can get that, they want to create the best. And then what they will do is they'll sell the Portuguese show to mm. Mexico City, and they'll sell the Swedish show to freaking Lagos, Nigeria. You know, and it's like that's <laughs> right. the beautiful the beautiful thing about what they do is transposing these pieces of of culture all over the planet where they're already used to watching shows in a foreign language, and it's like watch the needle move as Netflix introduces this cross pollinate they're already doing it. They introduces this cross pollination of in many cases it's gonna be mini series and televisual, you know, like a, a full run seasons, in other cases it's gonna be movies and things like that. But right. they're uniquely positioned to cross pollinate like you said, movies from Bhutan mm. could wind up in Australia or somewhere out in Taiwan, and you can see this cross pollination, the likes of which you haven't seen before. Man, yeah, and I I admire that. I really admire that that strategy because I think, yeah, limiting yourself to the U.S. market, I think that's the flaw of these old studios. Is like they they're still lenient on that, and then maybe the Chinese market, you know. But it's funny that you, what you just mentioned, like. It kind of ties into our Netflix episode because at that time we were conjecturing about it because of the the Timu film, um, and then all these other international films because it, it's just the quality is way different from yeah. their like, American watched, productions. I, t- I think I still think it was then we called Athena. I still think that we you know that um, was, uh, Athena. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. You know, it's like that they're finding all these gems and these talents from other countries. And yeah, they're so much better than. I mean, even um, ah oh shit, what was one of, one of my favorites from last year? Uh, it was like a fake one take Korean movie. I'm blanking on the title. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget. Yeah, that was wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I hella enjoyed that. So um, but yeah, surprisingly, no Netflix movies on my list this year. I don't have any. Yeah, they they were they had an off year. That's for goddamn sure. Yeah, I think Apple TV really uh like uh, yeah they they pushed the boundaries with their their movies this year i've been hearing good things about ones, um yeah. napoleon i haven't seen it but uh i've been hearing ter- uniformly <laughs> terrible things about napoleon interesting okay well i'm getting firsthand uh, okay. uh oh, okay. like okay, okay, uh, okay. experiences so i'm like okay if they're enjoying it then yeah maybe i'll enjoy it too so uh yeah but anyway uh that was my uh i'm glad thank you for participating in in my little scott take bill but yeah cinema is far from dying it's uh it's it's evolving, it's healing, you know, it's transforming. That's what's yeah. happening to cinema right now, I believe. Alright, so yeah, let's let's get into our winter movies, Bill. Um, winter movies. So uh, I just wanna ask you in general, are you a fan of winter? Uh yeah, yeah. I mean I, I haven't seen snow in a good long time, but yeah, I enjoy winter very much. I would I would rather be cold wearing layers than sweat my nuts off in the summertime and just dealing with heat, miserable Absolutely. heat and humidity. Yeah, I mean, tie into a comedian you would know that a lot of people, I, I believe, have forgotten, Bill Hicks. You know, mm-hmm. he, he always hated summer. He was like hot and sticky. 
You know, I hated yeah. summer, but, you know, I got to retire all my cool jackets for another fucking season. <laughs> so he said it's so good. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I am also a fan of winter. I Actually, you know, my specific favorite type of winter, um, and I, I think it is actually captured in one of the movies we're going to discuss, is, like, it's this wind. Uh, it had just snowed, but then you get, like, this kind of warm pocket, mm-hmm. even with snow surrounding, and it's not quite melting yet. But it's just like there's no bitter wind blowing. Yeah. It's just like that's the perfect winter to me. Like, you know, it, it snow all around. Everything's white out. And then, um, yeah, it, it, there's, there's like this weird warmth around that area. And then also just like finding yourself in, in those types of spaces, uh, you know, to like seek refuge, which also happens in a movie I'm going to mention. Uh, but, yeah, so, um, Bill, what do you think are like the hallmarks of – of winter movies, you know, it's like, how do you know you're in a winter movie? <laughs> well, you know, in a lot of cases, I could, uh, I could tell bullshit fake snow, for instance. Right. <laughs> um, you know, there's something like the more we work uh, on film, the more, you know, that film vocabulary becomes more and more complex. It's weird because the fake shit that they spray around looks more and more like uh, potato flakes that have been soaked. The fake snow mm. in winter in, in movies today, perhaps that's because of the way, you know, the filming re- reveals every single flaw. Yeah. Um, it, it, that just looks like, oh, uh, you shot this in March or you shot this in January or June, rather. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, you're trying to pretend that it's the snow. I think some of the worst fake snow was in uh, that third Dark Knight movie. It, like the movie was, <laughs> was shot in the middle of July in Manhattan. And uh, I remember I, I was living downtown right around then. And yeah. um, it's like I remember seeing fake snow over where it's like, what is this bullshit? Like, this is going to show up on film. This is this is trash. Really? I thought that was like debris or something. I didn't know that was snow. <laughs> I thought that was just like kind of dust. No, they were down. They were down on Wall Street. The big, the big fight with Bane and Batman. Right. Was like down, down in front of Federal Hall, and I just, yeah, I was like, oh, that this is awful. It's like really <laughs> terrible fake snow. This, this goop they're putting on the ground for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, for sure. Know. Like, yeah, it, it's like it's rain too. That that's the sa- same way I feel about fake rain in movies. I can just tell when there's like a water tank like pouring because it's so yeah. directional. There's no, yeah. yeah, you know, like real snow and real rain. It goes in different directions. It doesn't just come from one area. You know, yeah, yeah, you, you do yeah. the best you can. I yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, but you know, I, I think that winter movies. You know, what makes a winter movie is not just the fact that it takes place in the month that winter takes place, mm-hmm. which sometimes is arbitrary. Yeah, but that I would rather a winter movie be set in the winter if you're going to use the aspects of the environment and the season optimally right um, either either for m- maximum comedy maximum horror <laughs> maximum difficulty maximum extremity yeah like it's like again it could take i know a lot of good movies that take place during the winter because that's just when they're set but right. the but the best ones actually use those aspects f- for storytelling not just for background for sure all right okay important question then this uh, is another thing that i one of the last things I came across when I was online, there was a bit of a debate actually during Halloween about like movies that shouldn't be seen uh, during Halloween because it's the wrong time to watch them, even though they're quote unquote horror. So right. um, I got to ask you this, Bill, is The Thing a Halloween movie or a winter movie? Uh, no, technically, it's a, it's a, I could not call it a Halloween movie. It's definitely a winter movie just because, yeah. you know. I mean, what movie? I mean, that's going to top. Any talk about winter movie, and if any film fan worth their salt should put it sort of at, at or near the top, mm-hmm. simply because it weaponizes every single flake of snow on the screen. And those yeah. are real <laughs> fucking. I know they shot the interior scenes in a, in a chilled environment in Los Angeles, but everything yeah. that was external shot up there in 
was it northern Canada, north of north of Vancouver? It's right. Like, that's fucking wild, man. Yeah, it looked like a, a real tundra that they were on. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Man. Um, yeah. So would you say the thing is on your list of favorite winter movies? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Just being being the uh, uh Carpenter devotee. Um yeah, just awesome. in terms of yeah, what how he uses that's you know, almost like a a peak example, a textbook example of weaponizing the tundra, weaponizing the snow. Mm. You know, again, it's just that there, there's fucking frozen people. It's not just the fact that it takes place in this blighted, deserted, no one around you for thousands of miles besides polar bears and penguins, because um, <laughs> it's supposed to be Antarctica. But the right. fact is that, like, how horrifying it looks to be there and then to slowly freeze to death on that snow. And what the contrast of flame, you know, the flamethrower on top of the snow is just mm. a beauty you've never yeah. seen before. Oh, dude, you're you're getting me like amped up for it again. I think I'm due yeah. for another rewatch, <laughs> you know. And now that we're we're finally getting some cold weather, you know, bundle up with some hot cocoa and watch this yeah. movie. <laughs> oh yeah. man, yeah, the thing, dude. I, I mean, it, it's a weird, <laughs> it it occupies a weird place for me in the sense that if you know, gun to my head, somebody asked me what's your favorite horror movie, that's what I come up with. But I'm also yeah. like partly embarrassed to say that because it's like. It's like the fashionable answer to have, you know. <laughs> we worked hard for that fashionable answer, though, because you know, the since I started like conversing with movie nerds and and this sort of in this reclamation project, mm-hmm. outside of the uh, basement dweller with rush posters up on the wall, mm-hmm. championing VHS copies of the thing, and those people were right. It's just that they look like weirdos and they lived in basements back mm-hmm. in the day. Now the fact is that everybody has put so much rigorous thought in championing. Uh, Carpenter back to this place where he's at and ironically the only person who doesn't benefit from all of this Carpenter love is John himself who's just <laughs> who's completely tuned out he's just right. so apathetic he's so bitter he's so over it he's such an old man who just wants to play Xbox you yeah know? and, and didn't like, he direct his last project from his from the couch, couch yeah, from the couch, yeah. <laughs> But the rest of us have this movie that I, I feel like we did, uh, I mean, not we, but we're standing on the shoulders of giants who mm. essentially did a lot of nerd championing for years, trying to breathe in like this real cultural criticism of his movies and make mm. him a big, give him a bigger prestige now in the 20 teens and the 2020s than he ever had at any point in his career. Right. You know? yeah, yeah, for that's sure. A big deal. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I think another guy who's like on that level too is Joe Dante. You know, yeah, yeah like, that's a yeah. good point. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're of the same generation. They're they're fans of similar movies. You know, uh, they've yeah. remade some of their favorite movies. You know, so, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, it is funny how like the John Carpenter persona now is like this crotchety old man versus yeah, it's like this young dude. Like you know, so many. It's like uh, 70s Carpenter. Like so many people had crushes on that. The same way they do like 70s like Werner Herzog. You know, they yeah. also had like a similar look, you know, the mustache with the long flowing mane and, yeah. you know, wearing striped uh, polo shirts and shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah that's that was true. their look. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if there's ever like a public photo of the two of those guys together. <laughs> I found a photo of Russ Meyer and Werner Herzog together. Holy shit. Very, I was very happy. Oh, Bill, that. actually, yeah. the, you know, you just like kind of tipped to like something that I want to get into. Um in a future episode, I kind of want to do a deep dive of, of uh, Russ Mayer. And yeah, I feel like you'd be a good guest for that. <laughs> Jamie Hancock. Um, yeah, fuck it. Of, Let, all three of us. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, he, but he was, he, he, like, I hadn't really, I hadn't seen any of them for the most part. Uh-huh. And he says, he says, no, he goes, I'm telling you what you got to do is 
Go to you're gonna you gotta watch um, Faster Pussycat. You gotta watch your Super mm-hmm. Vic, Super Vixen. Uh, beneath the, I saw Beneath the Valley of the, yeah. uh, the you know, but it's like the, it's like there's are some of those that really do bear watching for all sorts of reasons. Titillation right. aside, and that's great. But yeah, I agree. It's <laughs> yeah, great. no, it's yeah, fantastic. there's definitely a value there. And I will say Absolutely. too, yeah, the the one I got into that I haven't finished, but I started, and you know, a lot of these are are really crappy quality, by the way. You know. Uh, I mean, I think Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is the only one because it has, like, a Criterion version. But I think, yeah. like, whoever owns his estate is doing, like, self-distribution. And the Blu-rays are so expensive, man. Yeah. Like, uh, so it's not even worth it. But uh, the one I got into was his movie that kind of, like, w- got cut up because uh, I think it was um, the film got ruined in the lab mm. or something. So he basically had to make something that was wildly experimental because of it like you know a lot of jump cuts like uh you know uh jumps in continuity uh it's just a really weird movie and it's also titillating and it has like uh one of his favorite actors who like i remember more as a dad in movies um (laughs) okay i'm blanking on the um the movie yeah see this is where steve would come in he's he's our jamie jamie bring that up uh, <laughs> uh, it's like it starts with come something. <laughs> um, oh my god! They, but keep in mind these movies had like three titles a piece too. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's like some of them are official. Some of the some of them are the sixteen, the eight millimeter titles. Some of them are VHS titles. They and he's one of those guys who like lived through all the periods of cinema, which is just crazy. Hey, he was he was an, he was a, much like Andy Sedaris. Mm-hmm. He was um, and the same way Andy Sedaris worked with his wife too to make these movies. Right. He was um, just sort of a factory, and he he had an, it was a hermetic aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He essentially just went and remade the same movies, but I think I mean Russ, Russ Meyer made better films than Andy Sedaris. You're right. But you know the the idea that they were just dedicated to to the, to, to tits is just like I mean it's oh, beautiful. Yeah. It's fantastic. And the thing is, it's it's sincere. <laughs> Funny yeah, enough, it is. Say, like you know, you don't doubt the passion for it. It's just like man, it, and and so consistent. It's like Matthew Barney's latex and Vaseline. <laughs> it's like that's the medium in which he works. Yeah, I think the movie was actually called Good Morning and Goodbye. That was the movie okay. that like kind of got cut up. And, you know, he collaborated with um, uh, Roger Ebert. You know, <laughs> Ebert wrote the script for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I like the uh, the other movie just like by its title of Up! Exclamation mm-hmm. mark. Like, like, yeah, that that seems like a cool movie. But, yeah. It's like there needs to be a reappreciation of of Russ Mayer. I think he's ripe for it, and you know I can't wait for they should do like a new Bev like retrospective of Russ Mayer. That would be amazing, you know. Yeah, I think I really think it's a matter of access. There are mm. some filmmakers who become uh, phantoms simply because of the matter of access, and that's he's. I think he's right. suffering from it right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I I hope. I mean, you know, if Criterion wants to continue on that journey, come on, release the the Russ Mayer box set. You know? I'll take, again, I'll, I'll take a fucking, uh, give, give me a John Sales box set because another guy is dying from access right now. You can't oh. find John Sales movies on, on you know, right. Blu-ray and stuff like that. But yeah. you know, um, that's a big release next year and that's definitely a copy I'm going to yes. pick up of Lone Star. That's going to yeah, be that's huge. Yeah, that's a big deal. And, yeah. and, and, and you know, you can say that's the best one to start with, but it's like, yeah. come on, man. We got eight, Mate Wan, Eight Men Out. We got like Brother from Another Planet. is legendary. <laughs> and how many people have seen that movie? Come on. Right. I need to watch it. Actually, oh, I forgot to mention this too, Bill. You know, next year, um, we're going to be... F- 
almost solely focusing all on 1984 movies because it's the 40th anniversary. So that falls upon it. So yeah, we should get you back for that too. As many as you want. I'm here. I'm here to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I was going to save this for last, but like, I I should just mention this now. I mean, Bill, you are the ideal guest. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Well, well, one, you know, you're, you're very eloquent. You know, you class up the joint whenever, whatever podcast you're on. And then, Two, you have the most flexible schedule out of everybody. Yeah, it, it so, really is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why you're the perfect guest. You know, it's like... Avail- availability makes me a good yeah. guest. <laughs> you can plug in the holes, like especially, you know, on episodes that me and Steve can't do. Case in point, this episode. Um, yeah. It's like, yeah, you're you're right here. Bill's old reliable. <laughs> yeah. Old hickory. <laughs> Get in there. Um but anyway, yeah, so going back to winter movies, so what's the first winter movie you want to highlight, Bill? Um, well, you know, I, I don't think of so much of my favorite, well, they're not my favorite movies, but they're mm-hmm. movies that use winter. Okay, yeah, uh, no, and, that, and that's snow. fair. So how about Ruben Oslin's Force Majeure? Oh, shit, I just picked that up recently. I, I found Dude. it in a bargain bin for three bucks. <laughs> the yeah, that's worth, that's worth it. I yeah, mean, totally. I'm, you know, big, big Ruben Oslin. Ruben Oslin, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I've seen everything. I've seen Force Majeure, mm. The Square. Play? And, um, have you seen the earlier movies? No, I've, no, that's the thing. The early movies I have to go back and see. Okay, but I, gotcha. I, really, I really enjoy Triangle of Sadness. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people did not, but I enjoyed it a lot. Mostly because I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of cruise ships and travel in the Caribbean. Sure. Stuff like that. Yeah, so I, I, I took a lot out of it. Um, but Force Majeure is such a profound movie. It has Christopher Hibiu, that 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 wild red-headed red Oh, from Norwegian. Game of Thrones. Yeah, he's yeah. great, and it's the first place I saw him. You mm-hmm. know, and it's just one of those movies that does everything scant. It's, you know, like the, 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 they're walking around naked in, in, in their hotel room. Right. It's got that sort of casual nudity that European films I just grew up thinking <laughs> they should have. It's got the spectacle right. of the avalanche in the very beginning, and the whole movie just takes mm-hmm. place, you know, in the in the lee of that uh, event. But it it uses the ski resort so well, and snow becomes you know the sort of prime mover of the storytelling. It's it's. You know, if he, people haven't seen it, it's just a really good satire. And forget forget about what was it downhill, the the American remake. Oh with yeah, the, with Julia Louis Dreyfus and, and, and uh, Will, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't see that, but it's mm-hmm. like why well, you didn't need to be remade. So no, pointless. Yeah. Like I, I mean, uh, the, one of my favorite things about that movie really is that. He revealed that his his inspiration was YouTube videos. <laughs> like, I love that. Yeah. yeah, and you see it from the the framing of every shot. It's like, yeah, this looks like a YouTube video, but like he classed it up, obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That is amazing, and I needed somebody. James Hancock again pointed that out. We sat mm-hmm. and watched the YouTube videos it was based on, and I just sat there agog that mm-hmm. it's like I can't believe this artist synthesized all this stuff so yeah. seamlessly. Yeah, and uh, I don't think anybody has ever done that as successfully as he's done you know yeah no he's kind of a he's an industry unto itself like mm-hmm. he is as much as he is a literal storyteller the way he is almost like a video installation artist on some level too yeah with each of us especially the square was so weirdly episodic between right terry terry notary coming out and pretending to be a gorilla with the arm <laughs> extensions and this stuff is this stuff is wild, man. Like she's gonna let it go. Yeah, I mean that's like the the image that everybody sees, you know, from like the poster. It's like Terry Notary is like, is this like a martial arts movie or something? And it's like, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, it's like a bare chested guy and he's like, you know, surrounded by these fancy dinner tables mm. and like, yeah. And I mean that re- really is the scene that like, uh, kind of makes you confront. <laughs> 
you know your comfort you know, in yeah. that scene like you know you, do you feel uh kind of vicariously like uncomfortable along with these rich people or are you like root actively rooting for this guy to create anarchy and mayhem you know no. <laughs> yeah. well uh, are you watching the curse right now by by zigzag uh, by merit of a zigzag man so um I watched the first episode and I was just like completely unnerved by it. And yeah. I haven't been able to get through the second one <laughs> because of, I mean, I'm not unnerved by it. And I was just curious, like the, the speaking of making yourself uncomfortable, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are intersecting with that for the first, it's almost like they're discovering this style of cringe comedy for the first time, which is really bizarre. Yeah. But if you come, if you come out of the safety brothers, um, you know, and, and Nathan Fielder at the same time, you know, and cross them by two, you know, they, you cross pollinate them and, and you get this product mm -hmm. that has so much stuff that's designed to unnerve you, like you say. Right. And you know, I, I, I do find that as the story goes on, the curse is becoming more is becoming richer and deeper. The episodes are mm. more they're denser packed as they go along. Oh shit! Um, okay. But it's yeah, it's like that's another thing too where. It's funny to see some people, it's like every time something is designed to unnerve you, it's like a whole new generation of people come in contact with that style of movie making for the first time. It's like, where have they been? Right. <laughs> Very weird. I mean, it, it's also just like how people tip their hand online about like loving movies and stuff. It's just, you can tell when somebody's like, okay, you're you're nowhere near like, I mean, you know, this is the, the snob in us basically. We're like, we, we've plummeted the depths. And like mm -hmm. you barely scratched the surface, you can tell when somebody's posting about shit, and it's like, you know, it's that that old joke with from Letterbox or whatever that you know the guy had only seen one movie. What is it, Boss yeah. Baby? So it's like <laughs> this is giving Boss Baby vibes, you know. Yeah. So every movie is like this is giving Boss Baby vibes because that's the only movie that's he's true. seen, you know. Uh, but yeah. yeah, it's like you you get that, and I think that that works the same way for for cringe stuff. It's like, well, yeah, they they just haven't been exposed to it. It's just, mm -hmm. it's it's there, but we know that because you and I are like we, well, we were on top of that, or like, for for your podcast, like you know, you're keeping track of what's going on. So yeah, but yeah, I the funny thing with me when I was watching Nathan for you was I never I never really was uncomfortable watching it. I just found it funny. Like, <laughs> it yeah. never... I only really started to feel this kind of discomfort with Nathan Fielder with the rehearsal. And then now, like, I think it's amplified, especially with the Safdie collaboration, you know, because yeah. th that's their specialty. Like, every movie they make, it, it makes you uncomfortable, you know? You can't... Yeah, yeah. This, this is a good hybridization. I think this is... I mean, I think the Safdies didn't need any help. And of course, this is... Just, we're just talking about Benny. Josh isn't involved with this. It's Benny alone doing the, doing the lifting. But Benny and Fielder crossing each other, I think, brings Fielder's storytelling sense. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it develops in a way that I did not see with Nathan for you and with the rehearsal. Right. I, I, I appreciate his performance. Yeah. And the idea of this and the execution is just stronger than anything I've seen from him before. For sure. Yeah. And not a winter show. <laughs> uh no that's true not a winter show no <laughs> just say <laughs> to get no. back on top yeah, no. <laughs> now i love these little digressions that we take bill it's, yeah. it's great and i'm sure our, right. our listeners appreciate it too I'll, I'll give you another uh another snow movie you're not going to see coming all right ice station zebra 1960 you know okay all right so ice station zebra was one of those um action first of all not a single bit of it is shot in any snow at all <laughs> Contradicting what I said about using right. the snow, it's all done on a back lot in mm -hmm. Burbank, probably, or 
uh, somewhere you know, somewhere behind Bronson Canyon, maybe for all yeah, you know. Right. But it is it is a Rock Hudson movie. Ernie Borgnine's in it. Patrick McGowan, Jim Brown. Um, you know, it's just cl- classic meat and potatoes type yeah. late '60s storytelling. You know, man on a mission type stuff. Oh, I love Cold that. War, yeah, Cold War suffused. But the thing is, it's based on. A novel by this guy who's almost been completely forgotten, except by action freaks who love to read uh, wonky tales. This guy named Alistair McLean. Oh, yeah. I know this guy. (laughs) You do know him? Yeah, yeah. He's a franchise. And it's like Alistair Alistair McLean movies were adapted at a good pace for about 25 years. Mm. And they're all by different directors, each a piece. However, I think almost each of the adaptations are bangers for different Mm. reasons. And it's amazing that the source material... Could be adapted by so many different directors to create so many different feelings. And Ice Station Zebra, you know, I, I think it's got the reputation as just being like one of those dad movies that played on Sunday at 2 p.m. on yeah. like cable TV. Sure. Um, however, you know, I just really love stuff like this. Men on a Mission. With these these are exactly kind of red meat late 60s yeah. actors who were just ready to ready to go. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's a, the perfect red meat director in John Sturges, too. I yes. mean, <laughs> he's that guy, meat and potatoes for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Awesome. All right. So, um, yeah. So is where is it set, though? Even though it's like snowy, is it in the um, Antarctic or... No, it's like in the Arctic Circle because they're 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 intercepting a Russian spy and they're trying to pick him up with a with a Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. It says here in the summary it's a North Pole. Yeah, right. Oh, exactly. wow, on and the, it's a Super Panavision 70? Uh, I'm like Cinerama? Damn. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Add that to the mix too. Damn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this yeah, this is ripe for when they do. I mean, kind of, I feel like it's going to be inevitable. Another digression, but I feel like they're, they're definitely going to reopen the Cinerama Dome again, even though the arc yeah. light is dead. Uh, mm-hmm. But Cinerama Dome, I think, is still it's still going to have like a life uh, beyond arc light, um, yeah. and that would be great if they just did like all the seventy millimeter movies, just like old ones, and maybe even some of the more recent new ones. Because yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine Oppenheimer would have been incredible to see at the dome, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, if they the did dome, this, the I'm dome there. is the that's the Eiffel Tower of Los Angeles. That is the <laughs> landmark that you think of when you think of Los Angeles and Hollywood. Yeah, I think for us, for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I would agree. Yeah, it it really is. There was just something about it. It was like to me because I I saw Killers of the Flower Moon at uh, Man's uh, Chinese for the first time. I'd never been to the Man Chinese. Okay. Um, yeah. And that kind of also has a reverence the same way. Um, actually, you know, I heard they fucked up uh, the the renovation of um speaking of netflix they renovated the the egyptian and it's terrible now like they got uh, rid of the balcony <laughs> like okay. that was the best part <laughs> of the theater was the balcony i've and, never been to the egyptian I oh missed dude That's you missed problem. out yeah. like those were yeah. glory days man <laughs> it was so good and yeah netflix fucked it up they like turned it into a screening room basically yeah. <laughs> you know it's like a oh, man but anyway um yeah, the dome will live on in some form, and I do hope they they bring back um, Ice Station Zebra uh, mm-hmm. as one of them, and I'll be there, man. Or like, uh, what is it, Krakatoa, east of Java, or whatever? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think yeah, I think yeah, yeah. And it, sure, that, yeah. that's always the joke, right? That it's it's wrong because uh, Krakatoa is actually west of Java. <laughs> yeah, but they just fucked it up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I, I guess uh, for my my first winter pick, I'm actually it's more of an honorable mention because it's not a movie, but I gotta shout out like not only I think one of the greatest winter shows, but it, I I I would even just go out to say after the, a rewatch of the first season that I had lately, it's it's one of the greatest TV shows of all time, 
And yeah. I'm talking about Joe Para talks with you. Ah, oh, you were just uh, raving about this on Twitter. The other yeah. Day. Uh, oh, yeah. so you knew it was me. <laughs> it was the movie food. Uh, Twitter. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah I tipped my hand. Sure. <laughs> For sure. That's yeah, I, I think bit. I think people can tell when it's Steve and when it's me posting. Like, there's just I, the way I, I know the zebras too. I I can tell whether it's Scott or or Marcus posting mm-hmm. on the zebras uh twitter you know it's like we're just so distinct <laughs> it's like yeah. you, you you can nail us down if you just know us a little bit you know but Although, however a bigfoot peeing in a man's mouth could be either one of <laughs> it could be yeah yeah i mean yeah. you know uh i i do tend to have like um you know i lean towards the esoteric so <laughs> mm-hmm. that's sure, definitely yeah. part of it but yeah, Bill, have you seen Joe Para talks with you? Are you a fan? I've uh, seen Joe. I've uh, seen Joe Para on a few talk shows. Okay, and um, I'm put off by Joe Para's sleepy Midwesternness. The whole thing about gotcha. him. I kind of don't know um, if he's Andy Kaufmaning us a little bit. Where he's? I playing think he is. This, I think he is. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. The slow, the slow motion doofus. Yeah. And um, for some reason, my patience for that ran thin. <laughs> gotcha. Just because I can't stand how. Um, how in character he is, and he's just playing this 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 real shucks, uh deep voiced, slow talking guy. Right. That it just it's like I don't quite know what the where the joke is in all this, and it's like <laughs> it's not really a joke thing; it's a charm thing. But I don't find that thing charming. I, I find mm-hmm. it more off putting because I can't tell if he is, you know, if he's making fun of people, if he's if he's glomming onto this, if he's essentially getting into a kayfabe fight with Jerry Lawler on David Letterman. I just don't know where this sort of ends. For sure. All. Oh, I guess. So let me ask you: Are uh, how do you feel about Tim and Eric? Tim and Eric, um, I you know that their products that they've done. I think the movies that Eric Wareheim has directed, I've liked them better than the Tim and Eric show. What has he like, directed? Uh, I don't uh, even know. Wait. He was a movie maker. Uh, he made a bunch of music videos, at least. Oh, okay. Um, Did he direct the, their billion dollar movie? Yeah, I think yeah. he directed the billion. And the, the billion dollar movie is hilarious. That's yeah, that's another bargain pickup. Actually, you know what? I picked up that and a uh, force majeure the same day for three ninety. That's awesome. uh, two ninety nine. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the same bargain. Uh, bin. <laughs> and I, you know, the Tim 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 uh, is doing this thing now where he is fucking with the bill maher by kind of like oh spoofing. i love that shit Ugh, did he have like uh who was it fred armison uh, on yeah. his show and it was incredible yeah but the, the court the courtroom show that he did where he did that thing on adult swim where it was like Tim yeah. and Eric. he was he was on court and it was like so dry and real. yeah and that was great. like really deep into lore because it was like yeah. a spinoff from his uh his movie review show right where they they just give five bags <laughs> of popcorn to everything and two sodas. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm gonna rate it uh, five bags of popcorn. Uh, <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's definitely like a certain wavelength you have to tune into. And the reason why I ask you that because I I just wonder if like, I, and this is not an original thought for me. It's like a, a random YouTube comment I read <laughs> on a Joe Para video where it was basically saying that it was like he is kind of the the reaction to that that Tim and Eric style of like right. you know where it's not as in your face but then there is that as you bring up that question of like is he being disingenuous is he sincere yeah you know and to me it doesn't matter <laughs> it's just like yeah, it, sure, yeah, it could sure. be Andy Kaufman because I, I yeah I'm also a fan of Andy Kaufman but it took me a while to appreciate it because I realized that there's certain levels of humor now, like as I grow older, where I was like, I don't get it. Like what, you know, I don't get it. Podcast with 
yeah. Noah and Bill, but <laughs> we're, we're hyping <laughs> up your podcast. But yeah, it's like uh, there were certain types of comedy, and I'm curious now. Actually, I have I've never watched. I, well, I tried watching Mighty Boosh before, and I was just like that went over my head. I was like, what's interesting? So, yeah, yeah. What's so funny about this? I don't get it. But well, Mighty Boosh. I you know I really like Boosh. I got into it when it came out, mm. and um, it was one clip in particular from one episode was the gateway. It, mm. uh, there's this there's this this sort of blue painted guy. He's a Victorian uh, villain who's almost like a character out of Dickens' novel, except he's he's got over one single eye. There's a, 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 a what they call a polo mint. Yeah, it's a it's a breath mint taped over one eye. His name is the <laughs> his name is the Hitcher, and it's no Noel Fielding does such a great great oh, menacing man. accent, a, a Cockney accent, <laughs> and he's this character from Out of Time, and he he sings this song. Mm-hmm. called eels and everybody i i swear to christ go on youtube and look for eels mighty boosh and it's one of the it's my ringtone it's oh, been my ringtone shit. since 2008 and that's all i needed to get in and the boosh won me over with that one yeah episode. sometimes it's just that because I, I i think that was the same way for me with mr show where i was just yes. like yeah yes. yeah it was just like there was one like skit where i was like uh i think it was the the episode of like uh, peanut butter and dice episode or whatever, <laughs> like all yes. the mother father stuff. I was just like howling, and then the yeah. the taint skit. Oh my god, oh, this guy's got a, taint. He's got a seven inch. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're already laughing at. But so these are the days, the party days, people. <laughs> the um. Who's that? Uh, the Von Hammersley guy is <laughs> like giving yeah. you hi- history lessons while teaching you. Uh, a snooker or <laughs> yeah. pool? Oh my god! Yeah, that shit just like you know. But it took yeah. a while, and I think this is my theory, Bill. And you know, it's like you get it because the thing is, I I do believe, and this is not me kind of like exalting it or putting it on a pedestal, but I do believe like th- this kind of comedy, whatever you want to call it, it does require some you know intellectual capacity and like some imagination to like connect the dots because it's yeah. not. It's almost like the same way like a lot of, um, I think, jokes on Twitter don't go over well because it's just, yeah. you know, people can't think figuratively. You know, they can't. No, I get into this all the time. I yeah. fucking blow, I blow shit on Twitter and I got to wind up apologizing to people because <laughs> why? No, I'll tell you why. Why are you apologizing? Uh, th- because you know what? You can't do italics. And so I just hmm. have not. Re- it took me years to realize right. That so much of what I do is sort of dead face, poe faced. Um, sure, you're uh, good at that. I, yeah, I know, mm-hmm. but it's like my. I, I find sometimes that people believe what I say way too often, and I can't fault them for that if they don't know me in person. Mm. And so, without being able to do italicized type, it sounds sometimes like I'm coming at them sideways, and I, I I'm inclined to explain myself and to mm. walk something back to strangers. Simply because I don't want them to think that somebody said something untoward about their day. That's all. Oh, yeah, that's awful, man. See, I'm glad I'm, I I dropped out of that completely. And, you know, e- even if I do post something offensive, I'm not going to be around to see the, the fallout. So well, uh, Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't apologize. I just walk away and then I move on with my day. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, the perfect thing you say about Joe Para, I think, um, is a great illustration. How you described it hmm. is that, you know, maybe it, it does take some more brain power, uh, hmm. you know, when your engine needs some more horsepower. But I think it also requires an ability. Things like that require that some members of the audience drop some things and focus on other things. And that's where I get caught up on stuff that I either think is not funny or is hilarious. Mm. Is if I'm able to disregard 
some of these things. Like whatever the Joe Para guard is that I have up, mm. it keeps me from letting it get inside, and I I, I get stuck so stuck on the aesthetics that I can't right just sort of soak in what everybody finds interesting about it. I no, have that problem. No, that's fine. I mean, that's almost the same way about like our our hangups with animation styles. You know, that's just like something mm-hmm. that we have to reckon with, and maybe. One day is just like you you randomly put it on and it's like it, it all clicks for you you know I mean yeah, that's the beauty of it right, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah with Joe Para too I mean this is the one thing I'll give to you Bill is that um, he is one level of that show but you know Marty Shushbo who's a he I think he directed almost every episode of the show um, mm-hmm. he brings like his own aesthetic to the show which is incredible because I mean. Just to create something where it's like all subtle tension is amazing, and then also it feels like uh, you know the episode the episodes are like categorical. It's like oh Joe Para talks you to sleep, or Joe Para talks uh, teaches shows you how to dance, you know, which is yeah. a, a masterpiece of an episode. By the way, that was the one I was like kind of praising on on Twitter because I was just like they captured all the nuances of a of a wedding reception in 11 minutes, you know, cause that's the beauty yeah. of the episodes too. They're all 11 minutes long other than the, the, the season finale, which is usually like half an hour, <laughs> which is still like very short. Um, but yeah, it's just like what he's able to communicate throughout. Uh, yeah. That, that short span of time. And it feels like they're taking their time doing it. Like just how they're able to slow rhythms down within an 11 minute span is incredible. And, yeah. you know, they get a lot across. But what I would say is that Joe Le- uh, Joe Perra is just one level. I, I just called him Joe Level. But <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's just one level of the show. So there's yeah. other, like, th- you know, you talk about the every man that Alex pa- Sander Payne cast. Like, the the every people in the show are what make the show great to me. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I do understand that. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he really, it, it feels like he's very local to Marquette. You know, in Michigan, like that's really where it's set, and like the people feel like locals there. Even like his his best friend, um, oh my god, I'm blanking on his name, uh, but yeah, he he's like a an older retired like black man, and you know he he pops up every now and then, and also the way they tie in the narrative because it's so oblique, but there is this progression throughout the season. Uh, that you kind of see like in the first season it's actually all about how he kind of gets involved with Joe Firestone who's also an incredible talent by the way and she yeah she's great she's yeah great. she wrote that episode of um uh, shows you how to dance and mm-hmm. she captured all the nuances in that episode uh and then the other kind of x factor there's like an anarchic element in the show uh with Connor O'Malley who I'm sure you're I very hate, familiar. Oh, you hate him? He's magic. That guy's no, he's magic. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, magic. yeah. He's incredible, and he's he's co-written some of the episodes as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, he. I think he's been a long-term collaborator of Joe Perra because he. Um, they have their own like webisodes called um How to Make It in America, and it's yeah. like basically Joe Perra still being Joe Perra, and then Connor O'Malley's like the skeezy like agent who's like, you know, Joe, you gotta like expand your shtick, you know. It's like, it's like, it's like and he, he did that for Tim Robinson too. You know, he really is great at that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think they're of the same ilk. They bring this kind of chaos with them. Uh, and Michigan too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Michigan boys. Uh, so yeah, it, it it really adds like that spice. So like, I don't believe the sh- anybody who tells me that Joe Para talks with you is like. Uh, or talks to you is uh, oh with you yeah that's a very important distinction by the way with not mm-hmm. to yeah. um yeah. It is a monotonous show they're not really watching it because yeah. you have all these characters in the show that basically 
stand as a contrast to Joe and his like sleepy style. Like the the Conor O'Malley stuff, like I I initially I didn't get it. Um, even though I do find him funny, like his cameo in um, what the fuck uh, that what was that show with uh, Ilana Glazer and um, Abby Broad Bro- uh, Bro- City. City. Yeah, did you see that episode, the the Saint Mark's episode? Yeah, I saw them all. Oh sure. yeah, yeah. I mean, his cameo appearance with his wife um in real life and plays his wife in the show too. Where they mm-hmm. they're in that like Japanese restaurant on Saint Mark's where it's like a super long wait. And it's still yeah. like that. Like, you go there. I, I went there randomly in January, and it was like, man, people are still waiting for this fucking restaurant that's overrated, probably. <laughs> you know? Um, it, you know, they have a rule that you can only vandalize the bathroom if you vandalize it in Japanese. That's <laughs> awesome. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the, the whole thing of, like, them putting the tables together, the beep, beep, <laughs> the, making the, the sound. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so annoying, and then, and then these his whole like performance art, like him describing it, <laughs> of like jerking off onto the American flag and saying, "Father, <laughs> uncle, no, it's uncle." Yeah, he's saying, "Uncle, Uncle Sam." This <laughs> is brilliant. Anyway, yeah, Conor O'Malley's brilliant. What a talent! And yeah, he he brings that anarchic mix to the show, which is very much appreciated. And also, special shout out. To the kid actor who plays his youngest kid, she is a natural talent, man. Like, she's just improvising. They're, they just let her riff, you know? And she's just so good. I don't know how old she was when they, they shot the show, but, yeah, like, it's brilliant. Because you can just tell she's not following a script. She's like, I'm going to say whatever I want, you know? <laughs> but it's a brilliant kid performance. And, you know, I'm, I'm very cr- – the way you're critical about accents, I'm very critical yeah. about kid performances, so to me, that is like top tier kid performance. Uh, the one who, mm-hmm. uh, the kid who plays Kelsey in the show, one of Conor O'Malley's kids. Uh, but yeah, I I love that it's also like comedy of manners. There's a lot of like misunderstandings that happen in the show that I enjoy. You know, um, but yeah, uh, you know, whenever in due time, Bill, if you ever feel like it, I would say just put on an episode. But don't, I don't think actually the first episode of the show is the best place to start. Go midstream uh, sometime. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just pick something randomly. I mean, you know, you can get back into the narrative later on. I would say, though, yeah, because there's a huge event that happens at the end of season two. So don't skip forward to season three. So maybe, yeah, just pick something random in one or two. Um, uh, I mean, I also want to highlight one more episode. This was the very first episode I ever saw that my friend sent me. And it's, um, I think it's like Joe Para reads you the church announcements. Mm-hmm. And it's the one where basically he um, he goes up to in front of the church after the mass, and then he basically says um, uh, he starts reading the announcements. But then he says, "Guys, have you ever heard the song Baba O'Reilly by the Who?" <laughs> I, yeah, I think I saw. I think I saw this somehow. Yeah, 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 it's brilliant, and just like how like he goes just wild in his house listening to Baba mm-hmm. O'Reilly, and like continuously like requesting it in different radio stations to listen to it instead of like putting it on spotify like a normal person would do it's just like just the, yeah it, it's so palpable you know and like i it's like me when i first heard like fearless by um by pink floyd which is a much slower song but like i i also went nuts you know i bounced off the walls listening to fearless uh, but yeah, that's my my special winter shout out uh, show is uh, is Joe Para talks with you. So yeah. yeah, all right. So what you got next, Bill? This movie was 
Did not know what I was getting into. It's the only movie I've ever seen by Nuri Bilgi Ceylon. Ooh, okay. Uh, yeah, this came out in 2014. It's called Winter's Sleep. Oh, and wow. Okay, that's the one. I, yeah, I, I really have not seen a shitload of Turkish movies, period. Mm-hmm. And they said this is the only one by Ceylon I've seen. Yeah. However, I don't know if I've ever felt colder physically <laughs> sure. watching a movie. Like, in terms of whatever fucking place in Anatolia, this, this sort of carved into the earth hotel... That people travel in the middle of nowhere to visit because it's it, it's it's quite literally this rugged landscape unlike any other. It's absolutely unforgiving. It's yeah. foreboding, but it's such a you know a strange dreamy story that takes place on a planet you know a place on planet Earth that I don't think I'll ever be in. I did not know existed before I watched mm. this. But again, you're in you're in the grasp of a master while you're watching this, and and, and you know what is it, three and a half hours or so? Yeah, it's really long. I actually saw that at MoMA. Yeah, in the theater. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think you would dig his 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 work overall, especially because, uh, I don't know how you feel about um, Christian Petzold. Is that a filmmaker you're familiar with? I German. Love that guy. Yeah, his stuff is all great. Banger, 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 banger. Oh so, uh, yeah, yeah, you're. You, didn't you do something about the Berlin School? I remember, like you talked about it or wrote something about them. Uh, no, I don't think so. But really, uh, were, no, were but you I, like I, um, championing Angela? What's her last name? Forest for the Tree. Oh no, no, that's Marion Ade. Oh, Marin Marin Ade. Yeah, yeah, I do yeah. like her. Yes, no, big fan. Oh, okay, too, yeah, but. I I just remember you writing about it. So I was like, oh yeah, because uh, I think Petzold is like a good point of comparison, especially mm-hmm. with the more crime stuff that uh he does that leans more towards that like you know three monkey oh no not three monkeys it's like three is it three monkeys oh yeah it is three monkeys and um a mis- i was just thinking uh, 12 monkeys <laughs> um <laughs> yeah uh so three monkeys and then uh oh man i what i consider to be his masterpiece uh once upon a time in anatolia like that one is wow. I, the tra- the trailer looked amazing, and I was about I was gonna bite on it that year, mm-hmm. but for some reason I let it go. I just it got out of my hands. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. it it's it's I think on par with Petzold, but also kind of reminding me of Matteo Garone a little bit, like uh, Gamora. Yeah. Like yeah. it also has that feel to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, he, he uh, it's weird. I kind of I guess take him for granted sometimes because he's just like such a festival staple. And like it's yeah. like okay, there's a new Bilge movie. Well, yeah, it's uh, like Aki, Aki Kurismaki. There's some guys you just get sort of uh, fatigued oh, because they nah. show, they show up in the same place. You know. <laughs> no, well, I disagree with that, Bill. I mean, Kurismaki's my boy, so you know. No, I'm saying, I, yeah, yeah. But the fact the fact is that he shows up on a clockwork, and he that's like you can kind of just sort of take on face value that all right, everybody loves this guy. It's the yeah. same thing. How many times is he going to make the same movie? But it's like, yeah, no, he's great. That's right. the thing. It, yeah, it, exactly. Kind of like it's a, the scent, con- scent blindness. Yeah, it's the consistency. While. And it's like, yeah, if if you're on that wavelength, like, yeah, it's like catnip every time they make something. Because, you, you know, it's that idea of, like, you only make one movie. You just, like, kind of break it into smaller pieces. And that's your filmography. Yeah, they're, mm-hmm. they're those type of guys. It's like, oh, okay, we're just getting, like, another taste of, you know, uh, another morsel of of what you're trying to do like this larger project of whatever it will be until you the day you pass you know so yeah. um yeah i i think i i i also because he's also a filmmaker i kind of grew up with with my phases of cinephilia of like i think when he was emerging that was also when i was uh like peak like film snob so <laughs> that definitely played a factor in it too and i was like yeah what the fuck is like distant and 
climates like those were the movies that were coming out at that time and i was like yeah uh, yeah so i think he, he's due for and then again like also being a little older i think uh, i'll have there'll be more nuances i'll pick up on that i didn't before with him yeah. but yeah good choice bill uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. yeah. I, I actually thought you were gonna pick climates when you first mentioned him. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Actually, win- winter sleep, right? That's the title. Yeah, this is just yeah. by happenstance. This mm. is the one of his I happen to see. It was a winter movie, and mm. you know, just left a really good impression, as I hope it would. Nice. All right. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to hear what you think of um. That definitely email me once upon, your once upon a time in Anatolia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really can't wait to hear what you think of that one. Um, yeah, and read your letterbox review. And what are of you course, in letterbox? Yeah. What is your um, handle? Williams. It's William Scurry. I think it's just the same as everyone else. Yeah. Gotcha. Easy to, to find out. Um, okay. So speaking of kind of favorites, uh, this is going to be a weird one. I have a double double entry, uh, <laughs> double penetration. Cohen Brothers double feature. I mean, you know, classic uh, with yes. the filmmakers. It and, had. It had to. It had yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. I have to do this because also it's a movie I hadn't seen in a while. I had it on it was one of the very first VHS tapes I ever owned and I fucking like wore that tape down like when you you watch the opening of that movie it's got the tracking thing like going crazy because like that because I just played the shit out of this tape actually I think I remember I broke it and then I had to put tape on it to like fix it again so there was a part I had to skip at the beginning but you know it's the opening credits it's like you know it's a mood setter but it's like you know what I'm talking about it's Fargo yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I had to had, go back. Had to be. Yeah. And you know, it's the quintessential winter movie and I just love this kind of element that uh, I know with the backstory cuz uh before I even saw the movie, like, my mom wouldn't let me see it obviously because of the the violence and uh yeah, some of the sex in it too. Uh but uh so I read the screenplay and uh I used to collect like the the Faber and Faber screenplays. Mm-hmm. And they're beautiful because they all had, like, a, a uniformity to them. Like, basically, the title of the movie would always be, like, in a clapperboard. And then um, uh, the spines would all be black. But the yeah. Fargo one stood out because it was white. Like, the the entire cover was completely white. It was actually just, yeah, that image of, of Francis McDormand, you know, kneeling down in the snow with the dead body. And then it's just completely white, the, the entire cover. And I was like, this is a triumph of design. Like, so you mean to tell me you read the script before you saw the movie? Yes, I did. Wow, okay. Yeah, so All I right. have to imagine everything. And also, you know, the Coens are so specific about the dialogue. I didn't realize it until, like, reading it that, like, even um, William H. Macy's pronunciation of words are spelled out. Like, you know, when he says, Blee me, <laughs> it's actually spelled, like, B-L-E-E-M-E-E. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, he actually says that, Blee me. Like, uh-huh. So, you know, and Macy, like, as, as uh, PTA said in his legendary Boogie Nights commentary, like, you give Bill Macy, like, how it's written, he's going to read it as written. You know, so yeah, he, he came up, he came up through Mammoth. He's a Chicago. Yeah, guy. exactly. And so that and he's saying this commentary, by the way, in, in that scene in, in Boogie Nights where he he says, uh, what, Kirk? <laughs> My wife has a fucking ass in her cock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, the best line of the whole movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he has all the great moments in the movie. I think. I mean, you know, because also, yeah, he knew. I mean, PTA knew that it was like that. That's where the movie really crosses over in the New Year's Eve scene. For uh, yeah, we don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it. Yeah, Boogie Nights is a movie. revelation. You know, if you've never seen it, you're going to be in for a nice ride. But yeah, going back to Fargo, 
Like, uh, yeah, I just watched the shit out of it. Like, you know, I memorized all the dialogue. Actually, initially, you know, for my opening dialogue thing, I, I initially had the the Grimsrud, like, uh, Carl oh, Showalter yeah. exchange w- of, like... W- Want to go to Pancake's house? Yeah. <laughs> we had pancakes yesterday <laughs> you know um but now we'll get some steaks we'll get yeah laid. yeah get a shot and in, in a beer you know maybe <laughs> um no but the one i was like um uh you know that's a geyser man <laughs> whoa baby stand back <laughs> like that was the quote i initially was starting but it's so long <laughs> it's like yeah. just complete silence you know total no, fucking silence total too complete fu- this game <laughs> You ever been to the Twin Cities? <laughs> <So, laughs> like, yeah, th- that story too of Buscemi. Like he was saying, like they they were like, uh, yeah, we want to cast you as a weird guy. And then he was telling them, like, do you want? So do you want me to change my look? Should I like grow a mustache? And then the Combras just like were like giggling like little girls because they're like, no, you already look weird, dude. Like, <laughs> that's, yeah. and that's the thing. He's a funny looking guy, you know, <laughs> in a funny looking sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> I know, just funny looking. <laughs> yeah, the other like really great dialogue bit that I love is the 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 man who's like wearing the hoodie and then the I mean you know he has this hood that's basically obscuring most of his face and he's got the shovel and then the the deputy comes to see him and is like I'm going crazy there down by the lake, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Where can a guy get some action down here? And I don't mean <laughs> I want moment action. I mean. <laughs> And then, yeah, my favorite bit in that whole exchange is when that guy says, well, that doesn't sound like a good deal for him, eh? Yes. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's, what's amazing about this movie is that it was so loud and it won the Oscars right. and everything like that. And, um, at, you know, even then, I feel like their filmmaking wasn't touched by the machine. Even right. though they were, they were very... Uh, th- the prestige of being top line filmmakers had visited them. Mm. However, they still turned out very um, uh, idiosyncratic films after that. And yeah. I feel like it's not not until old, uh, No Country for Old Men that their their style kind of changes, their formality changes into something that it resembles today. And I, I have to imagine that's a little bit why they they haven't worked together uh, for the last movie yeah. or so a piece. Um, but you know, like you still got uh, Intolerable Cruelty. You still got. Lady Killers, you still got, um, you true know, grit. Lebowski. Yeah, True Grit. Yeah. After after that, oh, that like yeah. they, they they still did, they did not turn into the kind of filmmaker that other Oscar winning filmmakers turn into. They right. resisted. Yeah, the siren they held call. out for as long as they could. I mean, the, I think so. Yeah, even though like I felt like uh, yeah, there was a bit of a downward trajectory with um with the Lady Killers and um. Uh, I'm the only person who likes that movie. I swear <laughs> to God, it's weird. I, I love yeah. the cat. The cat is great. And but yeah, this is coming up in my my second part of my double feature. Uh, but yeah, like it's true, Bill. Like the, they they definitely resisted for a long time, and then yeah, actually, I would even argue that the last like Cohen Cohen Brothers movie really was um um Burn After Reading. And then, yeah, because yeah, yeah. Burn After Reading came after uh, No Country for Old Men, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but that's true. And I, I love that. I know how many times I watched that movie. Well, I'll be fucked if I know what we did. <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks it's a Schwinn. <laughs> he thinks it's a Schwinn. I'm not going to I'm not going to drink that fucking Maryland swamp water. <laughs> Oh, that's another one that's due for a rewatch, man. Oh shit, yeah. And people it's were saying really that, good. yeah, Brad Pitt. We didn't need the Ryan Gosling Ken because Brad Pitt was that Ken, 
you know, he thinks to like, Schwinn. Yeah, there's there's some fucking there's there's some yeah, crazy shit between mm-hmm. Malkovich. Yeah, it just goes wild. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, and how many winter movies have the um Criterion the Coens made? Like, really, I really feel distinctively. I mean, you could say Miller's Crossing. No, Miller's Crossing is more a fall nah. movie. Yeah, it's a fall movie, right? Falling um, leaves, but no. Yeah, not yeah. So the only other one to me, and I think. Oh, man, I I would say after this recent viewing, it's my favorite Coen Brothers movie. And that's uh, Inside Lewin Davis, which also has an amazing ginger cat in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, Inside Lewin Davis is not my favorite. I enjoy it quite a bit. I just feel like, um, like an actor like Carrie Mulligan is so... She's so specific and so technical, especially when she's, when she's playing off of... Um, I mean, she elevates every scene that she's in right. generally because she almost takes a movie to a different place. But sometimes I don't think she fit into the tapestry of Lewin Davis. And as much as I like Oscar Isaac, I, I love Oscar Isaac. And I just sort of feel like his form of ironic centerpiece might not have suit. Like, I keep thinking, what would it have been like with a different actor mm. as Lewin Davis? Like, when they get to the studio and they're doing Please, Mr. Kennedy. Yeah. I'm like, this is the movie I want to see. It's just like, this is what's clear to me that I can picture a different actor sitting next to Timberlake and Driver at mm. that sing-along. And, I mean, the rest of the movie's great. I love F. Marie Abraham. Like, there's so many. And John Goodman is also great. Oh, and yeah, just like, that whole car ride is incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. I just sort of wonder, again, there's like a piece off kilter uh, that I, I can't fault them for wanting to work with Oscar Isaac. Mm. And Oscar Isaac, who, again, I love, but I feel like Oscar Isaac got a lot of big gigs really quickly at the beginning of his career yeah and i think he jumped i think he jumped he jumped the line a little bit um being in things like a most dangerous like, i love most violent year but i just mm. don't think he was the right actor for it okay um you know it's like that lewin davis was one of those things right he took i don't think he took another actor's job but it's like huh maybe if they'd stuck out a little bit and they deliberated and didn't hire the the hottest guy who was working that two or three year span <laughs> the, the movie might have been something a little different yeah too. I, okay, well, let me ask you then, Bill. What is a role that was suited for for Oscar Isaac? Like you say, like oh, he belongs in that role. Like, well... uh, I really liked him in Triple Frontier, that Netflix. Oh movie shit, that I haven't watched. seen that, but I've heard good oh. things. <laughs> oh man, you know, Triple Frontier was uh, J.C. Shandor. Yeah, he also made Most Violent Year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. Most Violent Year was a great movie. I mean, it's like, uh, it, like that. Don't get me wrong; that is a great movie, and he's great in it. I just think that it, somebody else would have given a different energy to it. He's gotcha. sometimes he plays out. He plays outside of his age range a little bit, and um, like I, I really liked him as the X-wing fighter pilot. I thought he oh, was yeah. the right oh, cast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, I mean, even though those movies did not serve him well, <laughs> I thought that's exactly the <laughs> nah, kind of he, movie. That's the easygoing charm. It he served has. him well financially, Bill. <laughs> he cashed yeah. that Disney paycheck. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I agree to disagree. I I think he's perfect in this role. I, re- I, I I'm, I'm in a minority. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I just feel like um, it's just I was impressed. Like, I mean, the first time I saw this in the theater, I, I kind of was nonplussed for it. I felt like it was a movie that was in search of an ending. You know, like after that whole sequence where he thinks about like making that detour to ache. Akron in Ohio yeah. because of, of you know he realized that one of his ex-girlfriends ended up you know carrying the baby to term um and he was thinking about visiting uh funny enough that's a consistent theme with the s- chilly scenes of winter <laughs> which we'll talk about soon um yeah. but yeah it's like uh I thought that should have been the natural end point of the movie I was yeah. just like why does it keep going and like he has this 
whole they have that whole reference of yeah robert zimmerman is coming up <laughs> it's like no they don't even mention him by name but you know it's bob dylan you know and like uh the only time that we basically get the trademark cohen violence where it's like a mixture of like menacing and slapstick at the same time where he gets the shit kicked out of him in the back uh in the alleyway uh to tie into like the beginning of the the movie but it's just like i don't know like this time around it just really resonated i watched it on thanksgiving uh, it brought back all the New York memories for me. I was that asshole who slept on people's couches, you know, not as talented, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I also had like girlfriends hate me, and <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and just I, I, it really captured that feeling. I was telling that to my friend who also has since moved out of New York, where we were like, yeah, this this movie set in the '60s, but it's still like the spaces that we occupied where we yeah. weren't really like settled in the city but we made it our own somehow and i think that's really something that i'm surprised that the coens were able to do because um i feel like aside from uh fargo it's like their locations are usually like nondescript it's like some town you know some prohibition town in miller's crossing or like i guess uh um Barton Fink is specific to Hollywood. You can't move that city. You know, it's like the contrast between him moving from Broadway to to L.A. is huge. You know, it's like that. That's yeah. so much a big part of that movie. But um, the one with the, the one with Stillbark, what was it? Uh, D- D- Dangerous? No, Serious Man. Serious Man. Yeah, it's so endemic to say you need the Twin Cities for that. Uh, yeah, but dude, know. yeah, actually, that's the last Cohen Cohen Brothers movie. I, we, we, okay, we, we keep yeah. something back. Yeah, two thousand nine. Like that was really it because it was like. Yeah. That ending too is like one of the most incredible movie endings ever, uh, and, and begin the beginning in the beginning with Fiverr's Family. Oh yeah, amazing beginning. yeah. Because I was like, uh, when I saw it in the theater, that was a birthday movie for me too. I watched it on my birthday that year, and like, um, I was just like, did we walk into the wrong movie? Like, is this <laughs> is this still the Coen Brothers? It's like, what is this? You know, yeah, um, yeah and it's, it's funny. Yiddish, Yiddish folk tale. Yeah, and tying to, to Joan McLean Silver, which we'll get into, like, you know, being Jewish is, like, so integral to their films. Yeah. You know, it's, like, such a big part of it. Um, and, yeah, so even with, with this, like, you don't really get it mentioned at all. I think there's no, in um, Inside Lewin Davis, there's no explicit, like, connection to uh, being a Jew. Oh, no, fuck that. Uh, I'm completely wrong. He goes to his Upper West Side professor friend's house, and there, mm-hmm. you know, there's a there's a menorah on the bookshelf. It's like, you know, yeah. they, they're, they're very Jewish. <laughs> yeah, I I, for, I forgot about that element uh, completely. And yeah, like some of the most like uncomfortable dinner scenes in the yeah <laughs> happen in that too. But yeah, I, I think yeah, like uh, it just this movie really personally resonates with me resonates with me and mm. yeah like I, I've been debating whether to buy the the Criterion since there's the Barnes and Noble sale like and I think I might get it because it's just mm-hmm. like even um uh, this is the other thing tying back to trailers the um the trailer of that movie okay it's very un unremarkable but the other thing is like they boosted kind of the soft focus of uh who's that uh they this is one of their few movies too that they didn't work with deacons it's um yeah bruno del bonel who's like worked with like you know um harmony corinne and i think gaspar noe so yeah he's a really fucking talented cinematographer and they you know they kind of do the same thing to him that they did to deacons where they kind of sub- subdue him a little bit 
because you know Deacons was talking about that with Fargo, and he's kind of proud of it now. But he was saying like, yeah, they they tried to do as much like lockdown, like you know, um, just nothing flashy with the framing yeah. of Fargo, and you know, it's more effective for it, you know, because uh, yeah, you still remember those shots, like you know, the, especially when um, when uh, Jerry like pulls up to the the top of the 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 rooftop parking, and then he just sees yeah. Wade lying there, and then you see the um, in the foreground the uh, the trunk open and you just know what's gonna happen next you know yeah <laughs> it's just brilliant and i mean you know another underrated thing about them is their editing you know i wonder about that like is are the the solo movies still edited by roderick james <laughs> um no that's a good question yeah. i don't think so so who yeah who think, gets yeah. the editing credit now that they've split up <laughs> well there's only been one movie so far there was just um uh, the, the Shakespeare adaptation, Macbeth, only, but uh, um, Macbeth. One's already in the can. It just got delayed for um the yeah. from the strike, but it's coming out in February. Um, uh, Drive Away Dolls, or I think that's what oh, it's I haven't called. even heard of that one. Oh, okay. dude, yeah, you should see the trailer. Uh, so this is okay. Ethan's uh, solo, and he's collaborating with his wife uh, on the script, uh, Trisha Cook. Um, so yeah, uh, and I think I'm actually more into this than um than I was with Macbeth. Like, Macbeth was just, like, to me, I don't know, textbook cinema kind of thing. Yeah. Or it's like, yeah, okay, you're foolproof because you are you have this material and you have this great lead actor, uh, you know, giving this... It was shot like Fritz Long, though. I mean, it, the, the, the black and white was really stunningly done. Oh, yeah, though, for sure. Um, was that Deacons? Uh, that's a good chance it was Deacons. I can't, yeah, uh, can't yeah, confirm yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, but, um, but yeah, Delbonel, like, um, so yeah, in the trailer, they, so ignore the, the way the movie looks in the trailer, uh, mm-hmm. because, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, they, they boosted the, the focus. Or the oh, I have focus. seen this trailer. Yeah. I'm sorry, I have seen this trailer. Right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. It just right. looks terrible versus, like, watching, like, the actual copy of the movie where it's not that bad. It's just, because I was thinking that when I was planning rewatches, I was like, man, like, this, this kind of looks like crap. Like, you know, it's like, why do I want to watch, like, a Vaseline, like, lens thing? Like, you know, softcore shit, yeah. you know? It's like, uh, but, yeah, I, I really do feel um, Inside Lewin Davis. It, it, right now, uh, you know, as we speak, I think uh, it's my top Coen Brothers movie. So, that's, that's, you know, yeah. I, I give it credit. Uh, that's I would, have, I would have expected other movies that have been around longer and have mm. had their feet planted. Yeah. You know, if you would have said to me, uh, you know, like, what do their pajamas have on them? I don't know, a bunch of Yodas and shit. <laughs> then I would have uh, I would have understood you for sure. Yeah. For Just me. because, like, Raising Arizona has been around for a billion right. years. Right. And, know, I mean, you know, thing. for the longest time, what occupied the top perch for me was um, Miller's Crossing. Because to me, like, that is, like, just a mathematically perfect movie. Like, it's just constructed to a T where it's, like, everything fits and, like, you know, eh, you know everything pays off in a way where it's like, damn, they really enjoyed writing this. That's why they got writer's block, yeah. right? And wrote Barton Fink in the middle of it because they just, yeah, they laid it on with the plotting. It's I crazy. will show you the life of the mind, yeah. 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 I, you know, it's like, I wouldn't have thought of this, but it's like, I, I am coming back to like Lebowski and mm. mostly because Lebowski has an enigma of a movie I did not like when I first saw sure. it. But then to think about the effort, the Herculean effort, it's almost like the Egyptian book of the dead to sort mm-hmm. of look through it and try to pick through what these hieroglyphs mean. Yeah. And it's like the fact is that this movie came out, it was packed with so much weird stuff that we're still kind of discovering today, mm-hmm. like a Rosetta Stone. Right. I don't know how they managed to do that. And again, it's not more technically adroit than other movies, yet there's still just so many whorls and, and, and a Mandelbrot equation of detail mm-hmm. all throughout Lebowski in a movie that just sort of said, this movie, really, this knockoff of a of a Hammett 
the Hammett book or, you know, Marlowe has just done so many wonders over the course of time for so many people who like to quote it in packed bars everywhere. And I just, I'm sort of amazed at the complexity of this movie that just seems so stunningly superficial and so obvious in so many ways. But it isn't. It clearly is not. No. Yeah, it definitely is something that, like, I enjoyed when I first saw it because it was just the quirkiness of it, like, really appealed to me. Like, I I don't know why they even made, like, a Vietnam vet character like appealing, you know. It's like, yeah. I yeah. mean, the whole yeah, the whole John Goodman look. I remember like I even saw like a very detailed like action figure of uh, Walter, <laughs> and I yeah. I was so tempted to buy it, like you know, because I was like, damn, I don't, I didn't, I can't believe they even like made this. But it was like the wrong outfit. I didn't like the because it was the 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 ringer drop outfit so he was wearing the the bandana with the that doesn't work yeah no, with the good. overalls i prefer the you know the the vest with the the yeah. shades and <laughs> the, the, bowl, bowling. the bowling outfit. yeah the bowling, yeah, bowling walter outfit. yeah that's the one yeah. i where over the line smoky <laughs> like pulling out the <laughs> market zero dude <laughs> jesus man <laughs> you're out of your element donnie <laughs> shut the fuck up Shut the fuck up, Donnie. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, well, that that is the other funny thing, too, that I kind of wish they continued. It's like their version of, oh, my God, they killed Kenny. <laughs> yeah. the, the demise of C. Buscemi in every yeah. Coen Brothers movie. Every movie. movie. Yeah. yeah, even if you... What, I mean, what a sport. What a sport, though. I know, yeah. man. Like, it's just like, yeah. Oh, Buscemi's also in... Um, I think this is only, like, film collaboration with marty because you know obviously they they work together with uh boardwalk empire but uh he's in life lessons uh, yeah i think i remember yeah, that yeah. In, and he's great in it too yeah so it's just like yeah this guy man small role large role you remember him and he fucking commits like i just love yeah. that about that guy yeah he was in a movie called call me uh, which was like I want to say eighty nine or ninety, and that was it was a Manhattan film that was shot when Soho was still garbage, and it was a really taut thriller with an actress named Patrice Sherbineau, and mm. he plays one of these two hitmen, and it's really shot in diners, and, and it's oh, just it's, it's sort of it's sort of like the tail end of of Giuliani into um, Bloomberg, New York. Wow! Um, it's, it was it was shot like two years before I got to I think it was like a ninety eight or ninety nine movie, and it's not a great movie, but it is a really decent mid-level movie that has new york the way new york mm. used to look yeah it, ha- it has value as a yeah. time capsule yeah and again it's like in the, the presence of buscemi as the sort of lunch pail actor means everything oh right? yeah yeah what's the title again remind me i think it's it's called call me call me okay that's gonna be hard to i know <laughs> that that's what's that's what's terrible oh um, man but yeah that was like the the weird like you know we're or- 1988 yeah call me oh 88 1988. okay yeah. yeah i mean yeah this guy basically lived through it you know i love his um uh there was a feature i think in was it filmmaker magazine where they they put their own like rules uh mm-hmm. you know like whatever their filmmaking rules are and his one is great because it not only is he just like giving his kind of practical stuff about filmmaking but he's also praising other people's rules within that you know like he's saying like right. read jim jarmusch's rules Leave, read Vin oh, Vendor's okay. rules. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. That's part of his rules. And it's like, man, this guy's just like so gracious. And like, you know, I think also really underrated director, you know, like his filmography. I wish he would make another movie, actually, that he would direct something else. And 
And yeah. it's got to be, I mean, if, 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 you know, guys of his ilk can't get money, just, I mean, he's lucky he's acting in these things, but it's like, to direct is a completely different ballgame I mean, altogether. yeah, I mean, one of his biggest influences is Cassavetes. Why doesn't he go the Cassavetes route? That's like, you know. No, no one goes the Cassavetes what? route. That's the thing. I mean, it's just like, there there are, people like, they they pre, they, they, they love the Cassavetes route, but I feel like mm-hmm. the idea of going out on your own money just does not equal, a lot of people are not going to spend their own money and do, um, not as many, I, I believe as can mm. or would take the chance of making something on their own dime that might not get distributed or might just be looked at as a vanity project nah. i guess because if it oh man I, I i don't know it could be yeah that's awful because i you know if i was in that position i would do that shit like i would just like basically use my acting gigs to fund my own filmmaking you know uh, yeah, I mean that's you, you. You talked about uh, 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 Russ Meyer, and it's like Russ Meyer. Mm-hmm. You know that is both what's laudable at Russ Meyer, but it also created this hermeticism where people would touch his movies with a ten foot pole because they looked like they were so they were outsider artifacts of some right. art system that did was not compatible with the way the rest of the the yeah. commerce world worked. And uh, yeah, I mean we bring him up again, but like I think that's also part of why I want to do a deep vi- dive with his work because it's just like yeah. he's out of place and out of time it's yeah. just like even now like i feel like you know i i guess that was the sentiment i was getting from you know online like i guess twitter which is my only exposure to online i was just like there's there's this kind of return to like being conservative and like being anti-sex scenes and stuff anti-sex yes, yeah so yes. it was like if russ mayer were to come out today it's just like man people knives out would be like attacking him trying to cancel the movies it's like what is this perverted bullshit you know um, the closest the closest that we've gotten i can think of four directors and mm-hmm. we've already mentioned two of them i mentioned sedaris before but sedaris was making cheesecake action films right. that were like quasi exploitation but then we have you have uh the other side of the 80s was zalman king oh shit who, yeah that's hella right? sleazy shit <laughs> Hellasly, Sleazy very exploitative, but it had this this gloss of Suzanne, Jacqueline Suzanne, or or, or um, uh, Jackie Collins, like sure. there was this sort of gauzy thing that was supposed to be sexy, even though it was sleazy, it was supposed to be sexy. And then on the other end of that, mm-hmm. you had Adrian Lyne. Yeah, that's Adrian what Lyne, I'm thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Adrian Lyne was like the he was the reputable. I'm making movies for grown-ups, and that's why you have Flashdance, and that's why you have uh, <laughs> Fatal Attraction, proposal, and so on. Indecent proposal. Exactly. Did you yeah. see his last movie? Um, uh, it was fucking terrible. It was terrible. It was like illiterate. It was, it was illiterate. It was crazy. Uh, I mean, I think it's very telling that I haven't really found like a man who likes that movie. It's always like the women. It's like made for them. I feel like mm-hmm. it's it's their kind of like pot boiler. You know, a uh, woman in the window type of book that they love reading during the daytime, like if if they still read, you know. Um, you talk about dark water, right? Is it called dark water or deep water? Uh, well, right, maybe dark water was the Todd Haynes movie. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 deep, dark deep water. Yeah, yeah, it's deep water. Yeah, deep water. But it's like they're, 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 that was made. Uh, Jean Louis Trintignant and Isabelle Huppert made a version of that movie in 1980, which is actually a lot better. Oh shit! It's, really? It's French and obscure, and no one's seen it, so it's kind of lost to history. But yeah. Oh damn! Okay, I gotta find this one. It's not. It's not the greatest movie, but it it, it works better than the Adrian Lyne version. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. I mean, I don't know. I I just feel like eventually I'll get to watch it. Well, I don't have Hulu anymore, so I can't watch it at this point. Yeah, but um, fuck it. It's all right. Right. Okay. Well, going back to Winter Bill, what's your next pick? Yes. Um, I'm going to pick a movie that's an anthology film blew my doors off when I saw it mm-hmm. and I think only one of the pieces of the anthology takes place in the winter however 
it, it, it's, it, it is a movie that is, uh, stirred me sort of like few others did. And it is A Touch of Sin by... Oh, shit! I, I don't know how you pronounce his uh, name. Zhajanka. 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 Yeah. Yeah, and I, I've only seen I've seen Touch of Sin and I've seen Ashes Purest White from him. Mm. The only two movies I've and seen. And they're 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 kind of sibling films. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there, there is something spirits, and it's, yeah. again the, the the vision of China that this guy um conveys, um there's there's something like spellbinding and wrapped about watching this China does not equal the China that right. the CCP is trying to communicate to the world out of Beijing. So I don't know how this guy makes his movies, which are so based in... It's like, I, I say Scorsese is almost like the broadest calm. Mm. But it's this idea that you're getting such a uh, wide range of human expression or behavior that, that, that you know, in, in a lot of cases, it's criminality, it's venality, mm-hmm. it is di- misfortune, it's dispossession, right. it's uh, passion, it's all these things. And, you know, it's violence and it, it's like the... The true essence of China, at least the way it seems like it's the true essence of China, breaking through mm-hmm. this conformity, this this capitalist miracle that's been in place in Beijing for like the last twenty five years. Yeah, um, and it's back. It's backwards China. It's outside of Beijing. It's like this is apparently the, the again the way it feels. It's like yeah. he's showing you what people are really like outside of the the, the forbidden city, outside of the CCP. This is mm-hmm. what China has been like since the days of Confucius. And, you know, I just think it's magical. And there was just the, the scene that's set in the winter with the factory mm. is, uh, yeah, it's just it's just wild, man. I yeah, mean, I mean, even the, the I, opener, the um, kind of like the, the prologue to it, which ties in later. Yeah, I think it's also yeah. winter time as well. Um, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. I Yeah, that's another MoMA movie I saw that I was just completely blown away. Actually, it was that one. Like, I saw that one, Mountains May Depart. And Ash Spears White, so it was like I think they, they, that's their uh, chronological order too. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's how he made them, like in that sequence. And I think Bill, you would appreciate Mountains made the part as well, uh, even though. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's a magician, of course. Yeah, would, yeah, sure. yeah. It, it's not as um, uh, uncomfortable as those two movies. Like, they're actually, I, I don't even remember like a moment of violence in 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 Mountains Made the Part, which is more his default. Uh, I think, yeah, um, that's why Touch of Sin was so sensational because it was, like, unlike anything he had made before where it yeah. was like, oh, shit, like, he, he's really going there. It's just, um, uh, I mean, the irony of it, too, is that, you know, he started out as an underground filmmaker in China where, you know, because mm-hmm. basically if you want to make films in China, it has to be approved by the government. Yeah. And he became such a, like, cause celeb in um you know, uh, film festival circuit that, you know, China was like, shit, like, let's just get behind this guy. He's one of like, our star graduates of the film, the Beijing Film Academy. And, you know, they're always fine. I mean, that's China. Like, they, they want legacies, right? So it's like, they you know, they, they're so proud of their, their fifth generation, sixth generation. I think actually Zha Zhangke is part of the sixth generation because um, fifth generation is like Chen Kage and um, uh, who did judo. Oh, I just, I just watched... Um... Film like Concubine again. Oh at, shit! Uh, at at Film Forum, and I was in New York. Holy shit, man! That's fucking. I've n- I've amazing. never seen it. Actually, I I don't think I've. I've I, there's a lot of Chen Kake I haven't seen. I also want to watch a. That's one I've seen. Yeah, yeah, a Shanghai Triad. But you know how it was in the '90s, right? Like all these movies made it to America, but they were cut the shit up by um by Harvey Weinstein. You know, yeah. so it's only now that we're getting the actual versions that we were meant to be. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely he's another guy I want to visit. And um, who's the guy who made Hero and Raise the Red Lantern? Zhang Yimou. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah so Zhang, yeah, yeah. that th- th- that was a previous generation, but. Jajan Cub like represents like this kind of more rebellious like you know a lot of them shot on digital so they were really like going out there just making movies because that's really what set a lot of these these filmmakers free we talk about like regional cinema and like oh you know China is so massive that they have like these these filmmakers making films in like these obscure provinces and it, it reaches our shores because it's like well yeah they they just shoot it digitally and they sneak it out of the country on a thumb drive you know, yeah, Wild Wild Goose Lake, which I saw oh, I think, about three yeah. years ago. It's fucking amazing. And again, it's like it, it is criminality, it's venality. It mm. is just a marvelous, magical underworld vision of what these places of China look like. And it just seems so bracingly honest and bitter. It's right. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, another guy that like excites me and I'm, I can't wait for his next movie um, is. Uh, oh, my God. Why am I blanking on his name? The guy who made uh, Kylie Blues. Uh, and he he's like. He's actually younger than me. So that's my rule of like, you know, I don't like filmmakers who are younger than me. <laughs> but he he breaks it. Um uh his name is Begun. <laughs> yeah, and he is like a talent, Bill. Like, man, uh like uh I mean, Kylie Blues is like a very hard to categorize movie. It pulls off a lot of visual coups in it like it's just uh I don't know. And his second film I wasn't such a big fan of. I think partly to do with just having a star in it kind of took away from it, even though she's great, Tang Wei. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, yeah, and it, it felt more like a stunt, especially with, like, there's a whole sequence that's in 3D in the movie. Uh, oh, I saw that. It, bo- it bored the shit out of me. Yeah, exactly. Same. Yeah, I, I was too. But, like, his first film was great, and then his most recent, like, short was also very brilliant. Uh, and it's called A Short Story. It was actually my favorite movie of last year. That was my number one. <laughs> a short oh, okay. story. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send you a link. It's a fun one. Um, and yeah, totally original guy too. It's just like, again, like China is, is producing like these really unique voices. Uh, you know, um, it's just amazing. I mean, another filmmaker I really love who who doesn't get any love is um, Li Ning. And, you know, that's a very mm-hmm. common name in China too. So it's really hard to Google him. But he is this guy who was like a dance choreographer who like decided to express dance through filmmaking. And he's only made one film and it's called Tape. And it's incredible. And if you actually look up the movie, like you type up leaning tape, like one of the results is going to be the review I wrote for it <laughs> for um uh, for Degenerate Films, which is like it's a New York based uh, distribution company uh, uh, run by Karen Chen, who's like an incredible like you know, figure in American indie cinema. I believe she's she was, like, involved with, like, um, uh, um, blank. It's, like, The Exploding Girl. Do you know that movie? Bradley uh, Russell. Yeah, with uh, Zoe Kazan. Yeah, so I think she kind of backed that up. But she has her own distribution company, and that's what they were doing. They were, like, be, you know, she also helped distribute Zha Zhang Ke uh, before he, he became big. Uh, they were getting all these films from, like, actually, the Beijing Film Festival was the main kind of before they, you know, they, they put a kibosh on it and, like, confiscated all their materials. But that was, like, one of the main ways that they were getting these films. And they were all original. Like, um, I remember one documentary, Fortnite in MoMA. Like, they had their own program. And that's actually how I was able to see tape. And then I wrote a review of it. And then Kevin B. Lee, who I'm not sure you're familiar with, he's, like, preeminent uh, video essayist. Um yeah, uh, he he liked my review so much. He was like, "Yeah, we'll we'll put it on the degenerate uh, website," <laughs> and it's still there. <laughs> so 
Yeah, man. Um, yeah, that's a great pick. I I uh, I like left field picks like that, and yeah, it's it's a perfect winter movie. Very bleak. I just feel like I don't really ever talk to anybody either who's seen it or would know about it or be interested yeah. in seeing it. So. Yeah, it's always one of those things where it's like it's a revelation to finally... Because um, yeah. it, would, it would kind of fall under the category of like Asia Extreme, which, you know, like Tartan films ah, has, maybe. Yeah, has really like kind of promoted, you know, they've, they've done it with Korean cinema, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's just like, it's a strange thing with Chinese films where, uh, you know, this one is, is very violent visually, but like there's also a lot of Chinese films where it's not particularly violent, like in terms of bloodshed, but there's a lot... They're very violent emotionally, you know, yeah. um, and I think that's really what Zha Zhangka does. You know, it's like a lot of heartbreak. <laughs> you know, that's what he, he tends to cover. And then, you know, his wife, his muse is always in it, Zhao Tao. And she's like one of the greatest. Yeah, she, she was incredible on Ashes of Pure yeah. White. It's just a, yeah. it's a mesmerizing performance. And yeah, and her performance in Mountains May Depart is also incredible, too. So, but yeah, I, I think uh I only really have one more pick uh, for for my favorite winter movie, and this is the one that counts. Um, this is one I alluded to earlier, where I I told you I'd sent you the the trailer, and it's for um, Hong Sang Soo's The Day He Arrives. Uh huh. Yeah. So, Bill, I take it you didn't get around to seeing the movie. Uh, the day no, I've not seen that Hong Sang Soo movie that uh, one in particular. But did you watch the trailer though? Um, <laughs> where did you send it to me? Maybe I didn't. Maybe I, uh, maybe I it, it's it. in our it's in our email thread. It's there. I'll send it to you oh, again. Yeah. No, I I must have. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. Because no, I, I was just like teasing though. that that was gonna be one of my picks. But uh-huh. uh, okay, I won't spoil the trailer for you either. But it's just like I love how the trailer gives you a completely different experience from the actual movie. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 like a short film in itself. Actually, you can just watch the trailer and it's like now you can say you've seen a Hong Sang Soo. Because <laughs> it comes, well, I've, I've seen, I've seen the what is it, right then, wrong now? I forget what it. Was. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the last movie of his that I actually really liked. Um, because uh-huh. yeah, I, I've definitely fallen out of favor. Uh, I've mentioned it on a Scott take in a, another episode that I just think he sucks now. Uh, I uh-huh. just think he's he's become super lazy. I mean, he's doing everything on his own, which is like terrible. I mean, you know, there's some filmmakers who are great one man bands, like you know Shinya Sukamoto. It's an incredible one, a one-man band filmmaker. But uh, others, they just like you gotta defer, man. It's just like, <laughs> but also because his cinematographer was great, and then also his editor, like the, you know the people he had worked with like throughout his entire career, you know, have been there since day one. Like they're so integral to his his craft. And now that he's doing everything, including like the music, which sounds shitty, by the way. Like he's recording it like with like a, I don't know like a, a potato mic or something. Um, it's just yeah the, the the new movies are just so boring and like uh, he's clearly not trying anymore. He's just like well oh, you know I'm I'm gonna get the festival run regardless. Like yeah. the only one film that he made recently where I was like okay that could be an interesting experiment but it still doesn't work. He he made this movie called In Water. It's one of his three movies that he did this year. And yeah, well, he's busy. Look at this. Shit. Yeah, wow. dude. Like he, 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 he's like making films as if like he, he's going to die tomorrow. <laughs> he's just, um, but, uh, yeah. So in water is a movie that save for two shots is completely out of focus. And, you know, it's like, okay, that's an interesting experiment. And I enjoy out of focus shots. I don't know how you feel about out of focus shots, Bill. 
Uh, well, I mean, if it's it, obviously he knows what he's doing, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have even considered it, but that's why you go to a real visual artist who could show you something you wouldn't have expected. And that's what I was hoping, but it's not. It just he doesn't really do anything nuanced with it. It just feels like, man, yeah, you just decided to shoot it blurry, and like, you know, people to get the the motivation behind it is oh, that his own like high eyesight is failing. You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, it doesn't quite yeah. work either if you, like, you know, say, like, us, like, we wear glasses. Like, we w- we tried to watch it without glasses because it's out of focus anyway. But it's like, then you can't ah, read the subtitles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, you know, you're stuck between, you know, a rock and a hard place with these movies. Um, But, yeah. Uh, I mean, let me let me correct myself. But I also saw Woman on the Beach, 2006. That one. Yeah, yeah. That was a good yeah, one, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that one. That, that's like him at his most, like, Rom- Romare-esque too i mean i think uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Fair. so um yeah so day he arrives it's like in my top two of of his films like it's it's mm-hmm. up there like I, I think any given day can switch between this and um hill of freedom those are the two movies and you know it, it's it's one of his black and white movies you know he, he he's done a few more recently but like it was always kind of an anomaly in his filmography when he does a black and white movie and that's the thing about the trailer not to spoil it the trailer is in color, <laughs> but the movie's oh. in black and white. So they clearly shot it in color and then turned it black and white in post. They they toned it. Yeah, they took the chroma down. Yeah, yeah. So and then it's really like kind of black, black, like black and white. You know, it's like they, there's really high contrast and it's perfect because you know, tying into our theme, winter, like you really see the snow. Um, it's really prominent in, in many scenes and it's clearly natural snow. It's not, you know, your fake snow. Like he wouldn't have, yeah. In Seoul, you don't gotta, you don't gotta fuck that shit up. It's the real deal. Yeah. He, he he doesn't have the budget for it. And also, I don't know why, but like every Korean movie I see where it snows, like they seem to film on the days when it, it just billows lightly. It's not like Mm -hmm. the harsh, like in your face, like New York fucking snow. (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) you know, you're trudging through it and then it's like, and, you know the, the the snow on the ground is like brown you know kind of shit and it's like you want to give up on life <laughs> trying to get to the next warm place oh but by the way just to tie in with inside lewin davis that was one of my favorite little details about the movie was um when he's at the diner when he had to walk after you know um i, I forgot who that guy is who gets arrested the, the guy who's playing the driver is his name tex or something i don't know what oh, i forget yeah i'm mixing yeah. him up with um austin butler playing tex in uh, <laughs> It, oh, and it wasn't much time. time yeah. Yeah. It's like he, he's like yeah. an Austin Butler mold, um, yeah. and then you know uh, Goodman, I think, dies right in the backseat. Yeah, yeah, he dies in the fucking yeah. Car, yeah. And then there's no key, so he has to fucking walk to like the next warm place. And uh, when he gets there, he's got the wet shoes in the diner, and he has to like take off the shoes. Like, man, that really resonated with me. That's a lot of what I've experienced in New York City, like trudging, trudging through snow, accidentally stepping into a puddle. Oh man, like yeah, that kind of shit. I love those kind of winter details that that movies have. And um, yeah, you know Hong Sang Soo, even just based on the two you've seen, Bill, you can probably tell he has like a recurring, <laughs> uh, like kind of uh, sto- not not necessary story, but it's like the elements in place. It's always, and I, I love this theory too, that it's always like a tall Korean man um, who who's involved in filmmaking somehow. Either he's a film director, that's his most favorite uh, thing to go to, or he's yeah. a producer or a writer, you know, some kind of creative. 
And uh, I love this theory that I read somewhere where they were saying, like, the reason why Hong Sang-soo cast, like, these tall actors who are well over six feet tall um, is because, uh, you know, it's kind of going to be a contrast to how immature they are. And, like, you know, they basically act like big babies. So, yeah. yeah. yeah, Giant tall men was an offset of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, But the... The thing that I, I feel like is actually more of a practical reason is that Hong Sang Soo is actually tall himself. He's also six feet tall, so I think he's just casting actors who are like the same size as him. Yeah, that's that's really the reason. It's not. Um, I don't think he's thinking that metaphorically. But he is a very literate director too. Like his early films, one of the things I loved about them were like these literate like title cards that were just so funny. Like it it like replicated like seventeenth century literature. You know, where it summarizes the chapter, you know, like in which the man, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. goes yeah. to visit. It's practically Dickensian, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, even beyond that, like, I think it's it's more... Um, Moliere or something No, no, like, like Don Quixote. Like that, you know, 17th okay. century, you know, that kind of All early right. literature. But yeah, it, it's great when he used to do that. See, the, those elements are gone now. But yeah, this movie, okay, why this really stands out to me is because I feel um, the... Uh, uh, you know, there, there's all these this gamesmanship with structure. So even though he repeats this theme of like this narcissistic director gets drunk and, and smokes while being horny and makes a fool of himself in front of an attractive young lady, there's all these variations on it with uh, the structure. And that's what made them so much fun was like you kind of have to piece it together. Like in, in the instance of Hill of Freedom, it's like uh, it's uh, pages from a letter that fell. So she's reading the letter because they weren't numbered. It's out of order. So the events of the the movie happen out of order too. And he does this within the span of an hour, by the way. Like it's a one hour running time. It's 66 minutes in and out. And it's like such a clever structure for a movie. And he does it so seamlessly. And for, for Day He Arrives, the thing that I love about it is that you can get what the structure of the movie is, but still not be sure that that's actually what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's basically like, yeah, it's in the title. It implies that it's this director who basically kind of exiled from Seoul and he's coming back and then he's like reconnecting with this girl, uh, his ex. Um, and then it's like the events during the day, but then the events repeat again. And then you're like, is this all happening in the same day? And we're seeing like variations on a theme or is it like he gets to repeat the day like a la Groundhog Day? You know, and then he gets to like act differently in each day, or maybe he's not even conscious. He doesn't have the Bill Murray like wherewithal. Um, but that's the beauty of it. Like you're not quite sure, and then you know it uses the structure of uh, well, not structure, the trope of a doppelganger. So it's like you're not quite sure is this his ex because it's the same actress, but like she has mm-hmm. no memory of him, and he doesn't even have a memory of her. And there's just like these these repeated scenes that happen where it's like. One moment he's really confident talking with her, and then you see the event repeat again, and it's like this time around he's a lot shyer, and he he doesn't even like flirt with her. You know, it's just like all these variations that he's doing, and then <laughs> the irony of it, ironies, is that he ends up none the wiser, <laughs> even with like these um these uh chances at like you know getting it right, or you know uh, I mean you know right now wrong then is kind of like that too, but it's only like two two variations. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it, I, it's a beautiful film. It has all his like cringeworthy, like you know, drunken argument scenes in it. Uh, the black and white is great. Um, yeah, I, it really is just like it doesn't really matter if you can make sense of the structure or not because it's about like how it was composed and how they orchestrated and. You know, bringing up Kevin B. Lee again, like, he has an incredible... Um, it's actually on the DVD, the Cinema Guild DVD. It's weird. They never released it on Blu-ray. But um, it, he has a beautiful video essay where he tries to break down how the movie is structured. And he does it, like, on a timeline where you see, like, okay, it hits this mark and then it hits this mark. It, it's really remarkable. But, yeah, it's also not an easy watch. You know, the, the like, the there were times, I think, where I felt like I needed to get up and just, like, take a walk for a bit because <laughs> there were just so many uneasy scenes in it um but yeah how long is it how long is the movie? it it's like 70 minutes 70 something minutes 77 okay. yeah it's like in and out like i mean that's the beautiful thing about his shorter films and i think he's kind of been doing that because uh you know he's just making them at such a clip so it's like it, it makes sense to just make something that's just a little over an hour like i think after uh, Night and Day is his longest movie. It, it's like pushing three hours. It's getting close to mm. it. But other than that, like most of his films are, are super short. Um, but yeah, it really is remarkable. Um, and the most like incredible uh, special effect, you know, nature gave him that. Like there's a scene towards the end of the movie where the character's walking through through a street, like in Seoul. Like, it, you know, he keeps going back to this intersection where the movie starts. And, um, He's walking through it, and he's on the phone with somebody. And then as soon as he hangs up the call, it starts snowing. And you're like, wow. Like, just fucking, like, the timing. Like, the you know, the movie gods, like, smiled upon them that day. <laughs> that it was like, how the fuck? Like, you know, it was just perfect timing that it just started snowing after he hangs up the phone call. And, yeah, it really has, like, a really sublime coda. And, yeah. It's, it's it's one of my favorite winter movies. And yeah, uh, I'll, I'll send you the trailer again, Bill. You need to see the trailer at least. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I'll put, put that in my, put that in my brain yeah, as a little yeah, dart. For sure. All right. So um, do you have another uh, winter movie for us? or? No, I'm happy to talk about uh, Joan Micklin Silver in case people haven't heard of uh, it. Oh, yeah, yet. for sure. Uh, I mean, I will just say too, like I had a much longer list, but I just don't want <laughs> I want to save some energy for Joan. Like, cause I, oh, she's yeah, deserving yeah. of it. Um, she she passed away a few years ago, right? Like uh, back in 2020. Yes. Yeah. Apparently. Uh, yeah. I guess she she died of a. It's, it's her credited the cause of death was vascular um, dementia. I don't know what that oh, means. Oh no, maybe it was a, man. Maybe it was a, a slow decline. Who the hell could say for sure? Oh, that's too bad. And it it feels like the timing of it too is like there's now kind of a renewed appraisal of her films because. Yeah. Uh, the restorations and then also um yeah criterion releasing chilly scenes of winter uh, a lot of her work is now getting like blu-ray releases well keep in mind she she was around for that like um uh, the quad cinema was a big rep, uh, a big um a proponent of hers oh yeah 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 the quad cinema which was which was bought and uh, re rehaul overhauled by the cohen media group i forget the guy's name is uh, cohen i can't remember the guy's first name mm -hmm. but Max. he's a distributor no, was it? yeah, yeah, no, I'm messing with you. That, that's the pie yeah. guy, Max Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, um, he, he's, he's got a, a boutique label. And again, I don't Love know it. where this guy gets his money. Yeah, it's great. And so he was responsible for the most updated version of Chili Scenes going oh, out. Oh man, and I so, had no idea. Yeah, 
Yeah, and so the thing is they had at least that, if not a couple of other Joan Micklin Silver movies. Now, I didn't, that's the thing, when she came and she did a couple of nights where they were did, they did Q's and A's, yeah. this probably 2016, 2017, I was, hadn't seen it then. I'd heard of the movie mm. and I let it go. And again, I lived like three blocks away from it at the time. I didn't think anything of it. But now yeah. I realize what I'd missed with mm. all the times I watched Chili scenes since then. But she was the beneficiary of, I mean, apparently she was still around and she was still in decent enough health that she showed up and she sat on the director's chair at one of those theaters of the quad. Mm. And yeah, and I'm, I'm glad that Cohen had her out. I'm glad that quad celebrated her. And it was like a, the, the arrival or at least the rearrival of this movie that people probably lost the first time and, you know, got a chance to reappraise. Amazing. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah and um, yeah. And the whole thing too, that surprises me with that fact that you just uh, shared bill is that Cohen media was like willing to defer that title to criterion. Because, you yeah. know, they, you mentioned they have their own label. They release their own Blu-rays, which are very good Blu-rays, by the way. Like, they have yeah. great special features on them. And, yeah, um, yeah they, they kind of purport themselves as a premium uh, boutique label as well. And they, they, they've released a lot of the the Godard films, too, which is incredible. The later Godard films, which is, yeah, some of my favorite shit. Anyway, <laughs> but, uh, not for you, I imagine, Bill. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not necessarily for me. Okay, All right, though. so yeah, so... Let's talk about Joan Milk and Silver first uh, before we get into the film. So what do you think like characterizes her work? Like wh what's like the hallmarks of, of, of Joan Micklin Silver movies? Well, the older the older I get, the more I love movies that take a very careful and studied approach to recreating human beings and their lives with mm. some sort of fidelity and accuracy. Uh, that's not to say I don't like spectacle or surreality or heightened uh, but I need to I need to go through a movie and a story and I need to be aware of where the characters are and really what they want. And if you're going to obscure what the characters want, there's got to be a good reason for it. And I have to know that that's happening rather than just being in a, in a, in a fog. Mm -hmm. And I kind, of, I kind of call it breadcrumbing. For, for a bore man like me sometimes, I need things made kind of like painfully obvious with chalk lines on the ground. <laughs> um, you know, or, or ribbon, ribbon on trees if you're going through like a Greek forest and a myth or something like that to let you know where you're going. Sure. And so the thing is, you know, like I return to like john uh john sales is an, a director i bring up all the goddamn mm -hmm. time whether people want to hear it or not um alexander payne is a guy i talk about a lot. right yeah like, it makes sense these these filmmakers are somehow like all of um like they're kindred spirits I, yeah you know I, I they must be because obviously I'm, I'm drawing a loop between them whether they would consider that of themselves a different story uh but i think that you know you like a guy like ashby uh hal ashby which you know he talked about how the holdovers were sort of really conjuring the spirit of a Hal Ashby. Um, you know, people who, Michael Ritchie is another one too. Michael Ritchie, when oh, he was, yeah. Yeah, when he was firing at his high levels, Michael Ritchie was able to tell a humane story about recognizable people. Like almost in, in, in Ritchie's cases, it was a pure Americana, just really making stuff like Bad News Bears that just looked like the soul of America before the fall, you know, just something yeah. about that. Smile. <laughs> was Smile. Like, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. He made Fletch. Fletch movies like that are great. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's... But isn't Fletch like the departure a little bit though? It's like, it is, of... but it's yeah. still, it's still funny as fuck. Yeah. It's, it's off, it's off brand, but it's still kind <laughs> yeah, of works. Yeah. Look, he also made the Island with, with Michael Caine and David Warner. That's a very weird. What? Movie, but... Oh, wow. I had no idea. Uh, Man. Strange, yeah. What a yeah. filmography. He also made that, that 
TV movie, right, with uh, Bo Bridges and Holly Hunter that has a really long title. It's like... Uh, oh, the Incredibly cheer- Cheerleader. Yeah, yeah Texas like Cheerleader, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I heard I, that's a really good TV movie. Yeah, it's supposed to be really good. Those are that's those are Class A actors. So Joan Micklin yeah. Silver is, I guess you could say, sort of the distaff component of that bulwark of filmmakers. And mm-hmm. I think that the reason why a lot of people don't know about this work is naturally because she's a female filmmaker and these people simply weren't challenged they simply mm. weren't given the the spotlight they weren't given the accord that they deserved and everyone you know, joan micklin silver had to you know do all the fred astaire dance moves backwards and in heels you know the way that they used to say about ginger rogers were dancing with a stare mm-hmm. and i mean joan micklin silver she had the access of a fairly wealthy husband who um, underwrote oh, some okay. of her some of her projects, and yeah, his name was Raphael Silver. Apparently, he was like a um, he was a Midwestern contractor. I think he made millions in the business market, at, at mm-hmm. building houses or construction or something like that. So he himself was a little bit of a stillborn artist. So the two of gotcha. them made the, the two of them made movies throughout the late seventies and early eighties. Um, I think he only directed three, but he produced uh, more than that, and they produced their movies together. But I think Joan Micklin Silver had trouble getting uh, a lot of money's made simply because of money. I don't think it was for the drive. Um, I think it was the this, the, the, the standard bog bog standard bushly problem is that there's just not a lot of money out there for these kind of movies that were of a certain ilk. So I would say for that sure. her her work is characterized by uh, a low slung humanity, shaggy people who are unlikely heroes. They're not always likable people. They have yeah. a lot of flaws. They are, um, you say, they, they are sort of hyper intelligent, some kind, almost precocious to the point of self sabotage. If you're thinking about a few, a few of these movies, <laughs> no, that's good. I like that a lot. Yeah, right? I saw. I definitely saw that in the two one, the two movies I saw. And and uh, I would say not necessarily chilly scenes, which is our main topic, but but crossing the Lancy for her is where she marries it with a lot of um, the, 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 the sort of Judaism that she wanted to insert mm. in a lot of movies, but found the best way to put it into her work. Uh, where, you know, it informs the work, it sets up atmosphere, it tells a story. Um, and again, it was one of the things that people thought might, uh, she, she was told to tone it down or remove the Judaism altogether from Crossing Delancey. Oh, and it's wow. like, why the fuck would you do that? It's like, that is, that is kind of the point of the story. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah, you can't imagine. Like, it would just be a generic, like, uh, rom-com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Without, without those details. And, I mean, yeah, we're going to bounce around a bit with the chronology chronology because i want to end with chili scenes because sure this yeah. is the one that i'm i'm the most passionate about yeah, yeah, yeah but um uh i so can we just start with uh so you you were able to watch between the lines you've seen it before right no i this is the I've oh seen, yeah that between lines was the first go for me okay so this is her journalism movie right it's about journalism yeah it's about a, it's about yeah. an alt weekly if anybody remembers oh. the concept an alt weekly in boston back bay boston Oh, and you yourself in another life were yeah, a journalist, yeah. right? I was, well, I was I was a I was a page designer. I wasn't a journalist, but I was a page hack. Yes, <laughs> but yeah. So you but you're familiar with that world. Uh, yeah, you know, at one point, this exact kind of paper that it's that between the lines is based on was my dream gig before I had set my eyes mm. on getting to like the Times or the Wall Street Journal. It was working mm. for a paper just like which this was Village Voice. Like yeah, that. exactly. This is the Village yeah. Voice. It's a pastiche. It's the Village Voice of Boston is what they're mm. making this out to be. Gotcha. All right. So yeah, I mean, you know, paint a picture for us. What, what's um uh, 
between the lines like well between the lines is episodic in that there mm. is only the loosest assemblance of a, uh, assemblage of a plot the idea yeah. that there's the threat at the beginning that the paper is going to be bought by um, a media conglomerate that is going okay. to stri- <laughs> it's going to strip the soul of the paper and essentially just turn it into a bigger budget operation that's got to make money rather mm. than operate at a loss which you know that these 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 boomers are you know it's 1977 so these guys are all post-collegiate in, in like their early 30s you know there's that, that yeah. real big chill generation you know they, mm-hmm. they they believe in the message they believe in you know speaking truth to power and they don't believe in capitulate to capitalists and so the movie has this <laughs> hanging over it but really nice. it's 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 just a bunch of scenes of all these oddballs who are um you know people who are they're, they're 30 years old they're unmarried they're floating around they're fucking each other they're <laughs> squabbling they don't have they don't have any money to they don't own anything they're but they're charming as fuck you know it's just i a, mean a mo- what a, a cast man like yeah, it's dude. incredible yeah chronologically actually this is the first movie we're just gonna flip between uh crossing yeah. the land sea and the, cro- uh, the, the, the yeah. cast is mm. one of these casts that you say it's like the big chill where it's like mm. in in, in <laughs> The, it even the, shares some cast members from the big show. Jeff Goldblum is in it. In the case of Between the Lines, you can almost safely say that the 1980s goes it goes through this movie. It's so bizarre. It becomes a, a pressure, a bottleneck of these actors who who wind up all figuring heavily into other movies. Oh man! And it came out the same year as Star Wars too, yeah. and and Sorcerer. I wonder Sorcerer, how, yeah. to what proximity. I'm trying to look up where. Um, the the exact release date is but i can't see it no. uh, i suppose it went against star wars like rolled over everything it kind of didn't matter Whatever yeah time exactly year, yeah. yeah yeah it's like they forgot about it but yeah i mean that the way you're describing it the the episodic nature i feel like all her films are like that it's like there there is it is heading towards a certain conclusion but it's like yeah i feel like scene to scene there's like this this lovely kind of casualness to the way she transitions from from one moment to the other and it makes perfect sense like i can watch these people and just like stay with them and you know like i i don't even care if it's like it's moving everything forward or not you know Mm -hmm. because it's just she's just such an expert at that and i mean another very telling thing for me is like how the three movies all have different credited writers uh i think chili scenes is the only one that she's credited as the writer, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, th- this one was written by uh, Fred Barron and David Helpern, and um, uh, um, what was the other movie? Crossing uh, Delancey. Crossing Delancey was written by. It's based on a play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I'm, I'm excited. I, I definitely want to watch this just purely on on cast alone, you know, yeah. and and just now knowing what her style is. Oh, Susan Sandler wrote it. Wonder if she's related. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. No, no it's a yeah, big world. A lot of a lot of Jewish Sandlers. Yeah, that that's her only credit. Like, that's, that's, yeah, that's the weird thing. You find that like these people bopped it in and out, and you know they got one one thing made from their body of work. Hmm. Um. Yeah, that's amazing. So she, yeah, she wrote uh, a screenplay based on her own play, and um, yeah, I mean, so what would you say with um with between the lines? Would you say like that? Uh, is it like top tier Joan Micklin Silver, or where where do you think it slots in her filmography? No, I think that as a filmmaker, she becomes more polished with chilly scenes, and ultimately, okay. I think I think Crossing Delancey is her best uh, that I've seen of, the, of these three movies. <laughs> okay, um, it, it's the most sort of technically proficient. It does film language the best and editorial mm. language the best, and perhaps she's a better director. Uh, simply with with fewer actors focusing on a more um, you know like she gets to do with Amy Irving and Peter Rieger in that third movie 
you know, in a way, it's just more directed, more pungent, more concentrated than what she did with like just leagues and leagues of actors in these other two mm. movies. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess yeah. Let, let's get into Crossing Delancey because I I do have something relating to that, but I think it's more towards where the movie ends, where I I'll, I'll have thoughts that kind of push back a little bit on that bill. But anyway, yeah. well, because <laughs> um, yeah, this is, you're talking about like her struggles with um, funding. It wasn't even just that, right? She was also struggling with just you know the studio heads wanting a certain type of movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. It's like it, it was forcing this kind of very idiosyncratic approach, even though it's very grounded. Uh, you know, she's not an experimental filmmaker by any <laughs> stretch of the word, but like you know, there's definitely like these unique things. Actually, the the filmmaker that comes to mind to me that is like her kind of um, parallel and also maybe her contemporary is um, Claudia Weil, who made yeah. um, uh, Girlfriends. Girlfriends. Yeah. Yeah. And and girlfriends is also a very Jewish movie, um, but like at the same time, like she, I think Wild was a little more kind of free and loose in a way, especially with that movie. It's shaggy as shit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in, in exactly. the best way possible. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But it's just like you know, the in terms of like Jewish female experience, like I think those two, like Crossing the Lancy and and girlfriends, are like you know, based on my limited viewing, like is. is are top tier, you know, it's really like the, those are the two movies I would hold as like examples of like, you know, um, and you, uh, speaking personally, Bill are married to a Jewess. Yeah. I'm, right? I'm in, yeah. I'm, I'm associated <laughs> with the tribe through marriage. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, the, the thing about crossing the Lancy is that the version of New York that you're seeing in every single scene in this movie it is a, you know, Delancey is a street that it bisects the center, like I said, the lower center belt of New York, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Manhattan Island. It, it ends on the uh, Williamsburg Bridge and it goes, um, I'd say it, it ends somewhere in like Soho. It craps yeah. out to run Spring Street or whatever. Um, but it, at the, in the old days, it was a very uh, Hebraic uh, avenue. I mean, that whole oh. part of the city, the Lower East Side was very Jewish and it was filled with... Um, it was the last holdout. It was where the ghettos were, the Jewish ghettos. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my, my wife's people, that's the first place they landed when they mm. got into America in the 1890s or whatever. And then they moved out to New Jersey and other places like Newark. Yeah, but, Upper West Side. Uh, no, no, they, no, they were never Upper West Side Jews. They were, it was, really? They were like okay, County, so Woody, Woody Allen's Jews. a different Jew? Yes. Than he, okay, yeah, gotcha. Different, different, different There's a distinction. Okay, gotcha. So, so um, yeah, the thing is, is that the, 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 this version of New York doesn't exist anymore. This version of New York has been gone since as long as I've been uh, coming into New York City for a long fucking time. That's way before my time, too. Yeah, but, but yeah. the thing is, like, this was the New York I was, I fell in love with as a kid. This is the New York I wanted to live in. This is the mm-hmm. New York of Woody Allen uptown. This was downtown. Peter Rieker with his pickle shop. The, the what is That's it? That's a... The, yeah, 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 right. I was going to ask, did you ever do that? Did you ever, like, grab pickles from a pickle shop? <laughs> uh, no, in fact, I, you know, that, that that pickle shop is based on a pickle shop that's still extant, although that's not oh. where it was, and it, it moved locations. But that is a pickle that is a pickle brand that has been sort of like like uh, uh, Russ and Daughters. It's like some of these places. Oh, right. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they go uh, to there's that, um, Yeah, because, like, um, along um, uh, Houston, there's still, um, along with Russ and Daughters, there's a Kanish place there, too. Yeah, Yona Schimmel. Yona Schimmel yeah, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like that. Yeah, there's, there's some of that stuff is still left over. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's, it's really difficult to... Um, 
I mean, that there's just so little of the Jewish stuff. That, that the, the Second Avenue still has a walk of fame of Yiddish Review stars. It's still buried. In, what? It, it, it's buried. In, it's embedded in the cement. I totally missed this shit. Well, it's <laughs> you know, do you know that the the Second Avenue Cinema that's owned by Angelica now that was an old Yiddish that was an old Yiddish theater. That's where the the Room played when it came to New York. It played there for like <laughs> yeah, eight or nine for sure. years. That that's a perfect location for the Room to play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so there's all this this there's this this Judaica this Hebraic New York downtown that doesn't exist anymore because it's all mm. become wine bars and condos uh, along Essex Street. Uh, right. But this this is a beautiful, sensitive, really Jewish take on New York. And I think the thing that these, and again, the, the people who are making the movies, the studio heads themselves, of course, were all Jewish. I mean, for Christ's sake. <laughs> That's true. And so why are they trying to tone it down? <laughs> this is always the thing. Everybody was afraid of making everything too Jewish for all the Goyim. Who, who, and it's like, it's bullshit because this movie, it's like, it's not crushing you on the head it's adding texture it's adding flavor it's it's the beauty of this movie is that it's so fucking jewish the whole point of it <laughs> is to hear the old lady in crossing delancey her was her Bobby. grandmother yeah. yeah yeah her booby is she was in real life a yiddish theater actress this was the only uh, movie felt, she ever yeah i got vaudeville vibes from her yeah this is the only yeah. movie she ever made in english Whoa. so far as i know yeah incredible and but you listen to the cadence of her voice, you hear the old school Jewish cadence, and it's like yeah. you know the the tug of war between Amy, uh, um, Amy, her, her character of like she's assimilated, you know she is trying to sort of separate herself from the shtetl values of the the old right. school thing, and and her booby is like trying to match her, make her up with you know I'm like. <laughs> Who's playing that matchmaker again? It's like it was, uh, wasn't Sylvia Miles? Or something yeah, like Sylvia that? Miles. Yeah, she's incredible. That's great. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so yeah, again, the, the the Jewishness of the movie is absolutely the ingredient. It's absolutely why mm-hmm. it works. It is is everything. It is it is charming. Um, it's a time capsule. Uh, and I I dare to say Amy uh, Irving has never I've never seen her better than this. And and the easy charm yeah. that the, the tug of war that she shares with Riegert, Riegert also might not have ever been better than this. Oh yeah, for sure. You know? I mean, you know, I love local hero, but like oh yes, yeah. okay, excellent. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> my language, perfect. <laughs> Absolutely, but yeah, it's like I think also um, uh, um, uh, Burt Lancaster also kind of overshadows him, and also I, I really yeah. like. Um, who was uh, he, uh, the thick of it? Uh, Peter Capaldi. Oh, uh, Peter Capaldi's really good. That yeah. Too. I like Dennis Dennis Lawson, the guy who plays the spokesman for the whole town, the guy who played <laughs> yeah, Wedge awesome. in Star Wars. Yeah, he's yeah, great. Yeah, talking about local guys. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and a funny thing, too, I was just like looking up the chronology of when Irving made this movie, and it was still like a year removed or maybe just a few months removed from her uh, Divorce. getting divorced to, yeah. from Spielberg, you know, uh, former Mrs. Spielberg. Uh, and yeah, they they had a very short marriage. It was only four years or less than that. But she cashed um, in on it. Her her pre the prenup was enormous. She got she was set up whoa, for life. Shit. Yeah. Okay. And this was before he became a billionaire. <laughs> so, uh, he was already he was just he was just a millionaire by that point. Yeah, right? yeah. But she cashed in. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> I mean, the guy who invented the modern blockbuster along with Lucas. You know, you yeah. got. I think Lucas also had to pay off his. Uh, Marsha, yeah, she yeah. got rich too off of it. Exactly, <laughs> man. All these ladies cashing in, but um, but yeah, I mean, you can the, talking about like a nuanced character in the performance. Like, uh, I, I just, yeah, I love how she kind of undulates and just like you know, I guess, uh, gives in. Like, uh, I mean, this is one of my favorite shots in the movie, and it happens early on, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, Bill. So when she arrives at her building, 
She lives on Fifth Avenue, by the way, right? Or no, yeah. sorry, she's on the Upper West Side. Uh, uh yeah, East Side like or West that. Side? Yeah. Not no, a, I yeah. think it's 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 on the east because the park is to the west of her. She's mm-hmm. facing the park, right? She has, and yeah, we we can even get into that the the funny conversation about like how he she has a rent controlled apartment and, and how much it would be worth on the market. Yeah. Uh. Uh. But yeah. So. Uh, uh. She comes home. Uh. And this is after the the opening event of the the movie, the which I me, yeah. Yeah, I immediately thought of you, Bill. Like I'm like this is the type of event that you and your wife probably frequented. <laughs> Right, I, I mean, we went to. She had two of these herself, but yeah, I didn't see I there you go. Went to them all the time. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, but it's like you know the the drinks. I mean, I yeah. love early appearance by young David Hyde Pierce and like how he yeah. and the other bookstore worker are just like getting sloshed, you yeah. know, with all the free drinks. Um, uh, yeah, we didn't even mention the Dutch connection. Uh, yeah, Jeroen Kabe. Yeah. Oh, Jeroen Kabe. Yeah, the fourth man himself. Yeah, the dude. Um, it's that, the, like <laughs> that, that guy. You know, like uh, Rutger Hauer had been banging around in the states for a while, but he came in and made a splash in the eighties. It just Rutger Hauer subsumed his accent and became an American on film. But Jeroen Kabe was, you know, he's like managed to play a Dutch guy with this quant this quantity this quantum of exoticness and this was a movie he was yeah sexy intellectual. He's multilingual too. He can speak French, you yep. know, it's like um but yeah, so anyway, uh, getting back to the shot though before I get sidetracked again. Yes. The um she comes home to her apartment building. It's all one shot. Um so it pans over as she passes the lobby and then her uh her doorway kind of has a a mirror to the left of it. Yes. And we see this like giant gentleman who's balding and a beard. And then just the way he kind of just rushes towards her. Yeah. It's an incredible shot. And then again, this is like, I think one of the things that Joan McConsilver does so well is just how she, she can establish like a character as like one thing initially. And then you're basically gauging by how the other character like reacts to that character as to like what their relationship is instead of you know spoon feeding it to us yeah so initially when she scares him you're like oh shit is she gonna get raped or something because this is a giant man and then yeah his stature he really towers over her I mean, and he was hiding he, he was he was tucked in the nook behind, out of her sight you know Everything right right it yeah and he's like splayed like kind of like a classic painting or some shit uh, on the you know, I, I don't know if they still have benches in, in apartment building lobbies like that. No, definitely not. Yeah. No. Uh, but, yeah, and then we kind of find out that he she kind of has, like, a situationship with the guy. He, he's actually involved with someone, but he, she's out of town. So yeah. he's kind of showing up there as a booty call. And then it's like you initially think that she's going to kick him out, but then he's like, and she's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah, turns they, around, and then it's like, you know, they, they obviously slept together they boogie that down. night. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just like that scene and leading up to it. Um, uh, well, what happens after is like, to me, like just a beautiful, like kind of encapsulation of, of Joan Micklin Silver of just how she is able to like convey relationships based on how characters are interacting and it's fluid. That's the beauty of it. Like, that's really what I love. Like, you know, she initially like rejects Peter Reigert. But then she like kind of regrets it and kind of has buyer's remorse yeah. a little bit. And just like, you know, she's torn between these two guys. And, you know, that's the material for the rom-com, right? You're like you got the, the artistic, like exciting dude, exotic, as you say. Um, and then you got like the straight edge, uh, safe, uh, you know, supported by the bubby. <laughs> 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 like, choice. 
Oh, by the way, Bubby too. Actually, the other thing why I got the vaudeville vibes is she kind of looks like Harpo Marx. You know, uh-huh. she's got that kind of balloon yeah, oval that's true. face. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, are they yeah, somehow related? Um, but yeah, and then again, the other thing about the opening too that I, I also like stood out to me is just it is like a lament for these bookstores because it's actually about a bookstore that almost closed but then was saved, right? Is that yeah. that from my understanding? And uh, 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 Yeroen Crabes, his character is almost like the kind of played a part in saving it because he he does this event and then you know signs books for people um and uh yeah and it's a beautiful bookstore by the way it's like three floors i want to say like they got like the bottom where all the sales happen and then the second floor is kind of an event space and then their offices are on the third floor and it's It's, just like it's it's like risoli's you know it's like there's right it's like this this history of bookstores in New York that were, I mean, mm-hmm. not just a place of commerce, but it was quite literally a lounge. It was a salon. Yeah. That the idea was always bigger than the bookstore. And some, Rizzoli itself had a press. It had a, a like yeah. Rizzoli put their name on Yeah, I have some books. of their books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have some of their art books. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing uh, press. There, there's still like kind of one holdout in like Midtown Eastside, uh, like I think off of 59th Street. I used to frequent it. But they only now specialize in rare books. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like it, it, it's clearly a multi-level place. But yeah. you only have access to the the uh, the main floor in the basement. That's it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm blanking on the bookstore. We'll we'll put it in the notes. Yeah. But yeah, it's like this is 1988, and they're already like kind of you know having the it's like a, a swan song for for bookstores. But you know, it was a slow, gradual death. <laughs> for these stores i mean i just remember yeah yeah during my time when i finally came to the city that was the thing i was observing is like all these long-term bookstores like you know shutting down or like closing their doors and you know one of the more newer bookstores is a place that i actually volunteered at um housing works yeah that was a good one yeah 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 Uh, when i went back bill in january like the place was completely alien to me i was like this isn't the place i used to love and would hang out at you know um, it, they've really changed. Like they've gotten rid of some of the bookshelves and started to move like the um, the clothes from the thrift store, and they're hanging clothes on bookshelves. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on here? Was this the place down Crosby or somewhere else? Yeah, Crosby. That's because okay. yeah, that's their main bookstore. Like you know, they have a bunch of like thrift stores, but uh, Crosby was the yeah. only one with a bookstore. And you know, it, they own that building too. It's crazy. Speaking of multi levels, like they have offices upstairs. They even have like a, a private event space. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in one of the upper floors. So it, it's really a crazy building. Um, but yeah, it's like it's dead. It's like uh, all these places are dead. Like the only places where you can pick up like quality books uh, towards the end of my my stay in New York was really like the hipster bookstores. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's really it. Or maybe if you luck out on a guy who's selling some good shit on the street, you know. <laughs> uh, but even those died out as well, like because that that was great, like going to fucking like Cooper uh, Square and like you know um, Cooper Union, like yeah. all the, those people are just like. Um, I think I think Powerhouse is still down in Dumbo, and um, I think McNally Jackson still it's still firing. I think it survived. Yeah, Power Powerhouse is a much smaller space now from what they used uh, to have. Okay. Yeah, it's right. sad. Yeah, um, yeah, McNally's still there. I mean, they they also have their own private press as well. Yep. You can actually yep, self publish a book there, which is cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's just it's dying all around us. Like these bookstores. I mean, yeah, is the bookstore in the movie? Do you know, Bill? Is it like based on 
is it a real bookstore? It kind of looks like it. Like that's. I mean, crazy. I'm, I'm sure they. I'm sure they. Yeah, I don't think this movie had the money to rebuild it. I'm pretty sure that's a location shot. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because yeah, how can you fill it with that many books? Like that's. <laughs> you no, know, exactly. It'd be yeah. almost impossible. Right. Yeah. For sure. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's just like yeah, the, the comic relief with the bubbies, great. Um, you know, we, we talk about like the, the details of, of the Jewish experience. One that was kind of like, I guess, uh, culture shock for me was, um, the Briz scene. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. All right. I, hear you. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen a Briz, uh, uh-huh. in my life. So I did not know that it's like that it's, it's like a cocktail party basically I can't, say I've been, I, I can't say i've been to one i've been to one seder i've never been to a bris that's something okay. no one's ever invited me to that yeah yeah it, it feels like only the immediate family is is invited right or um, yeah uh, family I mean, I, friends I, I, yeah i guess it maybe the, the tradition this, look this movie was 84 or whatever so the tradition might have, yeah oh 88 sorry it might have yeah, changed yeah. Mm-hmm. uh between then and who knows Right. And yeah, I, I, I did not because you see the baby completely naked. And I was yeah. like, oh, man, is this going to be like really graphic? But they, <laughs> they it, it doesn't um, it, it just shows the baby crying, but not yeah. really the uh, the actual act. <laughs> By the way, did you notice the actor who played the baby's mom? Who is it? That's Amy Wright. She was. Amy Wright? Uh, ju- yeah, George C. Scott's wife after he oh. um, after Geraldine Page died, I believe it was. Mm. And Amy Wright is this actress. She was in um, she was in Wise Blood. This she's got this weird. She started as almost like a child looking actor in the seventies, mm. and she's got this uh, path of really, really, really strong movies. And she was in a lot of them. It was almost like Steve Buscemi. If something was good, oh, really? she was in it. And it, and she was never the reason why it was good, but she had this incredible taste along the way of just settling in really great projects through the 70s and 80s. Shit, and this she, was was in, um, she was in The Deer Hunter. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's so funny, too, because all her photos on IMDb, she's always, like, in group f- photos. It's like there's yes. never, like, a solo shot of her. <laughs> yeah, I would say That's that her bet. Her big, um, her big move was playing Harry Dean Stanton's daughter in um, Wise Blood, um, the, Bre- <laughs> the Brad Dourif Stanton. movie. That's how old Harry Dean Stanton is that she can play his daughter. <laughs> well, she was also like twenty years old at that point. Oh, too, okay, so. gotcha. Anyway, yeah, it's just yeah. it's just one of those again character actor curiosities of someone sure. I just watch. I just once I started paying attention to Amy Wright, she just shows up in all these movies. She's just yeah, she's like I mean, a, an assassin. Yeah, the- yeah, if we want to highlight more of the the younger cast, like uh, the the cab ride, the memorable cab ride scene, <laughs> where oh, she gets yeah, into yeah. a white cab and Reggie, uh, Reggie, Reggie Kathy, yeah, 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 is the driver Jamaican <laughs> doing an accent? Yeah. Oh, incredible! Yeah, it's yeah. just like the, the, yeah, it's really it. Like I love that um, Joan Micklin Silver like really takes the time to like show us certain details. Like you know, you could have just skipped that whole cab ride scene. We didn't need to see the whole thing, but because she decides to show it to us, it's like it adds more flavor to the movie, you yeah. know? Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I, I really like this movie, Bill, but I guess my nitpick, if I had to sure. say, is that I really felt like transitioning from Chilly Scenes of Winter to this. And, you know, th- there's that gap, too, with the Peter Reigert connection because, you know, she I, I heard that she loved him so much in, in Chilly Scenes yeah. that she was like, okay, I'm going to cast him as the lead. And ironically, too, even though he's the second lead in this movie, he doesn't show up until like maybe forty-five minutes in. 
Sure. The film, yeah. and it, it's like a, an hour and a half movie. <laughs> like he only shows up like almost halfway through the film. Well, yeah, but they, I mean, is that if that's a pet, I, like I can't argue with a pet peeve. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. No, 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 that. no, no. That's yeah. not my pet peeve. Actually, that oh, okay. no, that was I got sidetracked again. <laughs> Just like you know, my digressions. Now, my pet peeve <laughs> is really from the distance of these two films. You can just tell. Uh, well, I can tell that it's it's basically there's kind of been a watering down a little bit, and like mm. I just feel like uh, she's working in the more conventional mode with this film, even though she has all these details that we've we've been outlining. It's just like I guess as it approaches the the conclusion, I'm like, okay, I'm starting to feel like this is a rom com now. You know, uh, <laughs> it's like that. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, sure. As it progresses, because up up until that point, I'm like, I'm loving the rhythms of this film. I'm loving how, like, yeah, it it's taking its time. Like, you know, uh, I mean, even just moving back and forth between locations and how like familiar they get. I think most movies don't don't take that time, you yeah. know, to be like, oh, okay, we're now back at Bubby's um apartment, which, by the way. Has an incredible uh, view of the Williamsburg Bridge. Like, yeah, that's, my, that's I think that's those could be Mitchell Llama houses. I had a friend mm-hmm. who um, he his parent his mom still owned the apartment he grew up in, and we shot some material for a project that never went. But we were up in one of those buildings there, and they're a little yeah. like imposing, old school brutalist buildings to some degree. However, <laughs> yes, it yeah. was it was like right off of, it was right off of like um, Henry Street. And it's like it's amazing that those places are all still Mitchell Lama like public housing or something. You know what I, I forget what you call assisted. Uh, yeah, some, section, some, eight. section eight. Section eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like the value of those places is immeasurable. But for Christ's sake, it's like some of this stuff has to be kept for people on the line. You know, and that like right. Yeah, it's kind of like um. Do you know the experimental filmmaker Ken Jacobs? Mm, I don't think so. Um. Yeah. He he's legendary. He's like one of the most prominent. Like, uh, and he's still around. Um. And he has kind of like a loft somewhere in that area, and I think he's still paying three hundred dollars a month for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's a massive loft; like it's featured in in, in one of his son's movies, um, Azazel Jacobs. Oh, uh, I know him. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's his son. So he's in this movie called Mama's Man, which I I'm curious what your take on this movie too would be, um, because yeah, it's it's a very New York movie, and it's about like basically a young man with Arrested Development who can't leave home. Uh-huh. Um, even though he has another home, it's just like he 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 wants to stay in this apartment, which is an incredible apartment. It's real. It's like just like this loft that exists, you know, um, like uh, yeah, near Delancey, like in in that area, Lower East Side. Um, and yeah, I even just like uh, just, I want to touch up on the title. I always just thought that the title was also a joke because they've made they make several references to it, uh, especially with Peter Reigert's character. Of crossing Delancey, but like Delancey is also notoriously like one of the most dangerous like streets to cross, you know, uh, because of the traffic. True. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like um, you know, because uh, their theory is actually when when the cars are coming down from the bridge, they're like going full force with you know the momentum, and like a lot of people don't know how to slow down. So yeah. if you try to make that crossing by the Essex uh, intersection, mm-hmm. even though it has an island in the middle for you to kind of be like safe, I guess with like concrete barriers yeah. you can still get hit like if you're trying you know that that's typical of new york you know when somebody's been there a long time they they don't wait for the fucking light 
fucking run across. You know, it's like that's what you do. Uh, I've done it. I haven't waited for the light at the Essex crossing there. Sure. Right. And don't fucking hesitate. You just go for it. Like, you know, yeah, just uh, close your eyes <laughs> and hope for the best. <laughs> now, don't close your eyes. That's not New York. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, so people get run over uh, yeah. on that crossing because it's like th- these these cars are going fucking like 70 miles an hour down down they're barreling down the bridge yeah so uh so yeah i i was just like okay yeah delancey and then also um another thing knowing that area now the delancey stop like a little further down that's Mm -hmm. that was my exit when she exits uh, early on i think that's the first time we visit bubby that's my exit to get to metrograph yeah. You know, once I get there, that's my easiest way to, like, make my way. Yeah, um, around the corner and you go down south. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. And then also, you know, we see the Essex Market in the movie R.I.P. Because they moved down the street, right? Have you been to the new Essex Market, Bill? Actually, this in June, yeah, I went there. Oh, it's, man. I mean, it, I tell you, it's delicious as shit, even though it's, it's character-free. <laughs> it just it feels like it, it could be in Cleveland, for all you know. But, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's a mall. It's, it's basically a like a uh, yeah a glass like uh, mountain mall. That's yeah. what it's become. It's yeah. it's fairly yeah. I mean it's uh, Shopsons is still there. Whoever's running Shopsons is still running. Yeah, the even kitchen, though he so. passed right. The uh, oh, a long Kenny time Shopsons. ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been yeah. dead for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, and I think his daughter's taking over. I have her book. I I yeah, it it has a nice cover, but I I've, I haven't gotten past like the first yeah. few pages. It, She's it writing good. for the daughter's writing for the New Yorker occasionally too. Oh. Amazing, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Shopsins, uh, heart attack special. Order the poutine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it's like uh, yeah, that we talk about it all the time when we're talking about like these movies that are time capsules of New York because we've been there. We can like detail these things for for other people where it's like yeah, this is what's changed. It's like this is no longer this, yeah. you know. Um, and it's heartbreaking to see, but then also. I'm glad that like there's a film like preservation of it. It's like yeah. it's there. It's like man, this is what it was back then. Um, Don't you think though? I, I, I like a, a rom com, if you want to call it. yeah, you can call it that's yeah. fair. I yeah, believe yeah. it was yeah. It's she steered into it. She knew what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And again, it's the idea that the, the rom com did not really have this much overt Judaism and and all the cultural mores of the matchmaker and the pickle maker mm-hmm. and the fact that. You know, this was supposed to be a, sh- a schmo from the neighborhood. This, you know, like his, his right. character was a schmuck. It's somebody who she looked at it and it's like, well, he's old world and I'm assimilated and I'm uptown. And, you know, crossing Delancey was figurative and literal in that, you know, he was on the other side. She had to go back into her old life and cross Delancey right. to get to this, to get to this yeah. part of, you know, her heritage that she was trying to avoid being an assimilated uptown woman. Um, and so it's like, I, I feel like the, the, you know, the kind of beauty and the gentleness of this love story you know, and so much of it is depending on the fact that Peter Riegert is so insulted for so. You know, like it yeah. rightly so. His his character is so put off. She's the one that fucks up, and she's the one that has to keep right. making amends and convince him. Even though he says to her, "Look, this what does he say? This one I'll go. I'll this one I'll meet." You know, mm-hmm. when he, he shows her the picture that his, the, the grandmother gave him, and it's like, you know, they, they yeah. tried, she tried to set me up a lovely room for years, but then they put this picture in front of me. I said no to the other ones, but I'll say this one I'll meet. And they hold <laughs> they hold the, the ga- uh, glance on each other. And it's uh-huh. this moment of electric chemistry where the two of them are actually firing. It's like they're, they yeah. could fuck. Like, they could fuck. <laughs> yeah. That's what's great about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, yeah, the, that whole sequence where, you know, he tells the story of the, the Stetson and then, it, like, it ties into later on the gift. Like, yeah. I love that. Like, it's just like, because there's, there's moments that happen in between that. But, like, um, 
you you kind of hang on to those details so it really resonates when it happens and then you know she she looks really cute in that stetson she walks yeah. down the street and she sees him dealing with pickles and that was like a big laugh for me because it was just like I, I love too how ambiguous it's played because it's like is she now like kind of looking down on him because he's a pickle boy yeah. or is yeah. it like okay props to him like he's a he seems like a classy dude but like he it's his own business right like that's what they imply that he runs yeah, he, the business. I think he he inherited it's a family business and he sort of took it over from his dad but it's he's an he's honest earning he's earning an honest buck yeah and so yeah. it's that where she 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 even bothers to like go all the way there cross Delancey to see him in yeah. that cute Stetson to reject him yeah and, and that rejection is so incredible like the way it's it, she kind of delivers it plus the content of what she's trying to say because it's actually to me a fair rejection you know like it's like she's she's being polite um you know not disrespectful to him and then you know also deferring which is like you know i guess a a, a skill you need to to master as a woman uh, because otherwise, uh, this bigger guy than you might like tear you to pieces. <laughs> yeah, you know. So it's like you got to be good at rejection, and um, you know, guys often are not good at accepting it. You know, <laughs> and that's what happens with Regert. Is like he, you know, he just like, and you're you're saying, yeah, he's within his rights. You know, it's like, um, what the fuck are we doing here? You know, it's like, why why are you even like coming here and like thanking me for the shit and then only to reject me like slap in the face? You know, yeah. Um, but I, that's the beauty of it. She, uh, Micklin Silver, like really shows both sides. You know, you really get like his reaction is valid, and so is her rejection. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. It's not judging in the terms of like, oh, come on, like, yeah, because she changes her mind so many times in this movie that you could easily like in another movie in lesser hands, you would be like so frustrated with the characters, like, what the fuck, like, just make up your mind, like, just pick one, <laughs> like, you know. But you know, in some and, ways, she's the pre- she's the precursor of you know seven or so Julia Roberts movies that would follow. <laughs> sure. After this, you know, into the early 1990s. And, but, yeah, you know, that, it, that's the watered-down version that I'm talking about. That's yeah, like worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is true. Um, yeah, you know, it's like I, you were mentioning a comp before of other directors that you think that Joan Micklin-Silver um, can kind of work around and w- reminisce. Yeah. I thought another one I thought of was, have you ever seen Mazursky's uh, An Unma- Unmarried Woman? Oh, man, he's another guy I need to get into. Yeah, big blind spot for me. Yeah. You know, Mazursky is a great storyteller and very New York. And the thing uh-huh. is, he found in, was it Joe Clayburgh? Um, I think mm. that's who it was. He found a muse, a muse in her, that he built the story around her and put her through her paces, gave her, I mean, she had a bunch of great performances in the 70s. I think uh, Unmarried Woman was early 80s, 81 or 82. Mm, yeah. Uh, maybe, or 79, I forget. I, it's all gets blurred together. But the idea is like, yeah. it is a New, it's a New York movie about a person navigating uh, what it's like to be single, trying to figure out what's the space for me. Uh, you know, the ex-husband in that movie is trying to crawl back up into the scene, and it's like, no, you put me through hell. You don't, you don't get, you don't get back into this thing. But the yeah. idea that it's like you get that New York. You saw how beautiful mm-hmm. it was. It was all these different points, and yeah, it's a, it's a person able to use a female character and an actress, an actress, to mm-hmm. essay something very specific in each case. And yeah. I think that an unmarried woman is more. I don't want to say dour, but it's definitely more serious and it's got heavier stuff on its mind. This gotcha. is lighter and I think it thrives in its sales because of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, th- th- when we talk about, like, directors and their hallmarks, like, uh, one thing that's underrated to me is, like, the in- intangible stuff that they do. Because, you know, you can always talk about, like, 
directors who have like um, a certain shot that they t- they do. And I mean, you know, Micklin Silver has her own, which we'll get to. Like her, uh, there's like a trademark that she has that I noticed between this and um, Chilly Scenes of Winter that connects the two movies. But um, uh, but for the most part, like I love I uh, like directors like Lubitsch, where it's like it's the light touch, you know. Mm-hmm. And I believe Micklin Silver has that. Like she yeah. has that intangible thing where you know it's her work, but it's like you can't really like um, pinpoint it visually. It's not like um, you know. Even actually, the, that's the other remarkable thing about both films that I felt like um, they're not shot plainly. Like the, but they're not fancy shots either. It's like yeah. there's he, she hits like the sweet spot of like the shot is not boring, but it's also not like uh, flashy you know yeah. she has a, a way of like placing the camera in certain places where i i kind of noticed that too with like um uh just certain like uh close-ups like she never sh- shoots close-ups like full-on they're usually like slightly tilted to the side and i i just found that fascinating because it's like we get like the different dimensions of of amy irving's face and I, I'll just say this too, like just personally, like I was undulating myself in terms of how I was like feeling towards her, like in terms of her attractiveness in the movie. <laughs> yeah, because initially I was like, yeah, she kind of looks like a bit alien. You know, <laughs> she's got the the smile lines on the side of her her mouth, and then it's just like uh, her her eyes are kind of I don't know, like I I I didn't wasn't getting like a warmth from her eyes, mm-hmm. you know, and then there'll be a moment where it's like. Uh, uh, just a random moment, but it's like uh, I guess an important conversation. Is it is she with the mom of the the baby where they go to the gym, or the the no, YMCA? That's, that's her. That's her other friend, Faye Grant, uh, the girl who was in she, who was right. in V with Mark Singer a couple <laughs> years earlier. Yeah. Man, yeah, you know who <laughs> the, the, what where she was in. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so that scene, like, it's interesting because it starts with uh, them in the the changing room. And like you know, it's kind of sexy because you know they're undressing, and like her friend is like wearing this kind of uh, lacy blue underwear, yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it's like kind of like okay, like her friend's actually pretty attractive. But then when they change and then they're they're running around that track, I was like, mm-hmm. I was feeling Amy Irving way more. She's like wearing this like black spandex, like eight very eighties like shiny pants and i'm like oh man uh amazing but anyway <laughs> it's like it, it and actually i i will say too like just even j- jumping a little forward with with chilly scenes like i was also feeling the same way with um where mary beth hurt where it was just like my feelings towards them were um it it, it was fluid it, it was just like i was not like i, I can uh, see yeah. how they can be attractive they're attractive in certain points and then sometimes yeah you're you're not attracted to them. And again, that's that intangible thing that she's doing yeah. that I'm just like, man, like that, that's really a, a unique touch, you know? Um, By the way, do you know that uh, Rieger, who I think is a complete stud, he's just a real understudy oh, yeah. hero of American character acting. Um, yeah. I mean, he's had a, a really long career. He's never been short of great work along the way. And I, Soprano mm-hmm. was on top of everything. I was getting beaten by a belt by Tony Soprano. It's great. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah what zealous. a degenerate. <laughs> I love it. It's just great. Yeah, yeah. But after this movie, like this changed his career in a small way. It's not like he was ever I mean, he was the Animal House guy. It's like he had he at least he had Animal House in his background. You know, right. like he was part of a watershed movie and comedy and he he was always able to be that prankster who came out of that generation. That was a big 
calling mm-hmm. card. I think it launched his career. But this did something different for him. Yeah. Where, I mean, this turned him into a little bit of a thinking woman sex symbol in the 80s because, I mean, <laughs> he... He played it with confidence. He actually is very boyishly handsome. He looks clean cut. He mm-hmm. really embodies that, you know, the good Jewish boy, the guy who runs his business, who, who lives life like a mensch. And, mm-hmm. like, apparently he collected a lot of fan mail uh, from a lot of women <laughs> in a way he did not before. Like, this movie wow. put him on people's radar. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, even just tying it to uh, to chilly scenes, um, you know, I think the the change in hairstyle really helped him oh a lot. My God. You know, <laughs> not doing him any favors at all. <laughs> but in in this one, it's like it, it, it's well coiffed, and then yeah. he's starting to get like the the silver streaks, so that kind yeah. of classes him up a little bit. Yeah. You know, and I, I actually have this in my notes too. I dress exactly like him. Like that's how uh, I dress. You know, it's like that's, <laughs> that's I have true. that aesthetic. You know, it's also like actually how Larry David dresses yeah. too. It's like the the sweater with the the sport jacket on top of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's that's how I roll, man. <laughs> um, yeah, and we haven't really gotten uh, you know to his counterpart as, as much, even though we mentioned him earlier, uh, Yeroen Crabbe. Like, he in contrast, he's like the undisciplined kind of uh, manipulative, like charmer, you know, and just the. I love the, you know, with the misunderstanding thing, like the the whole thing of like um, she's calling him and then he assumes that it's still his ex-wife. And (laughs) he just says, just meet me, whatever that restaurant is in an hour. Provence, Provence, yeah. Is is that still around? Is that like a... No, no, Provence closed a while ago. Oh, wow, okay. Provence, okay. I've never (laughs) never been there, yeah. Yeah, he orders in French too, right? Like, it's amazing. I just have like some some notes of like stuff that I noticed, certain uh, like lines of dialogue i felt like i had to write down so uh tying into the 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 meeting at the provence um he describes uh uh amy irving or um what is her character izzy yeah as um having an exquisite stillness Mm -hmm. and i was like man that's like a fucking like uh closer of a compliment (laughs) like i just really felt like (laughs) damn if you you know you really want to like I don't know. I got charmed by it, and I, and I guess also because the connotation to me is like that's also like the type of girl I'm into yeah. is a, someone who has exquisite stillness. You know, it's like uh, yeah, probably low on the neurotic scale. <laughs> so even though yeah, she at, at certain points, but yeah, again, this is the the Joan Micklin silver touch, mm-hmm. where I just felt like you know she is indecisive, she second guesses herself, but it's not in an annoying way. Yeah. You know, it, and she, yeah, and not only that, but the the, uh, the the stillness part of it is that she has, you know, the, the whole idea of assimilation, in so much as I can understand or, or even talk about it, I think that she's trying to not come across like the tetchy, neurotic Jewish people that she's associating with her mom and her grandmother's generation. So right. you know, the idea is that she's putting it, putting the register way low. She's being professional. She's being, mm-hmm. I mean, she all she did not do was straighten her hair. She still has curly, yeah, typi- typically Ashkenazi ones. hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but you know, like everything about her though, is she's really trying to be a woman of the '80s in Manhattan. You know, just trying to be mm-hmm. l- low low effect. You know, low drama. Um, you know, putting the thing. It's like I am a suitable. You know, she's really trying to pitch herself to Yeren Krabbe's character. You know, right. it's like I, I am, 
you know, like, yes, you are, you are high status and I am low status, but it's like if I just sort of stand still and say the right thing and if you think, mm -hmm. I'm, if you think I'm appealing, that's the way I can get into this, you know? Yeah, and we, we get that early on too. Like, I, again, another touch of the director that I love is the, the planting of seeds that pay off later on in the movie. Um, and it's not a plot thing. It's, it's really just like kind of um, a little detail. So one of the things is that you can tell you know, she's telling her friends, I think, about how enamored she is that she has, like, you know, or no, no, she's telling Bubby that she's like, oh, I called Isaac Belvish Singer, you know, like his yeah. direct unlisted number, like yeah. just her access to these authors. And that's kind of how, like, she gets seduced by, um, uh, what's his uh, character's name? Ma uh, Maze? Moss? Yeah, Mace, Moss, or Moss. Ma An Anton Moss. Moss. Anton Moss, yeah. So it's like, uh, I have the, you know, uh, that's, uh, you know, I guess a lot of people who orbit creative types, that they, they just get so excited when somebody's like, I, I just started a new work. You know, yeah. it, it could be a novel. It could be painting. Like, everybody wants to get, like, that sneak peek, especially if they're, they're firmly established in their careers. You know, it's like, and I even love, again, talking about the booksellers on the street, there's that lovely little moment where she, she finds that bookseller who's like, um, uh, on Fifth Avenue outside of uh, the park and like I love that part because it's like uh, that area now there is still books being sold but it's sold by Strand <laughs> yeah, <that's true>. yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Strand basically has their own like tables and booths yeah, kiosk going but, out there. yeah yeah but it's like just an extension of the bookstore it's, yeah. there's no well no, actually they've had like some really dirty books there which I appreciate I'm like yeah damn these books have, have been beaten and gone through life yeah, um, but yeah. So it, I don't know who that that actor actually kind of looked familiar. Uh, I don't know if he became anything. The guy, the bit part, the day player um, who plays the the bookseller. I didn't recognize him. I mean, kind of. Yeah, uh, one of the few things that I think that Amazon does well, I would say, with with their Prime, because they also own IMDb. Like I don't know if that's, you've ever experienced this, Bill, but whenever you pause the movie. Mm -hmm. There's this thing that they call like a uh, X-ray, and oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen yeah, that, sure. yeah, yeah. So it basically like reveals who's in that scene at that given point, and then also sometimes what song is playing. Yeah, um, yeah, but it, it is kind of like a you know your your attention divided type deal. You know, it's like um, it's not necessarily the ideal way to watch a movie is like by constantly checking like who's this and like you know. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's helpful in, in certain respects. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just bring up that scene because it's like, she picks up, uh, the same book that I guess, uh, um, Maz was like, um, signing, but it's the first edition, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I just love that that, that moment is in there and yeah, the, the whole thing of just, um, she thinks it's this opportunity and she's willing to forego, you know, uh, a like finally it's like oh she's putting things together and putting things today and man my heart just sank at that bit dude when it's like um she uh she calls him and the, well she calls bubby's apartment to basically say that hey i'm running late because that's happened to me before mm -hmm. and i always just accepted it like the way um uh, peter regert does where it's just like well regert is like um yeah, I mean, yeah, she is running late. But, you know, that's really it. It's like now that doubt is in my head that, like, you're running late, but for from what? Like, well, yeah. what, what's, like, keeping you? And that, that, that has happened to me before. I'm like, I, I've had girls, like, basically, I actually, this is, like, a kind of a, a funny story. Because 
this movie really captures what it's like to date in New York City. The um, um, especially like in a more analog way, of like how things aren't clearly defined. Because I've I've managed to experience that both. I was fortunate enough when I lived there that I was able to experience dating in New York through dating apps. But then I also did it like IRL. Like I just basically. I didn't do it enough because I, I had like debilitating anxiety sometimes. But <laughs> but um there was one girl I was interested in and she had a weird situation. It was like she lived on her own in an apartment in uh in the West Village. And I was like, Okay, how can you afford to live here? <laughs> like uh you, you you I don't even remember what she did for a living, but it was definitely not enough. It was like kind of the Amy Brenneman bookstore girl in in heat where it's like how can she afford an apartment that overlooks the hollywood hills and, yeah, Jesus, and the rest yeah. of la it's like even if it is run down but yeah she she lived in this apartment and i was wondering why or not not why how and i was clearly interested in her and we had like a connection um and i wanted to like kind of pursue it so like you know one of the things that i like to do for girls and this is kind of tied to the movie is that i um I, I buy them books, you know, and like books that I think they would be interested in. So, and I, I got her like a couple of books that were out of print at that time and like kind of, um, so uh, I was waiting for her. Basically, we were supposed to go out. I was like at an event in Housing Works and like, um, I, I don't remember if she was supposed to show up at that event and then we were going to go out after or she was going to meet me after the event. But it was like she she just kept on stalling. And then I was just like, man, like uh, I'm wondering what's happening. And then, so after the event ends and she's still not there, I'm like, shit, what's going on? So I know where she lives and it's walking distance from Housing Works. So I fucking walk across the island because, <laughs> you know? um, uh, yeah, Housing Works is kind of dead center. You know, it's like off of 6th Avenue. So it's like, uh, you know, you can walk either way to the west side or the east side from that. And it's kind of equidistant. Um, so I walked over to her to West Village apartment Um and then I knock on the door and she opens it and she's kind of like sleepy. And then she basically tells me I'm not alone right now. And I was oh like, boy. fuck, I know what's going on. <laughs> so you've been spending this whole afternoon like fucking another guy right. while I've been waiting for you. And then, yeah, that this movie brought that back to oh, me. Interesting. I, was like, I mean, I, I thought I had this feeling the stress was I thought the stress was I mean, I've never been in that position. But <laughs> okay. watching her I, I felt bad because she's the one uh picking up the phone and saying, I'm 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 running late and they're in his bedroom. They're in Yellen Clarabe's bedroom and it's like like this is a terrible mistake and it's like this is a Hail Mary that you're throwing down the field. But it seems obvious to everybody but her perhaps that this is not going to catch. This is not gonna work. And I think everybody knows that you're going to have to run down there and, and pray to Christ, pray to the Jewish God, <laughs> Yahweh, G hyphen D, that somehow Peter Rieger is either, you, you can explain this, that he's going to still be there, that Booby didn't fall asleep, but he's, he's been so lulled to sleep on, on you know, on, on the, the Jewish food. He just is still sitting in place. Schnapps, getting drunk yeah, on schnapps. Getting, yeah, getting him fucked up on schnapps, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's like ultimately it does go that way. But the, the idea that there was this... Um, this this flagrancy of like why would you choose at this point to to shelf peter rieger again it's like this could be the right. thing that kills it all and we mm -hmm. all know this is not going to work and this hail mary with urine crabes is, is going to fail because it's just he's just using you he doesn't right. understand you as a as a person he just wants you to be his assistant or some mm -hmm. other subordinate role and yeah yeah that and idea. Then fuck like, you stop, on the keep, side 
Yeah, keep making bad decisions to be, you know, like, God, keep making bad decisions and see where that gets you in life. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, and I guess maybe my, that's why it is a nitpick. It's not really that big of a deal because, again, like, her talent, uh, Joan Micklin Silver's talent of just, like, playing it off the way she does, it doesn't follow the same beats as a rom com. You know, because it's like she, you know, she realizes it's a mistake, so she rushes. This is the the cab ride, which is brilliant. The the Reggie Kathy <laughs> cab ride, uh, where she uh, like I think uh, is it his wife or his girlfriend who's like kind of giving him directions and like telling him like what the signs all mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a girlfriend. It's, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. And then you know, so we get that moment of just like, okay, she gets there, and it's like, oh. Oh, it's way too late. It's like Bubby's like asleep on the couch. You know, he's not here anymore. Like she she kind of goes through and that's a beautiful way of showing the apartment too of like how she goes through from uh, the living room and the main hallway into the next room until she gets to the balcony with that view. And it's just exquisite how they reveal that he's still there like with the window. And then the awareness too. Doesn't he say something? Like you, like something along the lines of like, um, uh, you you weren't expecting that I'd still be here, right? Something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think that. so. Right. Yeah, and it's it's just a beautiful moment, and then you know, just one of the most romantic lines in the whole movie. Um, yeah, you're you're gonna have to tell me, Bill. How how do you pronounce this word, bra bracha braha? Let's I yeah, I forget the line. How's it spelled? Okay, all right, I'll, I'll give you the line. It's um, I was ho. I was so happy I was going to see you tonight that I made a special bra braha for the occasion. Uh, oh, interesting. No, that one I didn't know. I might not have picked up on what <laughs> that's that... a very like deep Jewish cut. I feel like. it's a, yeah, it's a, well, it's a Yiddishism, but I, yeah, there's some I, some things I knew, some things I didn't know. That one's a yeah, it, it's a great line. Like it really is, and just uh, yeah, beautifully delivered by Peter Riegert, and just um, and then yeah, we get to that that ending. Uh, and it, I, I don't know. You tell me, Bill. Is this a trademark of Joan McLean-Silver that it ends on a freeze frame? Um, it seems to be. I mean, in oh, okay. fact, in fact, she uses a bunch of freeze frames. Um, oh no, wait. I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of another movie I saw. No, I mean, uh, she does use a freeze frame in um, uh, chilly scenes for sure. I think it. You know, it winds up being a shorthand. Um, you know, it gives you the chance to stop a movie, put a little poignancy, and freeze the frame. And then slowly run the credits down the side. I mean, I in my memory of so many '80s movies, when they start playing like the alto saxophone themes, <laughs> goddamn, I love that. Is that I think uh, that's yeah. what the I think that's the the preferred um, soundtrack of the '80s was the alto sax with like a, Steve, a Stephen Bishop type theme running over a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I that's... mean, even the the opening credits of this film, like it's probably her most like mainstream opening credit sequence uh at least out of the ones i uh, out of these two that i've seen but it's like it's got the fancy like lettering but then it's got like this kind of light bubbly version of of another kind of uh it's a uh, what song is that that is like doo, 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 doo. It starts that, like that. i don't um, remember yeah. yeah that's a good question yeah but. yeah so um but yeah that's how the movie starts and uh yeah uh I mean, I would say personally, the music is not my thing. It's not my cup of tea. But uh, for the movie, it works. You know, like it, it really is like you can't really imagine it having another type of score than yeah, what it I has. Mean, they, you know? It's it's there's there's a certain theme to what I think of like New York City 80s movies and late 70s movies. 
And whether it's, Jesus, something like uh, Neil Simon's The Goodbye Girl with Marsha Mason and uh, uh, Dick Dreyfus, or if it's Tootsie with that, that Stephen Bishop, something's telling me it might be you, right? It just, <laughs> right, or, yeah. or, or Arthur. Arthur is the greatest of all those, The Moon in New York City by Christopher Cross. You know, the, mu- the music, the beautiful, mellow music of the mid-'80s, these movies that sort of the communicated, these movies were for, for middle-aged people, probably Caucasoid people because they, they, they you know, um, it signified such a comfort and such a sort of middle class thing where it's like, this is not going to be a movie about strivers or people surviving or people scratching each other to get ahead in life. This is going to be about something probably pretty relaxed. And, you know, the problems are going to be the problems of learned people who are post-collegiate trying to figure out something about what happens in your life when you're approaching either your early to mid thirties, you know, and that's a, it's a telegraph. Right. I mean, that, that is, I guess, uh, one more detail I, I, I have in my notes that I wanted to point out is that Pickle Boy is also a writer. <laughs> you know, he yeah. has his like little notepad where he he writes notes and yeah he obviously uh, can pen a sentence like you know that that line was just like damn like might even be better than describing her as having exquisite stillness about her you know um but yeah uh so any more like parting thoughts uh, before we move on to um i think movie? it's i think it's again it's a it's a piece of new york history if you're my my favorite um era of new york on film is probably stretches from like 78 i, I was gonna say 83 or so is where you you kind of get to the um you know the real nitty-gritty of that kind of stuff there's there's uh, some real beautiful movies in there like wolfen stuff people haven't seen a ton of uh but it's that 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 post uh, Pelham one two three Nighthawks is, is I think a fucking talking about ending on a freeze frame by the way <laughs> yeah uh, Pelham one two three incredible freeze frame at the end there's 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 so many beautiful movies that are set in New York and it's like again the the dispossession of what it's like coming out of the Lindsay era into um, out of Koch heading heading towards uh, Giuliani on its way to Giuliani uh, New York where you know the nineties clean up and become a little more anodyne and whatnot. I'm not. I'm not romanticizing poverty, but this movie has. <laughs> sure. I mean, this this has a safe version of New York. This is the version of New York that you wanted to live in. You know, we're getting. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we. I guess that's another highlight too of the movie. Uh, the, kind of a magic realist moment when she's at a Papaya King, and oh, that lady yeah, yeah. walks in and she's singing, and it's like, yeah, that's like the type of magic that you experience in New York. I've had that happen to me, but yes. not like somebody singing. It was like a, a dude who walks in and like he has like a. A keyboard and plays like exquisitely it's like man and that papaya papaya king is still in operate still excellent today you know those things do not close right yeah yeah it's incredible right and then yeah. even just seeing in the background the sign where it says that you know how long they've been in business i'm like damn this was in the 80s we're now almost like 40 years removed from it and like it's still there it's just <laughs> it's the same hot dogs man it's not even it's not even different hot dogs it's the same ones yeah it's like how are these like uh certain institutions of new york like immune from being like you know basically wiped off the city and and priced out yeah well it's the, the hot dog uh like that is the, is inelastic you know it's like the, people always need them there's always the business for a hot dog like the like the pickle that peter rieger sells the reason why you need it is because it's always there you need the condition from Yona schimmel they exist for a reason yeah for sure all right so bill um you've mentioned a lot of uh parallels or, or movies that are are good um comparisons but like do you have like a, a specific wine pairing for for um 
crossing Delancey? Uh, no, it's a th- th- the thing is, I'm so unaf- I'm, uh, so unaffined of that type of, um, <laughs> you know, the rom-com like you talk about it, because when you said it was diluted, there was some comment on it. It's a knock, and I would agree with you on that, which is why, you know, we've all watched a million of these movies that aren't great just because they seem like they're pandering to some sort of wish fulfillment. But, uh, you know, I, I think I would... The, the weird thing is I mentioned uh, Paul Mazursky's movie, Unmarried Woman. I would pair that more with Chili Scenes, to be honest. That's, it's, a, it's a fair comparison. They're closer together in epoch to one another. Sure. Um, but in terms of crossing Delancey, no, in, in a way, it's like a little bit ahead, you know, ahead of the class for its generation. It does its work quietly, competently, and other movies are unfairly... You know, it would compare itself unfairly to other movies because I don't think they do their work quite as gently and specifically with as much nuance... Um, you know, not insulting the viewer. You know, if the viewer really is a rom-com freak, I think they're going to eat well if they watch this movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's like they, they're discovering that there, there was, like, another level above what they're used to. Like, yeah. man, yeah. Like, a a rom-com not? made without cynicism or, like, really downgrading, you're treating the, the viewer as they are now, you're treating the viewer as if they're a pedestrian, you know, idiot watching slop. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the, the whole knock on rom-coms and how they've kind of died out is really just their predictability, right? Because it always follows the same formula and i mean i would even say man now, now you're making me think like because my original w- wine pairing for this was actually moonstruck <laughs> oh god i love uh, moonstruck yeah, yeah and that was like yeah. a year before but it's a little more con- conventional right um uh, well Moon- moonstruck i think is quirky to well, the weird thing moonstruck was shot in toronto which i didn't realize <laughs> oh I, mean, it, I didn't realize that either yeah, yeah. It's, it's a new york it's a new york movie not shot in new york but john, uh, john patrick yeah. shanley i think at that point still had so much jaggedness as a as a, a, a was he a playwright? I think he was a playwright. Yeah, he's a playwright. That's how you guys. And he did yeah. Yeah, Joe versus the volcano in '89, I think it was. Um, yeah, Moonstruck is such a weird movie. I think it, you know, Cher got her Oscar from it. I think it was well deserved. Nicholas Cage turns in such a Cohen-esque performance in a movie that's not <laughs> before he was in a Cohen movie. Uh, I lost my hand. I lost <laughs> my girl. You know, yeah, it's <laughs> right. It's fucking fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good pairing. I, I don't, I, just because I love Moonstruck so much, I don't think there's a lot in common except for the fact that they hit an ethnicity thing. That's so specifically Italian in great ways. Right, you know, and right. Again, it was um, not an, an Italian did not write it. John Patrick Shanley is not Italian, but he hit a lot of great Italian nuance mm-hmm. in that. No, yeah. So I'm I'm changing it. I'm striking it. Okay. <laughs> because all right, all right. um because you were just talking we were talking about like nuances in in rom coms. Like there is a filmmaker right now who is making very vital rom coms. Like he's finding like originality in it. And it's ironic that he's well more well known for his action movies. <laughs> and I'm talking about Johnny Toe. Yeah, like this Hong Kong director it, I I don't know anybody else who has had the same career as him, like straddling action movies and and rom coms. Like, how more extreme can you get with those, the the two ends of the spectrum like that? Like you're 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 doing rom coms uh, on one end and then action in the other, and they're both done very well. Like he totally understands like the tropes of the genre, and you know I, I mean his his studio uh, Milky Way Image is like uh, it works like clockwork like. He only directs. He doesn't write any of the movies. He has like a rotating like um uh like pool of writers who basically write the movies. So he was prolific for a while. He was also kind of on a Hong Sang-soo pace of like making one movie a year, but then he's kind of um yeah, he's slowed down significantly now. Um but uh but yeah, during that time when he was like I guess from 99 un- until like I want to say 2016, 
he was making a movie a year, which was just insane to think. Brutal, man. Wow. Yeah, yeah, 17 years straight. And then sometimes two movies in a year. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, the, the pioneering rom-com to really start with, where he really just, like, subverts expectations of what a rom-com is, is um, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Uh, and, I mean, actually, he goes even further with the, the second part of the movie. Part two is, is even better than part one. Uh, but yeah, he has so many like original um, uh, rom-coms. Uh, it's just like, man, yeah, the, this guy, he, yeah, he really is to me like one of the greats. Like he, at this point in his career, like he started off kind of like as a typical like, you know, uh, martial arts uh, filmmaker, you know, because he emerged from the 80s and now he's like moved into like, yeah, his own shit. Like he's he's an industry upon himself and like, even the the peripheral movies that like are produced by Milky Way also like to me are like a mark of quality. When you see that logo show up at the beginning, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm I'm in for a good movie <laughs> right oh, interesting. now. Interesting. Okay, didn't expect that at all. Sure. Yeah, and then uh, so I I did this other thing too with the wine pairing where um uh, and I'm I'll be doing it with chili scenes as well where I also picked an album, mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is a new <laughs> wrinkle. So uh, the the album I picked is a uh, Polly Jean Harvey. PJ, also known as PJ Harvey, songs from the city, songs from the sea. Like when I listen to that record, I'm like, man, I think of Chasing Delancey for some reason. Even though mm-hmm. it, musically it sounds nothing like the score of Chasing Delancey. Uh, I mean, it's PJ Harvey's basically, it's her New York album because she's British. But like even the cover, it's her in Times Square. Um, so you can just tell like it's her kind of wandering around New York City. And I think because um, around that time too, that that album came out. She was in a Hal Hartley film. She was in um, uh, Book of Life. So I, I guess like that that whole experience of, of doing Book of Life and being in New York was like, uh, yeah, inspired her to do that album. So yeah, those are my two pairings. Don't don't go breaking my heart by Johnny Toe and uh, J Harvey songs from the city, songs from the sea. Hella specific, my friend. I appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, we we keep, uh, yeah, we're we're growing, like we're expanding. So it's like, yeah, we're we're we we're keeping it going, man. We're keeping it rolling. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, let let's move on to our grand finale. We're finally here, Bill. Yes. This is the film. Uh, that started it all. Like the this is my first email to you. Uh, asking you to come on the show. Uh, we're gonna talk about. Uh, chilly scenes of winter from 1979 now you hadn't seen it or you had seen it before i I had never seen it and uh, i was telling you this in the email i was cramming this was the very last movie i watched (laughs) and like it's fresh fresh. yeah it's fresh and then i I split it too like because i watched it last night and then i fell asleep and it was like perfect timing too it was a scene where john heard like falls asleep on the couch and then I wake up and I, I resumed it again and he wakes up. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I like I had like kind of like a Christian Markley the clock moment, you know, because that's what he does in certain clips. It's like the actual time that passes between the two scenes. He has it play out in the movie. It's crazy. But yeah, I mean, Bill, I got to ask you, what do you have? What do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have Laura. Laura's my Laura's my mom's name. It's always weird to hear that. Oh, in, okay. In relation to a uh, yeah to to a, a romance movie, but yes, this is you know this this movie came on my radar. I know um, years back, our our mutual friend Mr. John Cribs of um, Pink Smoke Podcast. Pink Smoke, yeah, yeah. He he wrote about this, or at least he made a, a tweet about Joan Micklin Silver again when she was somebody I'd heard about and I hadn't seen this, but. 
you know, he was volunteering it along. You know, he's tweeting. It was probably like 2017 or 2018. is like the first time I heard about it. I'm like, oh, that seems like the kind of movie I'd be into, certainly. But for some, for some reason, it stuck around. And then what really gave me the impetus to watch it was that I was doing a long-form video project on my man, Kenneth McMillan. And um, I, I wanted to do a shakedown of McMillan's career, which was, you know, really tragically short. He only made uh, something like, I don't know, 25 or 28 films. And he, he died in his 50s, and he started acting in his early 40s, too. He really didn't stick around very long. Wow, um, okay. Yeah, and it's like, so I was just trying to glom onto the stuff I hadn't seen and some of the stuff I remember seeing as a kid, like on HBO on repeat. And Chili Scenes, I didn't realize mm. that it's like, oh, he had a small part in Chili Scenes. Oh, shit. Who was he in, in Chili Scenes? He was Pete. He was the stepdad. He was. Uh, oh, shit, he's so good. Yeah, he's great. He's oh, really fucking God. good. Oh, my God, yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, again, I mean, so I, I didn't need Kenneth McMillan to be the end to watch this movie, but that was the impetus I took was I was essentially doing a, a career rundown of all the movies he was in to see. And it's like, uh, yeah, you know, this was this was uh, it was a perfect part for him. This is exactly the kind of work he was doing in 79. This is more soulful than some of the other stuff. But it's like once you get into this, um, you know, I quickly saw from uh, uh john hurd who you know john Hurd's the lead he's playing uh charles charles richardson i believe his name is <laughs> he's uh he breaks the fourth wall and he does a lot of stuff that editorially is is a little bizarre that and even like i was watching it for the third time again this week and i was like oh, i forget he does that yes yeah. it's, it's you know it's it, you don't expect that in a Joan, Joan Micklin Silver movie because everything else is pretty, you know, there's no flights of fancy. They don't live in people's heads, you know, for the most Interesting. part. Interesting. Yeah, I was wondering about that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, the, you know, the, I would say that uh, uh, Between the Lines, you know, behaves like a John Sayles movie. It is watching people behave towards each other and they speak in eloquent sentences and long passages of dialogue over discussions exactly what's going on. And that's what makes it one of those great talky boomer 70s movies, you know. And this is... You know, this is more, I mean, it's internal, but it's its him confessing to camera these things and him really, you know, revealing his mania in, in such a way, you know. Yeah. And you know uh, which movie this basically made me think of right away as soon as he turns to the camera. And especially because he's the first time he does it, he's on the phone with his mom sobbing about, you know, uh, played by Gloria Graham, by the way. Yeah, Incredible. yeah I think that. That, Is this her last role or one of her last roles? Because I think she... Yeah. This is what I read. Okay, so the movie, when it originally came out, um, it came out as they retitled it. It was like recut. Um, it's called Head Over Heels. I love the poster, by the way. I actually love it so much, I bought it. Like, I bought like an original from eBay for seven bucks. It's kind of the old school illustration. I, I, I yeah, see what yeah, you mean. yeah, yeah. And it's just like, it, it's interpretive. Like, he's got like the shades that where it's like the wipers are on the shades. And it's I guess no one can, is head. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I love that shit. You know, it's like, uh, you know, that's why I love Polish movie posters because they're kind of interpretive too, rather than like literal. Um, but uh, yeah, so. Um, it got, uh, it, I guess, uh, it got taken away from from Joan, um, and they recut it. Like I think it had more of like a happier ending. Um, I don't know how <laughs> it had a happier ending. Maybe it's in the deleted scenes, but um, but yeah. So, uh, uh, but you know, it was a box office bomb. So they kind of gave it back to her and allowed her to recut it again. And then I think it got a re-release in '82. And you know, change the title back to the original, um, which was the Ann Beatty novel, um, instead of Head Over Heels. And Gloria Graham had passed <laughs> in that span of time, so she never got to see the recut version yeah. of the movie. 
the proper cut that now we we've seen. But yeah, it's just funny. So when he turns to the camera, and you know, um, uh, while his mom is sobbing on the phone, it, and then the girl being named Laura, I instantly thought of High Fidelity. You know, because that happens uh, several times in High Fidelity. I'm like, damn, somebody who worked on that movie, even if it was John Cusack, because you know how he he co-wrote it, right? With um, yeah. his friends um, who also co-wrote um, Gross Point Blank with him. I wish they'd make another movie like that group. A hot tub time machine, guys. Yeah, yeah, I wish they would do that yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just make one more. Like, you know, it's so much fun. Like, the the their record is impeccable. But um, They would give Cusack a win he needs. That is for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's been some time. I mean, like, I was mentioning that too. Like, when I, I picked um, uh, Love and Mercy as one of my Carlos Cannon movies, because it's like, man, like, that was what I needed. Like, it's been so long since I've seen, like, a vital John Cusack movie. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and like that was it but yeah that's already we're approaching like 10 years ago now with that movie so oh yeah yeah, yeah he's due um but no yeah I, I really thought of high fidelity especially because after that it cuts to him like kind of opening his drawer and it's like he has his collection of cassettes and yeah. i was like oh the records you know from high fidelity i was like damn like somebody who worked on high fidelity saw this movie you know and like was definitely um inspired by it yeah um yeah and uh, yeah, there are flights of fancy here. Aside from the um, the the asides, I mean, the one of the very first things we see when he walks to his car. Oh, great setting, by the way. This is another thing too. I'll ask you, Bill. Like, where is uh, is Joan Micklin Silver from? New York? Is that originally where she's from? No, I looked like she was born in Ohio or somewhere in the middle of the country. Right. But I mean, it, she she settled down, and I mean, both her and her husband were from the Midwest. I think she settled down in in, in New York. I mean, I just yeah. For some but reason, yeah, it's I, just like yeah. yeah, for this movie, which is set in Utah, I assume Salt Lake City. Yeah, um, it's just like uh, yeah, there's a specificity to the location, which we also got in in uh, Crossing the Lancy, which I love. You know, it's like um, yeah, this building we really get to used to the building and where he works as a civil servant, and then um, yeah, that walk that he has to take to the parking lot to basically get to his car, and then. His whole routine with the with the blind convenience booth worker, which is what I was referring to earlier, which is just so fucking hilarious. It's almost like something out of an Albert Brooks movie, you know? Right. <laughs> and like he he's feeling the change. Like you know, yeah. how does he how does he distinguish between a dollar bill and a five dollar bill? Like, yeah, like, no, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, maybe he has a sign there that wasn't shown that says "exact change only" or something. I don't know. It's like. I, you know, I think that the setting in SLC, I never understood that, you know, and again, I don't think it interrupts my, my viewing of the movie too much. But the thing is, is that everything, everything about this movie is so New York Jewish. You know, this is, this is a New York, this is another New York movie. In fact, it's even more um, cold and a little more biting than either the other two that I watched. You know, there's something really deep and dark and personal and, and a little deranged about, uh, you know, spoiler alert, getting ahead to John Hurd's, you know, uh, performance as a lunatic, as, as a man who's just sort of wanting and yearning and, and he's, he's a black hole. A, 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 yeah, so that, but it's like there's, there's so much about this that makes sense on the streets of Manhattan on a chilly night when the wind is, the wind is blowing down the avenues. And it's like the idea of Salt Lake City, which is Jesus. I mean, it's a city that's 100% Mormon and it's like, Kenneth, McMill- Kenneth McMillan is, is from Brooklyn. John Hurd's from D.C. Peter Rigert is a Jew from New Jersey. I mean, all these people are East Coast, East Coast, East Coast, East Coast. Right, but why is you know? it set there? Why is it set there? 
Yeah, I guess because of the Anne Beattie novel. Like, she's probably from there. So that's why uh, it said I, I thought I did that, or it could be the fact that I remember the, this is I, the beauty of watching all these movies since the post pandemic thing. I've seen a lot of American movies that were made, mid budget American movies made from the 80s to the 90s. And I kind of forget that they used to shoot in America. Like, the, every single movie was not made in Los Angeles. Every single movie was not made in some soundstage in Atlanta or Toronto, you know, subbing in for New York. They used to actually make a movie that took place in Cincinnati. They used to make a movie. If you watch the Steve Gutenberg Isabel Huppert movie, The Bedroom Window, the fucking movie is in Baltimore. When have you ever seen a movie about Baltimore? Right. Yeah, you shoot these movies in a city and it, it just gives them either a sense of terroir or it is a sense they got um, they got a tax break to shoot there. There's a good chance it had a lot to do with budget for all I know. Yeah, that, that, that's all it is. And I've been lamenting this fact too, Bill, on the show because I'm just like, even when we like covered Cloak and Dagger, we were like, shit, it's like shot in San Antonio. How refreshing that yeah, it's right. not like, it's not LA. It's not, it's not even like, um, you know, Austin. You know, um, so it's like I mean, because even Austin actually, it still has kind of like an exotic, uh, locale feel. Um, uh, but yeah, it's just yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, this is something that I think is lost these days because like yeah, every location is now a financial decision rather than, um, like a creative one. Um, yeah, I- I'm just looking at the Wikipedia of the the book Chili Scenes of Winter, and it doesn't have anything about the location of where it's set. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was probably a way to get this thing on on a tight budget. You you cast a cast a bunch of. I mean, it's like the the you know to further even expost expostulate expound upon the creation of this movie. This was produced by of all people. It was produced by Griffin Dunn, Amy Robinson, who were they were a production team, and also this guy Mark Metcalf, who played Niedermeyer in Animal House, <laughs> and who's who's in this movie with you know Peter Riegert, his Animal House co star, and. This, <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, yeah, this, man. this in some ways is a little bit of Animal House DNA, which I think came out in 78, uh, 77, I forget. I think it was 78. And so they had some juice. And that, so this was a real homegrown project. You know, uh, Griffin Don hadn't done a ton of acting, but he was sidelining into production at that time. So, you know, they made this. They they gave it to, they went to Joan Micklin Silver. You know, she, she, she essentially wrote the script. She adapted the Ann Beattie novel into this. And so I got the impression there wasn't a lot of oversight until the very end when they really butchered it. They, the oversight was just almost like catastrophic. Holy yeah, right. But yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that getting this movie made, period, was probably contingent upon finding an amenable place to shoot it. And she, you know, she, look, she used the hell of Salt Lake as best she could. Yeah, because yeah, you never hear the city named uh, in it. True. It's just like, yeah, I, I deduce that from, from the license plates. And the mountains and in the, the background, yeah. Oh, right, exactly, yeah. It's just like you, you kind of figure out that, oh, yeah, it, it's 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 metropolitan, so it's got to be one of the major cities in Utah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's not going to be Park City, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I mean, you know, it works because it, the winter aspect of it, you know, the you feel the brutality, especially, like, he he leaves his building, and I think it's it's winter rain, which is also... It's got yeah. its own kind of spice to it, you know, when you, you get rained upon in cold winter. Um, and, yeah, it, it's like the, 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 the flight of fancy that we first see when he walks to his car and he enters it is Laura shows up in the back seat. And then I love, again, this is her touch of just like initially we kind of are not even sure if it, it's a vision of her or not. Is it like, was she hanging out in the back seat the whole time? And like... 
there's something just kind of, especially when she climbs over from the backseat to the front, I'm like, it feels like she's actually there. And then, you know, we cut to him and he's all alone. Mm-hmm. And we realize that, oh, it's just, uh, it, it's like his, his projection. And that, that was the other thing I, I love is that the, the the contrast between somebody who appears in your mind or like in a dream even like it's always going to be your own projection of that person so he's projecting laura as like this uh um kind of happy-go-lucky like easygoing girl but as we later on see it's it's a lot more complicated than that you know um which is uh, yeah another thing that's incredible about the layers of their relationship because it's not as simple as like she just like left him and you know it's like she was already in a relationship to begin with and yeah this is why this movie resonates with me so much bill and you talk about like the new york aspect yeah this was something i lived through in new york like i actually got involved with somebody who was already in a relationship she wasn't married but Mm -hmm. she might as well could uh should have been um but yeah it was the same thing of like she's torn between these two people and then, um, yeah, that very telling line, I, I wrote it down at the end of the, um, why would you want someone who loves you too little over somebody who loves you too much, you know? And it's just like, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's an important rhetorical question to ask any girl. <laughs> you know, it's like, why do they always like the, the guys who, who hate them, <laughs> who actively hate them and don't want to, anything to do with them? Yeah, but I mean, in this case, it's like, what was Ox, the husband to yeah. John or whatever his name was? It's like. Uh, yeah, it is Ox. Yeah, yeah. That was his nickname. You don't see. Yeah, you don't really see any. I know that he's the kind of guy that he's going to loathe. And I'll, I'll give uh, Mark Metcalf, the guy who played, that's 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 the guy from. As Niederreiter from Animal House plays this character who's actually re- very benign. He's kind of a patsy because he's the. I'd say the estranged husband of um, Mary Beth Hurt's character. And, it, you know, it's his counterpart. His opposite is the guy he's fighting for her affections. Is the man by which Mary Beth Hurt already has a, a marriage that's just on, on interruption and and a child on top of that. And so, you know, like he is trying to find all these reasons to hate this guy and to and to, 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 yeah. to degrade him and dehumanize him. But all you wind up getting is that he's he's just a middle class stiff, you know. He's if anything, he's a little boring. But he's really a, he's a really genial guy. You know, there's there's yeah, there's no reason to hate this fucking guy. And it's like every everything he's He's projecting on him so much. Right, right. Because like the, there's like a certain calm when, uh, when you know, uh, Charlie like uh, hits the car. I mean, yeah. you know, he bumps into the tree outside of their A-frame house. <laughs> yeah. And like he was just like, hey, buddy, I think your uh, your t- tail, uh, your headlights broken there. And it's like, uh, or was it like that before you hit the tree? <laughs> yeah. That's a yeah, good I love one. It. It's a yeah, it's line. a good one. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, the way he plays it off and just like how he receives them when they they pretend to like be like looking at an a-frame house and then he's like he invites them to his own house his own a-frame and you know he didn't know about their you know like that they had ulterior motives because i mean yeah that that's played for laughs through that whole thing of just like oh yeah they're they they were looking at a house and they're gay (laughs) and they're gay yeah Yeah. (laughs) like he had to emphasize that too and then yeah there's that whole thing of like pretending not to know each other Again, uh, this is just a brilliant thing that Joan Micklin Silver does uh, that I've seen in these two films. It's like you're determining people's relationships and then maybe even more so with this one, like where you're at emotionally in time uh, based on how they're they're interacting with each other. I mean, you know, you see kind of Laura's hair change mm-hmm. as well as we progress because, yeah, we're, we're not really sure. Um, well, he kind of says that it took place like a year ago. 
but then you know it's like the way and this is another thing i really love how how seamless the flashbacks are are done because you you almost feel like after some of the flashbacks are so long that it's like um you think that you're not going to come back to to John Hurd waking up you know <laughs> in the couch like it's going to move on to like him at work or something but no the, it goes back there it's like oh shit that was what he was dreaming or thinking about when he was lying down on the couch yeah my favorite my favorite uh it's funny the device that did the very first one is that they get the call from the mom and the mom's swooning and he he puts the phone against his chest looks at the camera because you want to know how i met laura and we go into the flashback and he's the exact exact phenomenon which is like okay i guess we're into this now and then it cuts back to him still looking at you he picks the phone back up and puts it to his ear as if he was just taking us a break and he didn't want the person and then he goes, okay, mom, I'll be right there. And the scene picks back up after yeah. about six minutes. It was It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Like, uh, where would you see that in a movie today? You know, it's like uh, that. Yeah. That, yeah, 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 yeah things question. would probably be pushed along. It's like, yeah, let's keep it moving. But yeah, it's like, th- that's the thing. Uh, you know, Joan Micklin Silver will not be rushed. <laughs> and... and- yeah, what you're describing, by the way, is something that needs to be done at the script stage. That is a matter of that you can't edit that in because that's a design thing. He's got a cue, almost like an in-camera edit point, and that's that's the that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's 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 script writing where it, you know I, the dialogue is is great. Uh, so Anne Beattie wrote the novel, but uh, Joan Micklin Silver adapted it, and she wrote the script um, for this one. Um, but yeah, that is another thing about craft because you're crafting. Yeah, I, I call them seeds, but she's like planting all these things where yeah, it's it, it pays off in a different way compared to like plot points. You know? Um it it pays off in a way of just like uh, sometimes it's symmetry or like um it's it's just like uh it's a the continual flow of life in a way, you know, of just uh yeah, that that it's natural that we'll come back to him again because yeah, that span of time he was thinking these things. Um, yeah, and it, yeah, the the layers, the nuance is just incredible with the with that flashback too of just like how they met, and you know his kind of cheesy way of like, oh, what a nice, you know, what a lovely name. And she's already anticipating what he's gonna say. That's the other thing too, the dialogue with like how conscious or conscientious characters are about like what they're saying and like what those means. I, I've never seen that in a movie done this way. Of just like you know the is that all you have you know motif <laughs> right and like you don't get movies that focus on that right well then, it is true the character of the character of language I lament this a lot is not just not just casting and not just accents and movies but the actual quality of what the writing is the actual language with, by which people speak words is I mean maybe it's the most broadest easiest point to make in the world but quite literally the quality of language is is absolutely bankrupt mm. that you you don't hear anything you you'd either say is i don't even talk about poetry i'm just talking about the fact that there's an eloquence or a um a simple simplicity uh, mm-hmm. to be redundant of what people are saying where um it really matters the way in the word choice of what they're saying the character of the language matters quite a bit and that is something that is almost completely dead in modern even good movies aren't written well the language is still terrible in good movies yeah yeah you can't do that anymore yeah like i think most people's idea of like great script writing is like zingers like they think like everybody talks like aaron sorkin characters you know yeah yeah. (laughs) like yeah that that's now yeah it's very distorted that's why yeah i think this slips under the radar for a lot of people because it, it 
yeah, it takes a while for you to pick up on it. Like after a while, you're like, wait, wait a minute. Like there, there's something going on here that's not, um, you know, it, it it sounds natural, but then there's like a cleverness to it, which uh, I'm just like, wow, like all these people are kind of witty. You know, it's yeah. like uh, one of my favorite things too is like um, when, uh, yeah, the, the, the Griffin Dunn um, uh, cameo, his, his one scene, and then his sister basically asks like, oh, so what do you think of him? And he's like, He's one of the most incredible men I've ever met. It's like so good. He underplays it. Yeah, it really yeah, sells the line. Yeah, and yeah, heard. I mean, shit, dude. Like, I really feel like um, I don't know how he's not considered to be one of the greatest actors of all time. Like, just on this film and Cutter's Way. Yeah, like man. that's it. That's his legacy. Fuck, fuck, um, Home Alone. Yeah, <laughs> forget that he's the dad in Home Alone. Well, it's funny, um, you know. Like yeah. I read some, I read something about her recently. Where I mean, I was really curious for the same reason. It's like, well, Peter Riegert stuck around. Peter Riegert had this evergreen quality where he always picked up interesting work, and you know, Heard came out of the box strong. He was one of these theater trained guys. I started. It made me think of Stacy Keach. Stacy Keach came out ten years earlier, where mm-hmm. he shot. And, and Stacy Keach was a DC guy too, just like Heard was. And and he came out of the National Theater, and he did a lot of Shakespeare, and he was a wonderkin performer. And Stacy Keach hopped right into movie making with real adroitness um, in the early 70s and you know he was making great work from jump but he already had a rugged look to him and he's sort of man out of time as well and john yeah. hurd was a little fire plug of a dude who uh won a bunch of ob's and had all this stuff as a young man and uh, got into movies um in the late se- mid 70s and i think people had this idea that oh you're one of these near you're one of these theater guys and it's like we know what to do with you you know we know the, yeah. the kind of ambition you have the kind of drive they have and it's like i think he held it together very good for a cu- good couple of years because like you say this and he and, and between the lines he was also great this oh, is shit, his, yeah. his his character here of charles is very much an antecedent of uh, what he does in between the lines, which is a lot more ornery and unlikable and self-destructive, <laughs> nice. um, and but cut like Cutter, Cutter, you know, Cutter, and that is the absolute apotheosis of self-destructive characters in in Cutter and Bone. That like that's a completely unlikable, ornery, destructive man who's just a, a wrecking ball. Yeah, or like his degenerate, uh, corrupt cop in The Sopranos. Oh, Macassian, Vin Macassian, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just him meeting his end in, in on that show is incredible too. Yeah. You know, I think so. I think what actually happened was he called a shot incorrectly, where he got a little. Um, I think he got um, um, a little too reassured of his own. What do they call it? High in his own supply. Right. And he picked a lot of jobs that were shitty. He did not. He didn't have a lot of. Um, I don't know. Maybe he had a bad set of people who were advising him towards scripts. And also, mm. he he. It seemed like he was kind of like a little unstable personally for a while too, because he had a number of marriages that lasted one year apiece. He was married to Margot Kidder around this time. And oh that man, fl- yeah. That fl- lasted about eleven months. At, at one point, I think in '97, he was arrested for slapping Melissa Leo. What the fuck? He had a domestic a domestic account against him, and he was also trespassed. At, like years later, he trespassed at her house and at their kid's school, as if he was going to like pick up the school, pick up the kid at their school without approval. So I think he also had some issues along the way too. It sure. didn't quite work out all the way for him. Yeah, I mean, you know, the intensity on the screen, you know, it has to draw it from somewhere, right? <laughs> like he, yeah, yeah, most intense actors. We were talking about Nolte earlier. Like, yeah, that that comes from. Something, Somewhere. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not surprised because, yeah, the 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 description I had for a lot of the moments that he has, especially when he's he's kind of bereft, 
is like um or feeling bereft is like bleary eyed. You know, he's like got the yeah. bloodshot eyes, like they're wet. You know, it's like he's on the verge of tears in certain moments. And then, you know, it's like you kind of see, even though he's like a much smaller guy, that's the other thing too, that's funny. Uh, like uh, he compares himself to to Ox. He's like, oh, is he a tall, athletic dude? And you kind of realize, like I looked him up. I was like, damn, I'm, I'm taller than, than John Hurt. I didn't know he was such a short guy. Like he's only 5'8". Um, but yeah, he, he kind of imposes a figure you know it's like yeah. the, the way he stands like in doorways and stuff in in the movie and the way he he, he cuts the space away between people you know he like well he will he will spend too much time close to you yeah <laughs> yeah it's intense yeah it's uncomfortable in a way um yeah yeah he definitely does that and then like um oh man the uh, the scene i also like that was a, a big standout for me was um and we're, we're going all over the place here but that's fine um uh the uh, in contrast to the taxi driver date where he takes her to the porno theater, like <laughs> this one, man, she's like enraptured. Yeah. <laughs> but then it leads to a fight at, afterwards as well. Yeah, she says, "Is this are they all as disgu- is this one more disgusting than most or something like yeah. that? Do you want to leave? No. <laughs> no, because he says like, no, this is about average. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think this this movie's rated PG." And you hear yeah. like the moaning and shit, and I'm uh, like, how do uh, how do parents explain this to their kids? Why are they even watching it with their kids? Like, kids would be bored senseless with this is, movie. That is a good point. Yeah. yeah, this is really adult entertainment in in the best sense of the word. And like, actually, I wrote this down from my um, I forgot to mention it from my uh, Crossing Delancey. Like, I really think Joan Micklin Silver makes what, uh, you know, uh, whatever people take away from this term, but I think she makes civilized entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's really it. It's like movies for adults. Like this is something that you need to watch in your 30s. It's well, like, yeah, yeah, yeah you fair. won't appreciate it if you're a newly minted adult. You're in your 20s. You kind of live a little, experience some more, a little more heartbreak to really appreciate a movie like this, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, there's John Sales made a movie. I think it's his second movie. It's called Leanna. Have you ever uh, have you I've ever heard seen of it? it, but I've never seen it, no. It's very difficult to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I, the, not, the most difficult one to get a hold of is the one that Springsteen did the soundtrack for. That will never see the light of day because it would cost billions of dollars to license it. What's that one? Um, uh, Baby, It's You with Rosanna Arquette and Vincent Spano. Dude, no, it's, it's on Blu-ray. Um, yeah, I've been meaning to buy that Blu-ray because it's... Oh. Yeah, yeah, Olive released it. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, but yeah, that, that's what... I don't know if they cleared the music. Yeah, yeah. I uh, Maybe they did a sound alike or something. I don't know. But, like, uh, wow. I I had seen that previously. And then, uh, like, I'd been meaning to rewatch it because, again, I was too young to really grasp yeah. it. But, uh, but yeah, go ahead with Liana. Yeah, Liana is a movie that it's like, you know, John Sales' first movie was Caucus 7. Right. Which is really a bunch of people who are about 31 years old having this existential dread over failing their hippie selves and their counterculture selves from their early 70s. And uh, Leanna, which is the second movie, is such a change in pace where it is about a um, a woman falls. She, woman goes. She 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 breaks up with her husband. She winds up taking night school classes and mm. winds up falling in love with her female professor. She didn't realize she had any kind of same sex bent. Right. And it's such a gentle again for a guy who himself was in his middle thirties writing this. Right. Uh, you know, a straight white dude from Buffalo, of all places, or Schenectady, I forget where he, Syracuse, wherever he comes from. 
the fact that he was able to write this thing so sensitively, it is exactly what you say. That's a perfect way to put it. It is civilized, thematically adult mm. entertainment for someone in their 30s who will understand the signposts of where you are and what this specifically means to everybody who's inside the story. Right. And, uh, I mean, you know, we can now say, regardless of, like, uh, Joan Micklin Silver's uh, um, source material, it, it, it runs through. So it's really her. Yeah. She's the common denominator. Yeah, yeah. Um, Correct. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, yeah, so Chilly Cities of Winter was Anne uh, Beattie's uh, first novel, actually. So it was published when she she was actually in her late 20s, you know. And this was the other kind of thing that, like, started to kind of take shape for me while I was I was watching it. I, I just realized, like, wait a minute. This is, like, a, a movie about a guy suffering from heartbreak from his perspective, but it's written by two women. You know, and like once that struck me, I was like, oh, so actually, even though we're we're seeing it from him and like, you know, um, you know, Herd is basically bridging the gap um, because, you know, he's probably like he, he probably had input in terms of like how a guy would behave in certain uh, oh, yeah. moments, you know, and that kind of thing. But like it, it the basis for it is still like written by a woman. So it's still actually technically from um, uh, Laura's point of view. Even though, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I felt. Is like it's still like I guess this guy who's like being very unattractive by simping for her. You know, yeah. it's like that. That's that's part of why she she's getting put off. It's like stop acting like you really want it. Like just kind of chill for a bit, dude. His, yeah, his his form, his Rupert Pumpkin type ideation on this, where he just he's nonstop and he's. You know, his level of insanity is, I mean, again, there's a charming bit of moviness to it. But the thing is, like, this time around, I don't know how I didn't make this connection the first few times I saw yeah. it. You know, like, when he, it very starts very early when he gets that phone call from Gloria Graham where she's in the tub in, like, an evening gown, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, she's, you hate me. You all hate me. And they're like, Mom, we don't hate you. And they pick her, they firemen carry her out of the water. They put her in, in bed. And she takes a tranquilizer. And then, and then Kenneth McMillan shows up. Yeah. And he's sort of got his tie off. He's putting his, his briefcase down, and he goes, "He goes uh, another bathtub deal." I love <laughs> I, like my favorite line reading in the movie is Ken McMillan saying to because the, the, the two kids are there that her children, the two adult children. He says another bathtub deal, and it's like that says so much about he has he has a name for whatever we just saw is a process and a bench post. And, mm -hmm. and, and a, a ticket punch along the way that this is a thing she does, that he's got a name for it. And next, the next word he says is, oh, she's always exhausted after one of those. And I'm like, God, <laughs> yeah. I love that. It's, you know, and it's like, okay, so we're establishing some ground rules that his mother is a narcissist and a fabulist and probably, what do they call it, um, a borderline personality, I believe, is the new neologism for such a thing. Right. And what that means is that I, you know, you have no choice but to look at John Hurd's character as the inheritor of this mental illness in some way. And it's like, mm. I know exactly that that's what Ann Beattie and that's what Joan Micklin Silver were going for. But what they're doing is giving John Hurd the benefit of this wrapper, of, of a, the, the wrapper around it is this idea that he is a romantic, you know, a piner. He's inside the story and he's, he gets to have this hero edit in his own head. But the reality is... He's a fucking Looney Tunes like his mom in the <laughs> yeah, bathtub, you know? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, again, it's it's done in such a subtle way. Like, yeah, it also took me a while to kind of get that, too. Uh, but, you know, as the movie progresses, I mean, there is, like, that one line that was, like, very unnerving um, 
which is that you know it, it was it starts off in jest, but then he kind of like changes the tone of his voice, and he basically tells uh, Laura, "I'm gonna rape you." Like he says that. Yeah, that was so bizarre. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, and I was even wondering, is that an Ann Beatty line, or is that a Joan Mixon Silver line, or is it even John Hurd? Like, was it like his input to kind no, of just put that it. in there? I'm going to assume it was JMS understood what she was doing. It, it strikes me as so discordant. And it's like, I mean, I know that every now and then in, in a movie, you would this, this, look, it's a 1977, 1978 particular like illness is having a character like bandy the word rape around as if it was just, mm. you know, another bit of gamesmanship between two romantic people rather than this, this horrible war crime. Right. And, yeah. Cause she you know, just I mean, walks away, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, yeah. Right. It's like, okay, you may not take him seriously, but guess what? He just told the audience, I'm going to rape you with a really dull growl. In his yeah. Voice. It's like, I'm yeah. taking that seriously. Right. Right. And I mean, yeah, the, the other lines too, of just like, um, you're sort of, sort of attractive. He says that to her because she hates yeah. like being complimented by tell, being told that you're beautiful. Yeah, and then yeah. yeah, the um the Betty interlude, you know, where he he starts like entertaining the fact that why don't I just go for an easy girl like Betty? Why yeah. am I chasing this unavailable woman? And she spends twenty minutes talking about dip or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and like he's, he's he's sick of it, but then it's like okay, now I gotta like win her back, and you know, and then again, yeah, another telling line and working on those two levels of syntax of like uh, he's answering her literally. But then, I love that. I know your line. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't have anything for you. I wish I did, but I don't. <laughs> it's just like brilliant. <laughs> and the way his line reading is, is um, he's not letting her know. I don't have, he, he says, it's like a command. He goes, Betty, I don't have anything for you. I wish I did. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And it's like resigned. And then like he has his hands in his pocket. Like it's just, yeah, it's, it's beautifully played. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I just this movie something about it like I think I put it a level above of of Crossing the Lancy maybe because like there is a lot more room for nuance in in this um, story that she's trying to tell uh, because yeah I, I I felt like Crossing the Lancy there's still some conventional elements in it whereas this it, it really works on its own rhythm it's still part of it has that remnants of the seventies kind of ramble. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that about it, you know, and then obviously the story I can, I can relate to, even though I, I, I don't think I'm, I, I want to believe I've never acted that insane. Like John, John Hurt has in this movie. Uh, another thing I love about him too, is uh, he has the best smirk, man. The way he smirks, it's like, I, I used to think Bruce Willis had a great smirk, but now I'm like, no, Heard is even better. You know, it's like yeah, it's it's unhinged. You know, there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he is playing in the same sandbox as Bill Murray, a Chevy Chase. I mean, he's not doing the same thing because he's a trained actor. But the idea that he was inventing character, like he does a lot of that in between the lines as well, mm. where he he looks like he's trying to float above all the bullshit. It looks like you guys are worried about this down there, but it's like. I'm on another plane because the rest of you fucking you know suckers are down there fighting it out for scraps. But he goes, I'm just coasting above you guys. If you, you know, I'm not. I'm not gonna descend in them and get mud on my shoes with all you assholes. You know. Yeah. Uh, okay. So just tying to that too, the, since you mentioned Chevy Chase, you know Chevy Chase, the place in DC. That's actually where Ann Beattie is from. <laughs> oh, so okay. yeah, your your theory of like they probably shot in Utah for budget reasons um, might have some legs. Like maybe this was originally a DC movie or a book. Like she, she thought of it like with the DC in mind. And by the way, did you catch her, her cameo 
in the movie. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I like as that. As the waitress. I, I saw her in the background of the scene, and I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And then, of course, she gets like a cam. She gets the, a camera, you know, like a yeah. line, one line, and the. And the it's thing, not even yeah. a line. She's like hesitating. She's like, oh, that's, uh, uh, yeah, she yeah, doesn't even true. say anything. But it, it's beautiful. And man, I, I think she's kind of a smoke show. Oh, like, uh, yeah. No, she definitely has that look, that, that mm-hmm. straight hair. Yeah, because she she's, like, she's of the same generation as, like, um, Joan Didion. And even, uh, yeah, I think Fran Leibowitz in her day kind of had <laughs> uh, an appeal about her. You know? Susan Sontag. Like, in yeah. particular, it's that uh, the grooming of, it's almost like a little bit of um, Karen Carpenter. You know, there's this sort of thin woman with that straight hair. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, you know, it's an aesthetic. It's, it's, you know what, I'll tell you what, if you watch, I hate to keep bringing this up, but if you watch Between the Lines, Gwen Wells is sort of looks that same look. Oh. She's, she, she was a very attractive redhead uh, who started a bunch of Altman movies. And she died in the early 90s. She died of cancer. She didn't really make... But she had a couple of... She was in California Split along the way. She oh, was in fucking love California Split. Yeah. She's got she's got a very like that that Joan Didion sort of Lorraine Newman. There's there's a, a little bit of a drawn thin look, a pale you know remnant of the seventies. And yeah, that was definitely an aesthetic thing. I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, uh, again, uh, I don't know. I, I only have like an older photo or like uh, when uh, Joan Micklin Silver was much older, like a photo of her. But I don't know how she looked in the seventies. But I don't know if she also fit that that kind no. of mold no no i think she looked like she looked like a chemistry teacher she always looked like there's something <laughs> yeah, so she, much she, more conventional yeah she left it to to the cast uh the portrait yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah. yeah okay yeah yeah okay that's awesome all right well yeah i mean uh i think i've, I've run through most of I, the only like n- remaining note i have is i i, I put no not the a-frame <laughs> <laughs> when he's throwing the garbage, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a beautiful model. What the fuck, man? Yeah. Why are you throwing this out? Yeah, it was. A, it's a pretty beautiful model, like, you know. But we're not giving. I was gonna say the only thing I would say is to give uh, Mary Beth Hurt a lot of credit. Yes. Mary Beth Hurt was um, she was hitting it pretty strong around this time. You know, she was a little bit of that wasp goddess. She was married to Bill Hurt. That's where she got the name from. Yeah, yeah, the last name, and then became uh, Mrs. Paul Schrader. That is, true. and still is. Yeah, just, yeah they're still together. <laughs> They're still together, even if they don't live together because she's suffering from dementia. She's in a nursing home. Oh, no, really? Oh, is that? Oh, that's why he's been making those hospital visits. Yeah, Schrader Uh, and her, they lived lived upstate, like in Columbia County, but then he moved down to Manhattan. So she's she's not really there anymore, from what I understand. Oh, I'm sorry Uh, to hear that. Yeah, but she she was in, um, I remember, I can't remember how many movies I saw her in. She's she's a reliable, constant presence. She is, um, I think she also was theater trained. She was at home in Woody Allen's interiors. I, that might have been the first place I, re- yeah, I remember seeing her. Um, yeah, you know, considering she's got to do a lot of heavy lifting where, you know, like, again, the first time I watched this movie, I might think, oh, boy, she's being really unlikable and she's vacillating. But the reality is, is that she's playing so much pain and she's trying to be in the moment with Charles as a good time girlfriend who's trying to be the best reinvention of herself to give her the excuse of why did I leave this boring guy at home and not see my child? And it's like, well, because I'm trying to be me. And the reality is, is that she's trying to be her around this guy, Charles, who's just sort of really not quite psychotic, but he's really manic. Mm. And to see her have to go back and forth between the two states eventually where she breaks it off, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tightrope walk. And I think she does a really Mm. good job in that. Yeah, and it I again this is gonna be something I'm gonna look out for in my next viewing of the film is just like how nuanced the performance is in terms of like 
when it's a it's a Charles flashback versus like something that's now happening in present time versus yeah. the ending, which is also incredible, like their final exchange and him kind of coming to this realization that it's like, well, I can't wait around for you anymore. It's just like, you know, you got to give me an answer right now. And she just gives him like this nonverbal answer and it pretty much confirms it to him and is like okay i gotta i gotta go <laughs> yeah that's a, but that's like it's like she's like you you give her the answer don't fucking sit here and put it on her the onus isn't on her to tell you it's like you make a fucking decision you know? oh yeah yeah i mean that's that that's something i've learned you know the hard yeah. way from from my experience of dating too it's like yeah you gotta choose to walk away you can't like let somebody like string you along like that because also yeah i mean it's like she's not respecting you or your time, you know, because it's like, well, this guy's just going to keep following me and like keep like hitting me back. And, you know, I guess to tie into personal experience, too. Um, so if something happened to me over Thanksgiving and this movie is also a Thanksgiving movie, right? Because of that. Thing. Yeah. yeah. When him and right go to see the mom and she's like, there's no dinner. <laughs> <laughs> there's no turkey. No, there's, there's no, no turkey. At there's all. nothing at all. It's just empty plates. And then they go <laughs> home like with empty stomachs. So I had the greatest Thanksgiving ever. I mean, that's a whole nother story, but like um uh this past Thanksgiving, I you know, something came over me. Maybe it was just being alone at home like let me get in touch with people that I hadn't get in, got in touch with. And the the worst decision was getting in touch with people that I had like been involved with romantically in the past. Cuz you know what happened? Like, none of them got back to me. Nobody replied. I didn't call any of them because I think that would have been too intrusive. Like, I think Mm -hmm. just, you know, just a text, you know, maybe a greeting. How have you been? That kind of thing. Um, Yeah, and none of them got back to me. And then I realized, like, yeah, why am I going backwards? It's like, you know, what's the point of that? You know, it's like I I can live forwards. There are, you know, it's that cliche. There's there's many more fish in the sea. Like, you know, why, why do I need to, like, pull back into, like, my you know, my, my FUBU bag or whatever. Um, and, <laughs> you know, because maybe it's easier, but then, you know, uh, Hurd's uh, motivation is, is really like, he's, he's wrapped in it. Like he's really kind of, you know, he can't let go. And I, I, I think like part of me growing up and still kind of being, I guess, peripherally in the dating scene, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'll never use dating apps again. Like that's over for me, but like, yeah. I, you know, I'm still dating, but, um, but it, it, that's really it. It's just like, I, I can't get wrapped up with somebody like that, especially if it's like, I mean, uh, yeah. One of the other scenes in, in the movie that where my heart sank was, uh, when she moves in, I'm like, oh yeah, that's the end of it. <laughs> well, because they yeah they get separate bedrooms, you know. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, really, I understand that strategy, but it's still bad, weird. Idea. Right? Yeah, it, it's like it, it brought me back to Annie Hall of just like you know, it's like why should we have like separate places? You know, it doesn't make any sense. We're paying paying two rents, and like no, 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 you should have your own place. Like it's like let's let's keep it separate. You know? it's like, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a lovely movie. Um, yeah, I think it's a keeper for me. Like this is yeah. definitely like it belongs in Carlos canon. I would say like this is definitely a, a movie I'm gonna revisit over the years. Uh, maybe force it upon like um, certain dates. <laughs> See what they get. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a sounding block. See how they feel. Yeah, about yeah, it. exactly. You know, it's a keeper if they love this movie. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, yeah. Any more parting thoughts, Bill? 
No, it's I, I, other than the fact that to reiterate what you said, I think it is a, a 70s movie that is forgotten among a whole crowd of excellent 70s movies. Mm-hmm. But it's, um, you know, there's nothing Jewish about it necessarily, which is one of the things that I really like that June Micklin Silver focuses on her career. But I think that the sort of Jewish New Yorkness of it as a, as a sort of manner is in a lot of the movie, even if it's, you know, set in the Mormon country, uh, unspokenly of all those things. But, right. um, yeah, it does the 70s things really well, especially when she got to recut. Because you can't find the Head Over Heels version anywhere. You can only find the um, Chili Scenes of Winter version. It's like, that's, you know, what you're going to see is a down ending, or at least a neutral ending where the character doesn't win, but yeah. perhaps learns. Um, you know, but that's what you were... You were afforded. You were afforded that in the seventies. Yeah, and so we end with a freeze frame, and mm. that freeze frame is incredible to me because it's like uh, he's. I think he's going for a jog, right, a little run, but it's I, like yeah, yeah, yeah and then it, the way she chooses to freeze it is when he's kind of going the other direction, so he's he's kind of doing a heel turn, but it's like. It, the way it is, it's awkward. It's like compared to the perfect, you know, freeze frame at the end with like that loving glance that uh, Amy Irving is giving uh, Riker at the end of, of um, Crossing the Lancy. This one is more kind of like, okay, he's heading in a certain direction, but he's, is he turning back? You know, yeah. you, we're yeah. not sure. Yeah. yeah, it's ambiguous and it's also bleak. You know, it's like it's still winter. And you know he's not out of the woods, you know. Yeah, that's no, true. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's uh, yeah. I love like endings like that where it's like both closed and open, like it both hold true. Um, yeah, wonderful film. And yeah, uh, Bill. Oh yeah. Yes. Uh, finally, our our wine pairings. Uh, okay. What is your wine pairing for chilly scenes of winter? <laughs> oh, I will reemphasize Mazursky's. Um, uh, oh yeah, uh, unmarried Correct. woman. Um, again, it's like. They both feel like they're born of the same naughty, N-O-T-T-Y, mm-hmm. uh, sense of things that, you know, things mm-hmm. don't always work out. Things don't work perfectly. People get hurt. People hurt each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet that's just the quotient of being an adult person in the world who likes to be in relationships and have sex with people. Like, that's just the cost you pay for being in our world. Got it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Um, mine that I actually just came up with just right now. <laughs> Surprising, yeah, because uh, I I only had the musical pairing. I didn't have the movie, but I just suddenly thought of it. I was like, man, yeah, there, there's definitely similar beats. This movie is nowhere near the level of Chili Scenes of Winter. It's actually made by kind of a dilettante. <laughs> uh, so it's Ethan Hawke's uh, The Hottest State, and it's a movie oh, that wow. a lot of okay. people have already forgotten about. Um, yeah. But I saw it at the LA Film Festival with Ethan Hawke in attendance. And yeah, you can just tell, like, you know, he's a very charming fella. He means well, but it's just like, dude, you have no idea what you're talking about. Like, it's yeah. just, that's, that's the case. Like, you've been blessed all your career. All these doors have opened for you. You were this heartthrob in the 90s. And, like, you know, you can get movies funded uh, that you want to make. And, like, you know, I, and even more kind of ridiculous, I guess, is that, um, it's based on a novel that he wrote. Yeah. <laughs> so he's adapting his own novel. But, okay, this is the, I guess, the um, the kind of, um, I guess, uh, redeeming factor of the movie. Uh, t- the, the two performances in it are great. Uh, it's uh, Catalina Sandino Moreno, and she's she looks gorgeous in the film. Um, I think she's nude in a lot of scenes, too. And then uh, Mark Webber. 
uh, who's like, yeah, a very underrated actor of his generation, I feel like. Yeah, we're, we're around the same age, you know. Uh, and yeah, his performance is great. And he also kind of is just driven sick and like, you know, like just wanting to be with this woman who like is just taking him for granted, you know? And then in contrast to chilly seasons of winter, you know, hottest state it's in in Texas, it's warm, they're naked and sweaty. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's it's the the exact opposite of chilly scenes of winter. But I, I just thought of that movie and then, um, yeah, uh, my musical one, which I think is the one I've been thinking about, well, not that long because I only finished the movie this morning, is um, Radiohead's Amnesiac, um, which also has a very wintry vibe to it. I was listening Chilly. to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then it's just like, um, you know, the, there's just so many things in it, like certain tracks, like Pack, um, you know, like Sardines, like that track. You know, the, the hook on that song is like, after years of waiting, nothing changed. And then, you know, um, uh, Pyramid Song, which is kind of like my mantra song. It's like my my song, like it's a song dedicated to resilience. And then, you know, it, it, that hook is basically, there's nothing to fear, nothing to doubt. And then finally, Knives Out, which is another single from it, um, which probably uh, Ryan Johnson stole the title from. Uh, yeah, it's all about like a couple fighting, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, th- there are some parallels. So I think yeah, actually, I'm, I'm more prouder of the 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 Radiohead Amnesiac uh, pairing with <laughs> Chili Scenes than than, than Hans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like kind of a throwaway uh, pairing, but um, but yeah, yeah, I think uh, they they complement each other very well, and you know, R.A.P. Uh, Joan Micklin Silver and R.A.P. John Hurd. I mean, I can't believe you know it's like. A lot of these people are no longer with us, but they've yeah. left us with like these indelible, you know, legacies. You know, yeah, it's it's um, the fact that that generation was so potent to me. I mean, to, uh, I, we love movies of the seventies. Let's put it that way. it's not me alone, but the right. I, th- that I grew up with so many of these people as fixtures. The fact that you know, you say yeah, the Home Alone guy, and it's like, well, fuck if he wasn't one of the first movies I saw him in in nineteen ninety was Home Alone. It's like. He made it uh, 10 tons of things. It's like Kenny McMillan, for Christ's sake, was a Dune. One of the reasons I fell in love with McMillan is because he was Baron Harkonnen in Dune. Oh, that's that, him? Shit. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This, this guy was indelible. For an actor who came wow. up through theater, and he was he was truly protean in that he was able to fill like fluid whatever container you put him in. Amazing. He... he he was in like I think his best roles, his actual best sturdiest role was in Pope's Village, where he played Barney the Bank. <laughs> oh shit! Uh, he was the safe crack. Um, I who, gotta watch that. Know, that's a that's oh, another blind yes. spot for me. Yeah, Stuart uh, Stuart Rosenberg. Yeah, you will absolutely love that one. Um, yeah, and that's like the, like these guys. We, we had them all throughout my childhood. McMillan, I think, died in '89, and I yeah. just realized it's like, oh, that whole generation is just about to be eclipsed. And it's like for every Brad Dourif, who I think is 75 years old, oh, there are so few of these. I mean, you know, Nicholson doesn't work anymore. Devito's yeah. kind of like, think of all those um, the, the 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 Cuckoo's Nest generation. All that was just filled oh, with those man. guys who were yeah. left over. Yeah, uh, we we are uh, running perilously low on peak seventies actor. Yeah, and, you know the, the the moment is almost over. It makes you sad to go back and look <sighs> at this stuff. Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, it, it's like I I I'm very observant of that, and you probably are too because of your podcast of like how, yeah. you know, as the decades progress, it's like it's also the age that's passing. So it's like seventies. It's all everybody who's born in the 70s is now hitting 50. I mean, yeah. uh, are you 50, Bill? Or no, not yet, right? I'm 48. I was born in 1975. Okay, all right. So you're you're yeah. you're getting close. Oh, so we I'm only creeping, have a yeah, nine-year age gap. Um, 
Yeah. That's true. Um, yeah, so all the, the people in the 70s, so yeah, in a couple of years, you're going to be 50. And like um, people in the 80s now, my generation, are, are turning 40. Uh, yeah, people in the 90s middle are age, turning yeah. 30. You know, it's just like the, these things, like the far off removed, and then we see these people who are adults in these decades and these years. It's like, man, you know, the Grim Reaper's coming. <laughs> it's just like, it's inevitable. <laughs> He's knocking on every door. You know, yeah. it's just, man, uh, yeah, it, it's really happening. It, it's just so, f- like, uh, crazy to me, too, that we heard, even though he died, like, a, a little later, he was, like, 71, I think, when he passed. I didn't know he was born in the 40s, man. He's been around for yeah, a while. Sure. But he was also in bad shape when he died, too, I think. Right, yeah, he died of a heart attack. And, um, you know, just comparing him to another John who was also known for playing a dad with a with a menacing kid, uh, uh, John Ritter. You know, with yeah. a problem child, it's like, you know, they both kind of died in the same way. I mean, Ritter was a lot younger, but Ritter man. was a fluke. He died of aortic dissection. It's the oh. same thing that killed Lucio Ball. But it's like, yeah, Ritter. It was one of those things where it kills you instantly when it happens, but you can't you can't forecast oh, it man. until it happens. Yeah, it's it was a it was a time bomb, and it just took him out just as his career was getting super interesting. I know he was working on that sitcom at the time, right when it happened. Like, um, and yeah, ten simple rules. And the thing is, he he just done bad Santa before that it's like he was about to pivot into some really really naughty territory i guarantee you yeah and uh, talk about another guy who had like an incredible uh uh, 70s like i want to see skin deep that's like on my list of movies Mm -hmm. to watch you know when he was the leading man um yeah yeah with a beard too it's like (laughs) like a totally different look but Anyway, yeah. So Bogdanovich's Bogdanovich did. Um, they all laughed. That was that was Bogdanovich's oh, last shit. movie, the, the Dorothy Stratton thing. So that's that. Oh out there too. man, yeah, that's a, another guy I want to dig deep into because uh, yeah, now you're making me think like of, of this generation. Uh, I think about yeah because of the the Cutter uh, connection. You know Jeff Bridges. Yeah, you know, man. Yeah. So, but he he was a lot younger. So it's like he you know he's kind of the next generation. Yeah. But man, it's just like yeah, uh, yeah. The, these eras are ending. But you know, I'm glad that I have someone like you that we can talk about it. And there's still like an appreciation for these films. And obviously, like Cohen Media still cares about them and yeah. uh, Criterion as well. So that's good. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, yeah, we made it, Bill. Oh, I you think this might yeah. yeah, I think this might be our longest episode. We uh, we yeah, be, yeah, I we mean, eclipse it. So. Oh my god. All right, this is going to take several months for people to listen to. I think but, so, yeah. But, yeah, Bill, you know, we appreciate everything that you do and, like, just you being supportive of our, of our show and, you know, uh, just, yeah, being you being the ideal guest, classing up the joint. I mean, <laughs> I, I really feel like when, when you and I are, like, kind of exchanging ideas, it's like we just bounce off each other and, it, you know, it's like it's electric. Like, as long as these episodes are, you know um, – I think we we go through it at a pace, you know, where it's like, uh, you know, even if, if, it's kind of like watching a really long three hour movie, but it's like moving it really quickly, you know. Yeah, I think so. I feel that. No, I feel that way too. It's an easygoing relationship of chemistry for sure. Yeah, and you know, you you supported me in my New York days, and I appreciate that you continue to support me even from a distance, you know. And I really appreciate that, man. So thank you, Bill. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, too, for letting me on. I really, uh, this is a great fun for me. I just feel like it's it's adult grown-up fun. We all get to play on the playground. You know? Sure, yeah. And, you know, we talked about it off record, but it was like, it was great to meet you in the cafe that was uh, Wrong Reel. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're all like children of Wrong Reel in a way. 
Um, yeah, and it's it's been great. So yeah, w- where do you want to be found, Bill, uh, online? Uh, look for me if you're still on Twitter, everybody. If you're giving it a shot, you're giving it a good faith shot. I'm still on Twitter at William Scurry, but I'm also on Insta. I'm on uh, Blue Sky. I'm on Facebook. I'm all on all those places. And my podcast is um, at No One Bill Show. It's I don't get it. We talk about uh, pop culture topics for about uh, between 35 and 45 minutes uh, on a weekly basis. So, That's you know, wild, try, to, try to keep it light. Yep. You did it before this show, by the way, too. You, <laughs> which is crazy. Oh yeah, I did. I recorded my show too, earlier, but you know. <laughs> Yeah. And what time is it now where you're at? Oh, it's 4.06 in the morning. Oh, my God. Well, good what thing you don't have do? to get up for work. That's well, it's Sunday anyway, but yes, I'm going to get yeah, up for, for work. Sure. Uh, yeah, for sure. But, yeah, Bill, you know, we really appreciate it. You know, I mean, uh, Bill, uh, I think Steve's going to be excited, uh, you know, heading into next season. And, you know, uh-huh. it seems like we're going to have you several times next season. Right. And it's going to yeah. be exciting. We'll find another six hours. Again yeah, for no sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Bill. Okay. Uh, I didn't even actually say where where to find us, but um, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. We're we're basically because um, uh, this is Steve Jobs. I'm not really the guy, but yeah. We're Movie Food Pod on uh, Twitter, um, and uh, yeah, we have a Patreon. So look for us, Movie Food Podcast. Um, you know, sign up for it. Uh, well, we're trying to bring it up front. You get a jingle if you pay for the higher tier, which is only $3 difference between our lower tier. So, you know, it's worth it. You get that jingle and it plays every time. And, you know, who knows? Maybe you might even be a future guest on the show. So, yes, seek us out there. And then um, also, I just want to say I've been kind of on fire on Letterboxd recently. I don't know what's come over me, but I've been, like, churning out these reviews, man. And it's, like, long form. I'm not even just, like, doing jokey shit uh other than like um yeah my 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 silent night reviews kind of snarky but um but uh the the reviews before that like my song to song review is actually one of my proudest moments i have to say like i really think i i i you know i i really give gave it like everything i had (laughs) in that review uh it was really personal for me i watched it on terrence malick's birthday too so that was extra significance but yeah um yeah find me on letterbox um i'm carlo kino and that's also me on twitter so that's with two k's so carlo and kino are both spelled with a k um um you know feel free to reach out to us we love hearing from from listeners hate mail uh love mail whatever it is all right and that's it for us have a good night (laughs) 